Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. wilderness. He's done everything he can to prepare himself, but nothing could prepare him for this. Now, the director of the Black Stallion brings you another story you will never forget. Never Cry Wolf. A journey of discovery that becomes a fight for survival. Nothing to eat up there now. There's nothing but ice and snow. You would be the only fresh meal on there. A man who wins the friendship of a magical animal. Pops, where's your folks? And comes face to face with the greed of man. Beautiful country, all right. Limitless possibilities. Get away! A story that will dazzle your senses. your imagination maybe you're like Utah. maybe a long time ago the wolf devoured you and show you the secrets of a world you've never seen before survival of the fittest never cry wolf Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Stashew. Hi there, I'm here. Also back in the booth is Mr. Matthew Sosi. Greetings. 
On this episode, we are discussing Carol Ballard's Never Cry Wolf. Based on a novel by Farley Mowat, it's the story of Tyler, played by Charles Martin Smith, a bureaucrat who is sent into the northern wilds to study wolves and their impact on the caribou population. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen it yet, track down a copy and check it out. We will still be here when you get back. So, Matthew, when was the first time you saw Never Cry Wolf, and what did you think? I actually saw it in the theater back in 1983. I was sitting at the altar of uh, sneak previews on PBS, and I think I remember Gene and Roger both praising the film. And I was also intrigued because there were two, the two main actors in this were at that time kind of two that guys in Charles Martin Smith and Brian Dennehy. And the other thing was there was there was rumbling that there was a Disney movie with nudity. Now, it wasn't uh, wasn't Raquel Welch. It was Charles Martin Smith. Looking back, this was probably the first nature survival picture I had ever seen in my young age. I hadn't seen Jeremiah Johnson yet. And I was fascinated with uh, not only the story of it, but how they schlepped all this stuff way up into the wild to uh, to get this film made i know in the last few years there's been a number of disney nature films and during the closing credits you get to see them schlepping uh, gear all around the the frozen tundra or wherever they are filming their their nature films i'd love to have seen one for this yeah a backstage view of what was going on but at the same time they kind of maintain the mystery by us not seeing all that stuff i guess chris was this the first time watch for you yeah, I would have been uh, negative seven years old when this film came out. This was the first time I'd seen it, and and to be frank with you, Mike, because I, I, I Matt didn't program uh, you know this film. This is pretty much as far from the kind of film I would be normally interested in watching. For me, I'm not a huge just like vanilla drama type guy, and then like nature films normally aren't my bag, but. That all out of the way. I like this movie a lot. I wouldn't say it's a lot of fun, because I don't think fun is the word I would use to describe this film. It is a very well-made film, a very well-shot film. Like Matt said, Charles Martin Smith, nine times out of ten, he's not the guy being given a lead in a film. But here, when he's given the ability to actually lead a film, guy crushes it completely. I don't know why this wasn't a door open for him to go on and be a lead in other things. I mean, look, I know he's acting against, it's just him out in the woods, in the wild, doing things. Like, you can't teach that. You can't tell an actor to go do that. They have to live it. And, I mean, you hear and you read all these interviews with Charles Martin Smith about how much time he put into this role and this character in this film, and... For once, I can say, man, not only does it come across on screen, but I don't even think all of it comes across. There is so much going on here that they couldn't put all of it into this film, even if they tried. So like Matthew, I saw this at the theater when I was 11 years old. I think my mom was right there at the altar of Siskel and Ebert that you're talking about. And I definitely was watching a lot of at the movies as well and still remember some of those old, well, obviously that fantastically catchy intro theme, but then also some of the reviews as well. Remember the skunk being on the seat next to them when they would do their stinkers of the week and all those kind of things. But yeah, I fell in love with this film. This is a movie that I 
taped off of cable when taping off of cable was kind of a brand new thing. And I can't even tell you how many times I've seen this movie over the years. I wish I could go back in time and see it on a big screen again, because this movie is so lusciously shot, so well done. I'm not sure what made me put it on the schedule of things to talk about this year, but I am sure glad that I did, because, folks, if you like this movie, you're in for a treat, because we've got just a shitload of interviews coming up with a lot of people that were there for the two years that this thing was being shot. I couldn't believe the amount of work that went into it. Rewatching it again today, I was like, okay. Yeah, I can see why it probably took so long to do, you know, talking about those shots of the wolves, Charles Martin Smith out there in the wilds. I mean, just the caribou scene towards the end, it sounded like it took them a few weeks to do that. So, yeah, there was a lot of work put in to make this movie happen, and I'm excited to talk about this movie with you guys. Before we go any further, Mike, because you mentioned the, the the two years already that it took. Charles Martin Smith has said three, but I don't know. Maybe that was the year of prep. When I think about things that take this long to make, i.e., I, I think the last thing I think of that we spoke about on a podcast, Mike, was Lord of the Rings. The the three Lord of the Rings films took, what, three years to make? Two, two three years to make? And that's three films, this film took two years to make, three years of Charles Martin Smith's life, and it's one movie. The perspective of that can't be ignored because, again, like you've said, I think everything that they've done comes across on screen. There is so much that went into making this film. It's probably probably just as interesting as the film itself. Chris, I wanted to piggyback on what you were saying earlier about footage of Smith, not so much acting, but being the, around the same time. This was the same era. My my dad and I got to see in the theater, actually the same movie theater that I saw uh, Never Cry Wolf was the film Heartland with uh, Conchata Farrell and Warren. And that film ends with the two of them birthing a calf. And my father leaning into me and saying, they don't teach that in acting class. Yeah, I mean, they don't teach how to be out naked around caribou in acting class. I mean, and look, I mean, you know, the 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 story, the book, Never Cry Wolf by Farley Mowat. I mean, those things that he does in that book, you see them on screen. And I don't know if Charles Martin Smith was actually eating mice, but he sold that he was. I know that there are people on the other side of a camera filming him, you know, freezing his ass off at the in the early you know, first half of the film. But he's out there doing it. You can't fake that. You can't fake those vistas. You can't fake any of that. You have to be there. You have to be there. Yes. No CG caribou here. The funny thing about this movie is in the book, they talk about Churchill, which is in northern Canada. And two years ago. Two, three years ago now, Jesus, I don't even remember anymore. Uh, three years ago, I went with my family to Churchill, Canada, to go see polar bears in November when it was like negative 40 outside. I'm not saying I have experience with being out in the middle of nowhere, but they don't teach you how cold that is because it is. Think of the coldest you've ever been times 10 because you can't get warm. The idea of being warm is not even warming enough. 
it is miserable. But yet at the same time, you're awed by the beauty and the splendor of the where you are. And so you don't care if you're freezing. It ends up being worth it. It was just giving me somewhat flashbacks of being up in northern Canada. And just like you see Charles Martin Smith on screen looking cold because he is cold. There is something to be said for that. There really, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here with y'all, but there is something to be said for like, it's cold. He looks cold because it is fucking cold. This is not a joke. Yeah, I wondered if you were close to that spot, because I remember when you were telling me about that and uh, that trip and seeing the northern lights and all that kind of stuff. And then we, I start doing research on this. and I was just like, I know Chris was pretty far north, so I wasn't sure how far you went. In the book, they go north from Churchill farther. Churchill was as far north as we had gone. So this is like removed because Churchill's pretty removed. You don't go to Churchill for any reason if you're not a native unless you're going to see the local wildlife. So he's going farther than that. I mean, middle of nowhere. Right past BFE. And there is something really... That makes me anxious about seeing someone on a giant frozen lake. I don't know why, but like as a not like a city person, but like as someone who's grew up in the suburbs, like you're always told to stay away from those kinds of things. And here he is on this giant, massive frozen lake. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, oh, my God, this makes me so uncomfortable. Mike, since you you saw it at the same time, I did. Was that your first movie experience of the, the, the moment where somebody falls through the, the ice? I mean, unless I had seen that in like a Grizzly Adams, then probably yes, that probably was. There's an amazing thing of what the first the first time you experience something, some cinematic trope or cliche or, you know, standard moment. And, uh, you know, it can really jar you. And I think this might have been the first time for me. And even though I've seen this film so many times, my heart still clenches up whenever that scene happens, because I just can't imagine being trapped under the ice and not having any way to get back to where I fell in, or if I managed to find that place, will I be able to crawl out? Really freaking scary. And that shot of the rabbit looking down onto the ice, and you just see the footpath, and then you see the hole. If he dies, that's it. They will never find you. They will never find you. If they find you, they'll find your clothes, maybe, at the bottom of that lake when it unfreezes six months later. Just thinking about that, like, of the ways to die, that is up there with just the worst. Like, being buried alive is right up there. But, like, to your point, Matt, like, even watching it just sitting in my house, like, man, I I don't, I do not, nope. Not a fan of that. No, not in any way. I have to say that the music does just such an amazing job, especially because the movie starts off very plainly, let's say, like just it starts off with Charles Martin Smith already like on his journey and he's going and we get that voiceover pretty much right out of the gate. I just jumped at the opportunity to go without even thinking about it, really, because it opened the way to an old and very naive childhood fantasy of mine to go off into the wilderness and test myself against all the dangerous things lurking there and to find that basic animal I secretly hoped was hidden somewhere in myself. I imagined that at that point I'd become a new man with a strength and courage that I'd never known before. 
So we're inside of his head. And I like that he's just like, I don't really know why I signed up for this. I don't, you know, I don't really even remember the circumstances around this. I just remember doing a lot of toasts and all this kind of stuff. And next thing he knows, he's on this train going out into the middle of nowhere. And we have the whole scene of him in this little town. And that's where we get to meet Brian Dennehy as Rosie, this bush pilot in the, the northern wilds. I love that almost immediately. Charles Martin Smith is, is super scared of where he's going, but as soon as he gets a little bit of alcohol in him, it really takes the edge off and that he takes all of his money and spends it on moose juice, this mix of what is it? Ethyl alcohol and beer that he loads up Rosie's plane with all this inside of his canoe is pretty good. Yeah. The diet of moose juice and frozen canned asparagus. That's, that's going to make your pee really smell funny. Going to, back to what you were saying about Smith on the train, if, at the very beginning, because he's on a, an old-fashioned train and he's got this kind of mustache from the 1920s, it feels like a period piece. And then once you get in the town and then you start seeing, you know, the plane, you're like, oh, gosh. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure this, uh, this town, of course, uh, south of Witch's Tit, is, is probably a few decades behind when it comes to certain aspects of, of, of life. The other thing I, I realized, and you mentioned the score, we've reached, I think we've reached a point in the 2020s that synth music you know, was a thing of its time and then kind of got a little a little shunned and and sort of is coming back and, you know films like Blade Runner Chariots of Fire and this one I didn't realize this was Mark Isham's first score first score and it it really <laughs> works I think the 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 synth mixed in with the wild and it doesn't it doesn't feel like the opening of the shining it really sucks you into that world this film, well, as all films do, started with an idea, but it started with the book and then eventually turned into a screenplay. And the screenplay, the version that I have is the second draft from April of 1979. So quite a few years before this even started shooting, I think. And that's Curtis Hansen and Jay Presson Allen. It's a always a tricky bit as far as how do you start it? Where do you go? And they start back in the office. They start in civilization and then we move him along to the wilds. And I think it's really smart that we start him already in transit. And I like what you're saying as far as that whole. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The idea of him 
looking like he's a man out of time. You know, once you, when you see him and you're just like, oh yeah, he's got the, uh, like a tweed jacket and he smokes a pipe and all that stuff. He looks like he should be in a study someplace. So he's out of place. He's out of time. And then when he gets to this little podunk town, it's like, uh, all right, where you, where the, the fucking plane like goes down the main street, which is the only street in town. It looks like that what maybe a couple buildings bunch of weird people the guy who's playing the saxophone out front <laughs> i'm just waiting for uh northern exposure people to start you know popping up all over the place i didn't have a chance to read the book all the way through but i think chris you listened to the audio version i did how does it compare because i've read the script but i i only made it about uh, maybe a hundred pages into the book which it's a very fast read but i just didn't have enough time they take all the kind of I wouldn't say ham fisted, but it seems a little it seems a little on the nose, in my opinion, that the kind of the spiritualism of the natives um, that the movie kind of forces in there. And look, I'm sure we'll discuss more about it, but there's none of that in the book. Uh, the book is very straightforward reading. Um, you know, Farley Mowat has a very kind of I mean, look, the guy was a uh, guy was a naturalist and environmentalist. So his writing style mimics that he is a very naturalistic writer. The book is good. To your point, it is a quick read outside of several things. The Utek and what's the other characters, Mike, uh, they are they're swapped in the book. Utek is the one who speaks to Mowat more in the book. The character is the same. And there's a lot of the same beats, you know, the mice eating and, you know, him quickly giving names to the animals. I will say, because it's a book versus the film, trying to keep track of all the wolf names gets a little much after a while. Uh, as I'm sure, Mike, you, you, if you read a hundred pages that you were running into that already, he runs into the wolves rather quick into the book. But in the book, it seemed like he got to the wolves a lot quicker than he did in the movie. I mean, obviously the movie is almost two hours long. It's building a lot of suspense. The funny thing is the book is like four hours. So the book is like half the time of the movie or the movie's half the time of the book. Excuse me. I'm not sure I got any more out of the book than I did out of the film because the film for all of its problems, which I don't think it has many aside from one or two small ones. The film does a good enough job at least what I would consider to be the point of writing a, a film script off of a novel is synthesizing the basic idea of the novel, translating it to screen and giving the audience who may have read the book and may not have the similar story beats with some other kind of, you know, the other writers interpretations of the book, because that's, you know, that's always going to happen. But I, I liked it. It's it's good. But I don't think it added to my enjoyment of the film, which I read the book before I watched the film. And I'm not sitting here saying the book's better because it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, it feels like the beats are very much the same. And even in that 79 screenplay, they're very the same. In the 79 screenplay, he's still called Farley Mowat, though. And I don't know when he changed to Tyler. I would be very curious why they changed that? Because Moet was on board with the project and looking at the uh, photos that came with the press pack, there's even a photo of Moet and um, Charles Martin Smith right next to each other. And they were and friends. With glasses. Yeah, with their glasses, with their beards and everything. I'm like, these guys are looking very similar. And it's funny because I think it's Carol Ballard next to them and he 
towers over them because they were both about the same height. And we know that Charles Martin Smith is not a, a huge man. He's a, a slight man. And, and so is Farley Mowat. So I think they really picked the right actor for that role. I was wondering that same thing, and I couldn't find an answer as to why they changed the name. Because Farley Mowat, like Farley, like Tyler, like it's not that big of a deal. It's just an odd choice. Like, I'm not going to sit here and, like, overanalyze it, that's for sure. I would have rather the film had just given him that name. My issue with not giving him the name of the person who wrote it is it doesn't seem like it's a real story. It seems like it's based off of a story. Like, like Call of the Wild's not a real story, right? It's a not, It's a fictional story, right? I don't know my Jack London from anything. I don't know my natty bumpo. I don't know my leather stocking tails. That's just my issue. Is like they should have just made it Farley, so we understand this is a real story. I know that they say it's a true story multiple times, but it's just kind of an odd choice. Are you saying that all the wolves should have been CGI replaced? Yes, but only if human beings were doing the wolf performances. There you go. Yeah, sassy performances. <laughs> very very sassy wolves. Call of the Sassy Wolves. Never cry, Sassy Wolf. Classic rock music to play under it. Uh, Steppenwolf. Hungry like the wolf. There you go. There it is. And what celebrities could voice those wolves? Who's going to be Angelina? Would it be Angelina Jolie? No, James Corden has to be one of the voices. Oh, yeah. Uncle Albert. Yeah. James Corden is the funniest. James Corden is what I would consider to be the pinnacle of comedy when it comes to late night TV hosts. For stunt casting, you have to have Kevin Costner. <laughs> oh, Especially because he's now like gruff voice Kevin Costner. Oh, so he's George? And Harrison Ford, just so he could play a wolf after he played a guy opposite a wolf last year. Dear Hollywood, here it is. You're welcome. Never Cry Wolf 2. Numerical 2 Never 2 Wolf. Just to make Mike mad, let's just call it Never Cry Wolf. Or Never Cries Wolf. Halloween? Yeah. I just have three movies called Halloween now? Yeah. Yeah. We'll call it Farley Mowitz Never Cry Wolf. I did find it interesting that they swapped out Mike and Utek, that it's Mike that finds him first. But I think it works better in the film that it's Utek that finds him because Utek doesn't speak English. And so it makes it even more foreign when he's dropped off by Rosie in this foreign land. Rosie has no idea where he's at. He basically has just enough fuel to get back to that little, you know, rinky-dink town. I assume that's Churchill. In the book, it's Churchill. That's why I assume that's what they're trying to go for in the movie. They never say it, but I just assume it's Churchill. The rinky-dink town, not where he gets dropped off. Right, yeah. So he has no idea where he's at. There's a couple villains in this movie, and one of the biggest villains is bureaucracy. And all of the papers that he's reading, all of the reports that he has to file, uh, Matthew made uh, reference to all of the asparagus that he has. He gets all those cans of asparagus, but I don't think he has a can opener. And it's just one of these, like, all of this random shit, like the light bulbs that they send along. (laughs) All these light bulbs, but no way to generate power? It's a typical bureaucrat shit, right? Like, these assholes wouldn't know their ass from a hole in the ground, so of course they're going to send a guy with frozen cans of asparagus and no way to open them. Of course they send light bulbs, but the guy's never going to have electricity. 
There's a moment where he has to dump some boxes, some crates out for weight. I would have loved to have had just a just a, a minute of, you know, the, the, the locals grabbing it and here here's what you won. Because you know all that stuff is immediately going to get snatched up, and I'm very curious what it was. Probably all useful stuff while he gets all the not useful stuff there. But it really speaks to, I mean, even from the beginning of the film, where it's just like, here's our thesis is that the caribou population has been decimated, and we're pretty sure it's all the wolves. So they're already like under the wrong impression. The film is basically showing us why that was the wrong impression and just showing us what a-holes these bureaucrats are. And it starts off early with all of this useless stuff that he's laden down with. And then just kind of goes from there as far as who's the real culprit behind the caribou disappearance and who's the real villain of the film. In the book, they don't do man is the most dangerous animal of all, but the film does. I didn't need it because it's pretty obvious so obvious that you didn't have to do it like three different scenes, essentially. It's like three separate scenes of being like, don't you understand? Man is the worst animal of all. He's trying to come and take the sparkling water from the the river, and then he's going to build a resort. And then the other, you know, the, the native goes and kills the wolves, even though he knows he shouldn't because the other guy is pissed off at him about doing it. It's like, oh, man is the worst animal of all. Yeah, of course. I liked what the, where they went to. My my thing is, it's not the, as a like or dislike. It just felt a little like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we get it. This is not a unique idea. It's very much like, I expect a film about nature is going to say at some point, the real animals all along were the humans. I like that they took Rosie, who's this bush pilot, wild man, gets out of the plane while it's flying to fix the engine, and then turn him into a businessman at the end. The hot spring, right up there. Amazing, incredible. Steaming hot water coming right out of the ground. When I say hot water, what do you think? Sitting in a bathtub? Japanese. A little bit of advertising. Plenty of raw fish. <laughs> Beautiful country, all right. Limitless possibilities. Japanese. <laughs> That's a great angle, Rosie. Wait, I haven't heard the best part. Listen to this. Once they soak their little buns in our magic medicinal hot spring, they bottle it up, stick a fancy label on it, they take it home with them. Before you know it, we'll be shipping it out of here by the truckload. And what's the cost of that? Nothing. Just bubbles right out of the ground. I bet you we can figure out a way to, to bottle the air up here, too. Fantastic. <laughs> Gentlemen, here's to the future. I mean, it is 1983 when this comes out, and it is at the height of Japanese paranoia about them taking our industry. And I also like that the other villain is Mike the Inuit, and his whole thing of all that time where he's smiling throughout so much of the movie, and then when he finally gives that final smile and you see his teeth fixed, and he talks about survival of the fittest, it's just like, wow. And that he's got the camera, he turns around and takes a, a photo of Tyler before he leaves. It's just like, okay, here's useless shit that you have. Thanks a lot. You know, Thanks for killing George and Angeline to buy a fucking camera and a, probably a new gun and get your teeth fixed. 
early on, yeah, Rosie talks about how real estate is the future, and that's the real gold, and that's the real currency, and a little foreshadowing for what's what's going to happen. Yeah, we're 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 a terrible species, human beings. Yes, we we truly are the worst animals on the planet. <laughs> yes, and in fact, actually, as as you were talking, I I in our imaginary remake, the Utek would be the the uh, magical Inuit. Yeah, right. Pretty much. I mean, he kind of is in this film. Not so much, but he kind of is. There's no lingering shots of him looming over us with uh, saintly care. No, but but there was that addition of like the like spiritualism that I was just like. No, oh, this is just unnecessary. Like the the wolf, where you were devoured by a wolf in your like previous life. It's like, <sighs> I think it was probably Disney's way of looking at diverse. Yeah, it was weird because it was so not in the book, and then it, when it was added to the film, it didn't add anything to the film. If that makes sense, because like the story is very straightforward. I mean, you know, Mike, you you read some of the book. Like the book is not trying to do any sort of grand gestures at deep introspection like it is a rather straightforward book about a man going into the wilds to observe animals and his his like his trials and tribulations it's not about how he became one with nature it became the reincarnated wolf man like hey come on everybody's gonna have a different opinion on like the spiritualism in the film i just didn't understand why it was there that's just me i also wonder if and just another subspecies test audiences, if they had them for this, of just getting a few other faces, even even in just one little scene, and and that being around the fire. Yeah, I like the scene around the fire. I really like the way that it's shot. It just seems very magical, almost to me. The way that the faces look in the darkness, really nice, and the uh, the story of the the caribou and the wolf, and how they use the wolf to weed out the weak and all that. To your point, Chris, the mystery as far as who's killing all these caribou, I already read who killed all the caribou <laughs> when when Tyler or Farley is there at Mike's cottage or, or his shack and he finds just hundreds of caribou corpses or bones outside and He's like, yeah, I, I probably kill two, three hundred caribou a year. I got to feed my dogs. They don't like fish. They don't, they don't uh, perform the same way if they eat fish. So, yeah, you got to kill all these caribou. And Farley's like, well, does everybody do that? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he starts doing mental arithmetic thinking, okay, well, if there's 1,400 people up here and they're all killing two and three hundred wolves apiece, it's like this astronomical number. And he's like, okay, yeah, no wonder the caribou population has gone down so much. Well, okay, so here's the funny thing, though, right? <clears throat> so it's the Canadian government, which I don't know if you all know about how the Canadians have treated their indigenous people, but they've treated their indigenous people about as well as our country has, which is... To say the least, poorly. It's funny to me that this whole premise of the film, the book, and Farley Mowat's life is, we don't understand why the caribou population is declining. It feels more like, stop the natives from killing the caribou. Which is fine, but the natives have been killing the caribou for hundreds of years. It feels a little like that, but more than anything, it looks like we have to blame the wolves for this. Wolves are historically bad guys. We don't want to know how they work. We don't care how they work. We just want to murder them. 
basically it feels like, because we kind of had the same thing here in Michigan, where it's just like, oh, yeah, there's way too many wolves. We need to uh, start licensing people to be able to kill wolves. We need to have a wolf hunting season. It's like, really? Do you? Are they overrunning things that badly that we have to go out and hunt these wolves? Well, yeah, yeah, of course. It's like, okay, are you sure it's not because you're taking away the the deer population by all the hunting of that and then you get wrapped across the mouth and told you're not a good american don't question the white man if it's not the white man doing it and you know when a wolf moves into your neighborhood the property rates go down (laughs) i'm glad matt said it because i was about to say it too (laughs) daughter dating one and Mike, mike you're a michigan guy isn't ted nugent in charge of wolf force Instead of Space Force, isn't he in charge of the- Yeah. <laughs> just- yeah, he puts on that loincloth, you know, and just goes out there and starts starts killing everything. I heard that they're going to build a wall and make the wolves pay for it. In this film, there are good people on both sides. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but I think, yeah, there's, well, and there's that fine line between survival and greed, and, well, we know where Mike went with this by the end of the film. There is part of me that does not blame him, given the situation that he is in with his family. But yeah, I mean, to your point, Matt, there is a fine line between. It's like what Bill Pullman says in Spaceballs. Take only what you need to survive. Nope, I'm going to kill 500 caribou a year. Like, fuck, caribous are huge. How much meat? Like, I feel like one caribou could realistically feed a family for longer than the character in this film is pretending to claim that it doesn't. Just based off of the fact that I, surprisingly, am a a hunter, not an avid hunter, but I do go hunting and I only hunt things that I will eat. I have killed animals the size of a caribou and that meat lasts forever. You'll have pounds upon pounds of it. You'll never be able to eat it all unless it was the one thing you're sustaining on. And even then, you would be able to eat off of it for a while. How are your guitar solos? Because like... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, that's the weird... I mean, that, again, it's like this weird plot line of like, who's killing the caribou? It's the wolves, but it's not. Like, yeah. Don't it... Like, it doesn't even make any sense to think that many wolves kill that many caribou in a year. Like, what the fuck? Just that we've been trained to think of wolves as being that ultimate villain. And I love the guy, even in the, the little rinky-dink town where he's just like, you better watch out because those wolves are going to come and tear you apart just for sport. And it's like, okay. And no, Tyler 
gets along well with the wolves. I mean, there is a little bit of that magical realism in the film of him being able to go out there and live amongst the wolves and not have to worry. You know, of course, I'm thinking of like Herzog's documentary about Bear Man. Grizzly Man. <laughs> Grizzly yeah. Man. It's on my list here. You know, it's funny you, you mentioned that because early, you know, early on when he's in the wild, there's the moment where he's hiding under the canoe because animals are are lurking about. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting narrative to say, yeah, you get this warning and then here they come and and you hide because that's what you do. But uh, but yeah, it, it was a nice, uh, nice setup for that for later yeah. on. I, I will say, Mike, to your point about um, the magical realism of the book and the film, that magical realism was called into question <laughs> by a number of people who are scientists or naturalists in the same vein as Farley Mowat. Frank Banfield of the National Museum of Canada compared Never Cry Wolf to Little Red Riding Hood, saying that both stories have about the same factual content. It is magical realism because, like, I've never been around wolves, so I assume that it's like that, but it sounds a little convenient. Well, you have to get in there. You have to do this stuff if you're going to tell the story. Yeah, like, you never let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? So what you're saying is the Canadian version of the dingo ate your baby. Or the dingo didn't eat your baby and lived side by side with you for six months out of a year. I will say, though, Moet had the best response to this guy giving him a hard time. He he sent a letter to the guy uh, who was complaining, and he signed it, Moet's Wolf Uncle Albert. At least Farley Moet could laugh about it, uh, which is which is nice. But I don't know how much of the story is real, but if Farley Moet had written a story that said, I went out to hang out with the wolves, and they tried to kill me the moment I was there, or they ran away immediately and I never saw them, um, that is an abject failure on a number of <laughs> levels. So just saying, yeah, I met them and there were a bunch of folks out there like that's way more interesting. I don't know how believable, but obviously this story helped change the perception of wolves in the public eye. So it did its job. And I do like the pacing of how he finds them, how he tracks them, to see how armed he is the first few times that he is after them versus him living next to them. One of my favorite scenes in the whole world was him going out and marking his territory and and singing Gilbert and Sullivan as he goes around and marks his spot and then the way that George comes and marks the opposite side of each of that and then they're living in harmony after that. And it's like, that's nice. I mean, I just like the way that the story unfolds. And I find that each little level up, each time we interact with the Inuit, each time he interacts or observes the wolves, it all adds to something. It doesn't feel like there's really a wasted scene in this film for me. Sadly, they couldn't afford the rights of the song where Tyler and George sing Ebony and Ivory. Going back to what you were saying, Mike, this is for for you for you young folks out there. This is a slow. It's a slow paced film, but it's not a slow film. Nowadays, we watch films, and one of my at least one of my immediate reactions: was, well, that, that could have been twenty minutes shorter. And you know, if you wanted to hurry this film, yeah, you could. He could have found the wolves within the first twenty minutes of the picture. But we we get to spend time with him and the environment and him learning to survive. Oh, and then we get to the project. And I think the the pacing of that works very well. I love even just the sequence of him figuring out what the wolves are eating. That they're eating mice. 
And then how he takes on that whole experiment of, I'm going to eat these mice too. And that also leads to some great comedy of him interacting with Utek and Mike. Utek, the guy that played Utek, had been in a couple documentaries, but Mike was found for this. And he feels like he is just a natural actor. And I was watching a little bit of behind the scenes and um, Charles Martin Smith talking about how you really, as an actor, you don't act with non-actors the way you have to like kind of respond a little bit differently than you would if you were, if you were acting against, you know, Brian Dennehy or something. And it just feels so right. Those scenes of those three together just really work for me. The scene where Charles Martin Smith is eating the mice is my favorite scene in this film. Because watching Charles Martin Smith pick rat tails out of his mouth is amazing. I know, I hope those weren't mice. Not that it matters either way. Mike, I I will thank you uh, once again, because this is a running gag between the two of us. And I think it's come up on my podcast. I'm not sure I've ever mentioned it on your podcast. Most of the time I watch something for the projection booth, I'm watching it with my wife. She went, you know, pretty on the nose. Let me guess who you're watching this film for. Mike, right? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, I was was like, what gave it away? And she was like, I don't know. The guy eating the mice was probably a pretty good indicator. Because the thing that got her was when he was crunching on the small bones, which he mentions in the book about how small the mice bones are and how that's like the big stumbling block if you're eating mice, (laughs) you're eating the mice bones. But to your point, Mike, like the amount of comedy in that scene that's great physical comedy. Well, it's great editing, too, of those mice reacting. Like, first, like, them kind of staring him down as he's thinking about eating the mouse. And then his reaction and, and just crunching away and relishing it. And then all the mice just disappearing. When I was reading the book and I came to that, there's kind of, it's not really a scene. It's more of the internal monologue in his head about eating mice. But when you see that scene actually put to film it makes perfect sense and it's so good it's absolutely one of my favorite parts of the film because it is it kind of breaks up the pace of this film because this film is very not introspective but it's a very like you've said matt slow moving film there's not a lot of dialogue in this film either so if you can get physical comedy without having to like really use dialogue at all it's even better but that that scene is is a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's just kind of an odd scene in this film, given how kind of serious this film ends up being. And studying fecal matter to find out what they eat and how they eat. With a gas mask. Yes, yes. <laughs> like I said, I don't think there's anything that I would necessarily change about this film. I just really like the, the pacing. The scene towards the end with the caribou. That is just remarkable to me, the way that that is put together as well. And just the, the, again, the music working so well with that and actually getting to see the hunt and see naked Charles Martin Smith running around, <laughs> around the tundra. Pretty, pretty awesome. Well, a lot of those, a lot of those caribou were classically trained. They did shows at Stratford and work with Christopher Plummer whenever possible. When you have caribou in their production of Midsummer Night's Dream, this is not the first Disney film that has nudity in it. Even though it's even though everything says it is. Right. Because apparently, according to, well, you know, the reliable source, the Internet, but apparently there's a bare ass in the film version of Pollyanna. But I just haven't gotten around to watching Pollyanna because I have other things to do. 
So there's your Disney nudity portion of the show, folks. Don't look it up online at work. I will say that caribou scene is probably the most impressive scene in the film. Like you said, Mike, I mean, it, it took them weeks to film it. And I don't have any question as to why that is. Let's put it that way. It seems pretty obvious as to why it took so long. Yeah, because we, we always hear the joke of, you know, the, the director waiting for the sun to be right or the clouds to be right. So you have that, but also, like, how how are the caribou feeling today? How are they running this time? And Charles Martin Smith got his wind sprints in, to be sure. I did flip to the end of the book, Chris, and the end of the book is not good. It's very depressing. Yeah. It's even more depressing than this movie is depressing to me. That epilogue... Oh, yeah, the epilogue that essentially says, like, yeah, all the wolves are going to die. <laughs> like, they're all going to die because of us, and it's our own fucking fault, and we tried to blame the wolves. We tried to blame the wolves, and we're the ones actually killing the wolves. Good job. The final thing that I read in the version I read, let me go to the end here, was... During the winter of 1958 to 1959, the Canadian Wildlife Service, in pursuance of its continuing policy of wolf control, employed several predator control officers to patrol the Kiwatin Barrens in ski-equipped aircraft for the purpose of setting out poison bait stations. In early May 1959, one of these officers landed at Wolf House Bay. He remained in the vicinity for some hours and placed a number of cyanide wolf getters in appropriate places near the den, which he asked ascertained was occupied. He also spread a number of strychnine-treated baits in the vicinity. He was unable to return at a later date to check on this control station because of the early onset of spring thaws. It is not known what results were obtained. I forgot that they go and poison all the wolves, too. Boy, isn't that great? Fuck me. <laughs> I mean, I thought you were talking about there's a part at the end where, and I thankfully Wikipedia actually has it, so I, I un- unlike you, I don't have to search it down, thank God, Jesus Christ, because I don't even remember how far into the ending it is. But they essentially say, like, we blamed the wolves, but we're the ones actually killing the wolves. That's just as bad. I mean, what you read is obviously horrifying. <laughs> just here, let's poison them all. Fuck it. That's awful. Which is why when we get to the, if I may, get to the final, final moment of the film, because first you have you have Tyler walking off with uh, with o- with Otek, and I'm like, okay, he's going to be the new mountain man, new you know he's he has found his new purpose in life, but then you have the final, final silent moment of the two of them, and and he teaching Otek trying to how to juggle. It's a lovely, weird ending, but I guess it it seems a little less dramatic or depressing as him marching off to his next, you know, to his next life chapter, you know, to take up a cause. And then it's just uh, two friends and one of them doesn't know how to juggle. It is nice to end on that, because if you didn't end on that, you would end with him playing, what is that, the bassoon, trying to get the wolves to howl so that one wolf would come and pick up the now orphaned cubs. Right. Yeah. And then if you fade to black after that, oh my God, that would be awful. So thank goodness they decided to add that little bit extra at the end because you can smile now. You don't have to think of how horrible life is. I'd love to know how they got to that. How, you know, was it just, you just let the camera roll. What can you do? What can you teach? Just, you know, from an acting standpoint, it's it's a great choice. 
I mean, it sounds like there were millions of feet of footage that were shot for this thing, so who knows when they even shot that. So let's go ahead, we're going to take a break, and we are going to play a whole bunch of interviews after the break. Uh, Don't worry, I will introduce each as we go along, but just for the record, first up we're going to hear from the first assistant director, John Houston, writer Sam Hamm, then we're going to hear from writer Richard Kletter, then writer Eugene Kaur, then we'll hear from the editor, Michael Chandler, and last but not least, cinematographer Hiro Narita. And we'll be back with all of that stuff right after these brief messages. Hi there, I'm Chris Dashu. And I'm Jess Byron, and we're the hosts of Scary Stories We Tell, a weekly dive into true crime, the paranormal, conspiracies, and everything else that goes bump in the night. From Kentucky goblins to the death of Paul McCartney to hearing about what keeps Jonathan Frakes up at night and the cold case that inspired Twin Peaks, no topic is safe. Tune in wherever you find your podcasts or find us at scarystorieswetell.com. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. And I'm Axel Kohag, and the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Inventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodas Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. Plam, the door opens, it's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe that war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palma is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear from first assistant director on Never Cry Wolf. That is Mr. John Houston. You have lived quite a life and have had quite a career. I am so curious what it was like growing up for you. And when did you realize that your dad was a pretty uh, well-known author? See, I didn't know any different. I just thought that's how people grew up. You know, I'm living on... Baffin Island and uh, growing up uh, sort of between the two cultures and so forth. And that seemed kind of normal to me. I I was surrounded by artists. Every single person I knew, including, you know, my folks, my brother and myself, we could could all make art and everybody else we knew could make art in our little world there. So I was quite astonished when I moved. We we moved to uh, England. I, I turned eight there as part of our little conversation to try to sort of break the ice and, uh, you know, get along, I would say to people, well, you know, what kind of art does your dad make? 
you know, would he be a sculpt sculptor or a painter or what? And they just give me an odd look. And I say, well, I, I'd try a different tack as well. Your mother then, you know, is she like tapestry designer or, or is a, other kinds of graphic art? What would it be? And after a while, they put together a little delegation and they came over to me and kind of got a hold of me and said, hey, stop asking us that art stuff. They said, we don't make any art. Our parents don't make any art. Nobody we know. Nobody we know makes any art. So just, you know, lay off it. It just makes us uncomfortable. And uh, that was when I realized that I'd come to a different place and that, you know, by by inference that I had been brought up in a in a very different very different spot. And then about my father and the the writing, I mean he was the Renaissance man, you know, he had so many things he drew, you know, all the time. And then he started writing he was a wonderful storyteller and then he started writing the stories in something like nineteen sixty five, I believe it was. He'd heard some of them on the tra- trail when they were dog team traveling around southern Baffin Island and so on and he started writing them out and when I started to perceive that this might be kind of a big deal is uh, um, my father, my brothers and my father uh... With the Lucky Land Slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky No, no, nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so I suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Took to sending us the galley proofs of his work, uh, you know, before it was published. And he, he would always say, look, if you find any typographical or, or other, you know, errors in fact or whatever, be sure to alert me. And so we go, oh, we're on it. We'll, we'll read very carefully. And, on. and you know, I mean, he had a very good uh, team there at um, Harcourt. What was it? Harcourt, Brace, and Jovanovich at the time, I believe it was. And uh, in any case, uh, you know, they, they didn't need any help proofreading the things, but we at the time were thrilled to be part of the process. And we, when we started seeing language versions, his, his stuff was put out into, I don't know, 74 languages or something like that. And when we started seeing, you know, the same title, but in all these different, uh, um, the you know, in all these different languages, all these different versions, we thought, oh, wow, he's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a big deal in all these other countries too. So, yeah, so we were, you know, we were and are, you know, very proud proud of our dad. I think he was one, and our our mother as well. They're both gone, but uh, I think that they were, you know, were and are uh, guiding lights for my brother and myself. Tell me about how you got to work on the White Dawn, the adaptation of your father's book. Well, it might sound like blatant nepotism because you know there it was. My father wrote the book, and then there I was working on the picture, you know. And my father, I went and said to him, I was at college, and I went up to his place. He was in Rhode Island. I went up there for the 
the weekend, and I said to him, hey, listen, if there's one thing that you could ever do for me, Dad, just one, you know, like, never mind anything else, just I would like to work on the white dawn. I just, I want to, I want to learn how films are made. I want to get back into the Arctic. I want any, everything, everything about it. I, the director of the film, Philip Kaufman was a hero of mine. I mean, I don't know, you know, you, there's no way you could, could cut it, that it wasn't great. And there's no way you could cut it, that it wasn't terrible if I missed out on it. So I just threw all my eggs in one basket and said, look, dad, that's it right there. You know, never mind any inheritance, never mind any, forget everything. Just, just you can do that. And he, he said, well, you know, gosh, he didn't know I really had felt that way. But uh, yeah, he, he'd do his best. Sure, he would. My father always helped me in, in any way he could. I think it was a subsequent uh, weekend or something that he said to me, look, you know, John, with great you know, regret, he said, I really ran this up the flagpole. I spoke with the producer. Uh, Martin Mansohoff. I spoke with the director, Philip Kaufman, and I believe the production manager, Don Don Guest, who also produced uh, Paris, Texas, which is an amazing film. And so he's a, a great guy. And he, what did he do? Production managed the Beverly Hillbillies for 13 years or something. He was an amazing guy. So anyway, so I, he approached all of these, and uh, they said, you know, not a bad idea. I mean, you know, we understand the but it's kind of late in the day. We've, we've really crewed up. We're, we're all done. We've, you know, we had to crew up early because, you know, it's not exactly like, you know, L.A. outskirts where you could just grab an extra grip at the last moment or something. We, we thought of this. It's like going to the backside of the moon. We had to, you know, really put our contingent together. So we're really done with that. Thanks. I mean, maybe we'll keep them in mind for something else later. And uh, so anyway, when I got the news, I was not super happy. I was there for the weekend up in up in Rhode Island at their farm there, and and as an 18th century farm they had, it now belongs to who's that? A Rothschild, one of the you know the the, the, the um, Mouton Cadet uh, winemakers now. But anyway, that my father had that for a while, and uh, so while I'm up there, uh, you know we were having dinner and doing other stuff. The phone rings, you know, my father says, oh, "Okay, everyone, be quiet. It's a call from the coast." So after a little bit, I, you know, kind of listening in, I'm quite interested. And I, uh, I hear, oh, yeah, sure, Phil. Yeah, oh, geez, Phil, I, that would be no problem. Oh, yeah, no, I, I don't see any problem. And I'm very strongly getting the idea this would be Phil Kaufman, the director. I pulled one of the more audacious moves in a rather audacious life, I guess. And I just went up to my dad and I said, hey, give me the phone. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm not giving you the phone. He said, "Look, this is my this is my first big break. You know, my first big chance in show business. I'm not going to have my kid excuse the expression, fuck it up." I said, "Oh no, 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 nothing like that. No, no, just 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 give me the look. It'll be, be like like one minute. Just put me on the phone for one minute. That's all I ask. I'm not going to mess anything up for you." So I'm just kind of staring at him levelly and I've got my hand out for the phone and normally I, I would treat my father with significantly more respect. This was this was really a, a singular event. So my father looks at me just as levelly. He looks at me as a rattlesnake might look look at a rabbit or something, you know, sort of staring me down for a while, but I'm not being stared down. And so after a little bit he gets back on the phone. Uh, my father was great at so many things, but lying was not one of them. I never he's never never very very good at that at all. And I watched him make a complete fool of himself. He says, oh, yeah, Phil, listen, geez, oh, 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 well, oh, uh, uh, there's, there's somebody at the door. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 that's it. So, uh, look, uh, look, I'll, 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 I'll put my son, my son, John, I'll just put him on the phone, you know, just to keep things rolling. I'll be back in, I'll be back in one minute. I guess that's fine with Phil. 
He turns to me. He says to me, you've got one minute. Don't fuck this up. And he hands it, he hands me the, uh, the telephone, you know? <laughs> so, you know, I came on the fly. I didn't have any clear planned out idea of what I was going to say. So it was all a rush of words to the face. And, you know, was a, you know, I was trying to cram everything into, you know, 10, 10 or 15 minutes of, of, of sober, you know, measured conversation into my one minute, right? So I was, uh, I have no idea what I said. I, I could not recall a word of it, but I, I imagine it would have been something like, um, hi, Phil, you must be Phil Kaufman. Well, listen, I just love all your work. I mean, I think you're amazing. And, uh, you know, like I, I really, really would love to have a chance to work on this film. And yeah, I would do anything. I mean, I don't care. And listen, if it's a matter of money, like I don't need money. I just, you know, it was something like that. It was just blah, 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 blah. And, you know, and after a while, I kind of ran out of, ran out of gas and uh, stopped and, uh, I heard Phil Coffin. He says, "Wow." He says, "Listen, I, I had no idea." He said, I, "You know, when I heard from your dad, I, you know, I got the sense that he thought it'd be a pretty cool thing for you to do for experience." But I, I didn't understand how much passion you had. He said, "Geez, that's, that's awesome." You know, but we still don't have a job for you, but it's awesome anyway. You know, but but he said, you know, it's all crewed up. And he says, the only thing I'd suggest, he says, our first day of of uh, shooting is uh, May the seventh. 1973 that'll be our first day scheduled and he said i don't know you know if you wanted to be there i mean you know we're off at the end of nowhere and and uh you know very often you go to a remote location and you know somebody doesn't make it or they get a big gig close to home at the last second and they cancel you, know, you don't know you know this stuff and he says we would be very much we're that far away that we would be very strongly motivated to try to crew you know to complete our crew with anybody we had on hand. So that's the only thing I could advise you. He said, that's not, not very good. And then he had a kind of a, a regret. He said, oh, listen, geez, you know, forget what I just said. He said, listen, uh, you know, it's very expensive getting up there. And, you know, it's, it's probably all crewed up. And so, geez, you know, just never mind. I said, uh, May the 7th, I'll see you there. I'll look forward to meeting you, uh, meeting you, Mr. Kaufman. And I handed the phone back to my uh, to my dad. And so I used my own money. I, I picked tobacco all summer and so uh, at the previous summer and I'd saved it all. And I, uh, I used my uh, tobacco money to buy a ticket and everything. And I got up there on the first, I was there on the first day of principal photography and I got there and they, uh, the, the all the thing was all crewed up. I walked across the floor, uh, probably by the family resemblance, you know, facial resemblance. Uh, uh, Philip Kaufman figured out immediately as I was coming into the room, you know, who I who I was, and he goes, "Oh, Jesus Christ!" You know, he, a really warm warm reception, and I'm like, "Oh no!" And he says, "Oh no!" He said, "I, I had I figured you'd forget all about it, you know. I mean, it's a long. It was a long time ago, and and it was like, uh, you know, this is a long way to come. It's so expensive, and I I didn't. I was hoping I wouldn't see you today. <laughs> oh well, thank you. Yeah, good to see you too. And uh, he says, no, but there's nothing for you, man. It's, you know, like I told you, it's all. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all crewed up. So I said, okay, well, and I, I just felt like, you know, a 
mistake had been driven through my heart. You know, there went all my savings, such as they were. And so I said, uh, yeah, well, you know, that's okay. Yeah, you know, it's okay. I mean, you know, uh, there's no flight out today. I mean, the soonest I could fly out would be like tomorrow. And in the meantime, if, if it's okay, you know, if I'm welcome, like I would just hang around on set, you know, stay out of the way. And I'd just learn a little something, you know, get a little something out of the out of the experience, if you don't mind. And he goes, oh, sure, geez, you know, be my guest. I mean, you know, just, yeah, yeah, hang about, you know, kind of thing. So I went, and we were on the set, May the 7th, and it was very cold. And they were doing these outdoor scenes where the the um, the, the sailors had died in the whaleboat, and they're, they're driving by, and they're discovering their frozen bodies and stuff like that. And it was that was cold enough, you know, my goodness. And uh, there, were, there was a, a tent set up, like a sort of coffee tent or something, and it was bright orange. And I had a very, very primitive sense. I mean, you might almost say non-existent sense of how a, a film set worked. But one thing I felt I understood was this was an 1885 uh, whalers, you know, period piece. I very much doubted that they were going to be framing this orange tent into any of the shots, like, you know, right. So I thought, okay, okay, that, that I know. So I'll go over and I'll stand near the tent because uh, the uh, John Anderson, who was the, uh, the first assistant director uh, for that. And he was, uh, you know, he was a tough, uh, tough guy. He ran the whole thing with an iron fist. Uh, I was a, first assistant director for 25 years after that he was my first experience of it and uh you know i i did it in a very different way a more humanistic kind of style maybe but i i learned you know learned from him and he would scream at you you know who's that get out of the fucking shot who is who, fire that fire that bastard you know kind of there was all that going on and i just didn't i just didn't want to be in the way of that i thought you know that's adding insult to injury i mean i already have to go home and lick my wounds you know and all summer no money to do anything with but i can just be at home sort of sitting around or something and i was looking you know looking at that so i just thought at least let me not shame myself here you know and stuff and and also for my dad's sake and everything else. so i stuck around the tent and after a while it was cold enough that i went in the tent i get inside the tent Here's this guy. He's like a, turns out he's a, a divinity student. I mean, he's just getting his start as a missionary. And he thought he wanted to go further up Baffin Island. It's a huge island. It's the world's fifth largest island, Baffin Island. It's 200,000 square kilometers or something. And it's cost a lot of money to get up island. So he was going to work on the film for a bit and then use his money to go up and be a missionary, you know, further, further north. So anyway, here's this guy. People are coming into the tent for coffee. It's day one. Nothing's going right. I mean, when is it? When has anything ever all gone right on day one of a, of a feature, especially a location feature? So in comes everybody. Tony Lucibello, the second assistant director, who's a Toronto guy. I didn't know any of these people, but anyway, at the time. But anyway, in comes and he says, uh, "Oh yeah." And, and the, this divinity student guy says, uh, "You know, uh, how are you? How is everything going, uh, Mr. Lucibello?" Oh, you, you don't want to know. I everything is all it's all fucked up. You know, forget about it. Look, just give me a fucking coffee. And so, huge mistake number one, which I didn't understand at the time. The guy starts lecturing the field of these crew people. And he says, you know, Mr. Lucibello, you know, a simple like coffee, please. Or like, could I have a cup of coffee? You don't need to throw all the profanity in it. I mean, I understand what you're getting at. And so, 
And you could just see this guy who's already, he's got enough frustrations. He probably didn't have enough time to leave set to really come and get a coffee anyway. He's rushing. He's frustrated. Everything's crumbling. And he just looks at this guy like you'd look at, I don't know what, you know, the lowest kind of a thing. And he goes, you know what? Forget it. Screw this. And he walks out of the tent without a coffee. And it didn't take very long before that all started to go around. And in came the production manager, Don Guest, who, again, I didn't know, but he had a lovely big long ponytail down his back. And he was sort of a hip and cool looking guy with the, the mind of a great white shark, you know, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, disarming in that way. And so he comes up and he kind of smiles, hi, you know, he says, uh, and he just prompting me, like he's trying to say, hi, John, he didn't know my first name. So he goes, hi. And then he starts kind of rotating his hand a little bit as if prompting, like, uh, uh, come on, come on, come on. What is it? What is it? I guess. And I go, oh, and see, I was, you know, ivory tower, you know, I was a, you know, Ivy League uh, student, which means I didn't really, you know, know, I hadn't seen much of the world. And there I was in my little, in my little tower. And I didn't get all this sort of street stuff. And he's kind of prompting me for my name. And only after the longest possible time, I go, ah, 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 John, John. And he goes, very good. Very good. This guy's a moron, but he does know his name after us, uh, after a certain amount of prompting, you know, he, he, he can recall his, his name, you know, so say so you get a, a, a silver star, you know? And so anyway, so I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he says, so and he says, Hey, uh, John, have you been standing around here long enough to know what this guy, and he doesn't look at him. He never looked at him. He just puts his thumb over his shoulder. Have you been standing around here long enough to know what this guy did for a living? Operative word did. And see, I'm not very swift. I I always, I thought, wow, you know, like I'm the top thing. I'm a university guy. I can speak Latin as well as English or anything like that. I thought, wow, but no wow at all. I was I was slow, and so I, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. oh oh oh. Oh, I see. And I suddenly realized my world had just been reversed on me in a second. And I was the last one, last one to know about it. And I'm like, uh, well, gosh, gosh, uh, Mr. Guest, I, gee, well, that's quite amazing. Well, so, so you mean, so, 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 so I've got a job. Well, well, uh, uh, and the only thing that I could think of to say, you know, like you're getting employment would be like something bright and, and, and positive. So I said, so when do I start? And, you know, his brow, his brow furrows, he's already regretting this. Oh, this is like, you know, this is our, we're going from the fat into the fire. We've got one, you know, moralistic guy and one regimental idiot. You know, I wouldn't, neither is better than the other. So he, uh, he just, he just sort of looks at me kind of, kind of disappointed. Says, you lazy fucking bastard. You've already started. And he turned on his heel and he walked out of the tent. And he became a friend of mine over time and everything. But, uh, you know, he wasn't that friendly that day. Uh, but uh, it didn't matter. I mean, he could have whipped me with a cat of nine tails because I got the job that I had dreamed of, like all on, uh, you know, May the, May the 7th, 1973. And that put me squarely into the film business. <laughs> it's a long story, but I, I, I don't know how to abbreviate that one because, uh, you know, there it is. It's all, it's all of a piece in a way. From what I understand, you didn't go to school for filmmaking. So how do you take that experience of being the coffee boy out of White Dawn and kind of parlay that into more of a career? I did a little bit. I mean, I studied uh, a French cinema at the uh, Louvre uh, for one year. And uh, and while I was at Yale, I, I studied I studied film and so on. But not, you know, it was like, 
you know, film study, it wasn't like a, a formal, I didn't make a, a life out of it. You know, at the time I was interested in, uh, in graphic art. I started as a, a printmaker and also in psychology, psychology. So I built a major, my major, as, you know, fortunately they were very flexible. I, you know, I was able to build a major out of, you know, art and psychology and the art was kind of both like the graphic art plus film. But, you know, so as you can see, it ended up being, you know, it was in the mix there, but it wasn't, you know, my, my primary study. So what I'd have to say would be, I learned in a very different way. And that was, I got sort of kicked upstairs in a way because, you know, I, I'd try to do, let's see, the 1970, one quick example. I won't go into a long story on this one, but one quick, when I was a, a driver, I used to be a, a production assistant slash driver when I was trying to get a break, 1979 in Toronto. And uh, the uh, the director was incredibly uh, rude. And- Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Abusive to the cast, so they all, you know, quit, or at least they did like a timeout or something. And, you know, to give you an example, one of them was William Shatner. Another one of them was Hal Holbrook, you know, and there were several others. So anyway, these guys, so they went up into a, a hotel room, something like the 16th floor, I can't remember, of the uh, Holiday Inn on, um, you know, right in the downtown at Queens Park area. And they locked themselves locked themselves in the hotel room. I think they ordered in some, you know, whatever, some a meal or something. And they locked themselves in there. And they said, "That's it. We're not coming out. We don't. We don't have to take this." Some of them were doing it out of solidarity. I mean, I think they'd all been been, uh, you know, uh, misused in a way. But some of them more than others. I mean, they just said, "That's that's it. We're showing solidarity. We're not. We're not going to take this." So anyway, so I didn't know anything about this, and I'm there polishing my vehicle, you know, trying to be ready for the next ride to take one of the casts somewhere or something. Along comes the production manager, a cockney fellow. And he says, uh, look, he says, uh, he says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm kind of polishing my car. I'm trying to be ready, you know, and ready for the next. No, he says, I mean, what are you doing? Because and he says, you're, you're up to something. He said, I, I, uh, you're, um, the cast have all, and he told the story, they've all locked themselves in a room and stuff like that. And then the penny dropped. He said, uh, they won't talk to anybody but you. And I said, what? That, I said, I don't think that makes sense. He said, I know it doesn't make sense. He said, like, you're a driver. I, that doesn't make any sense at all. He says, are you peddling cocaine to these uh, to these people? Is that what you're, you're their connection, right? He said, that's all it could be. That's all it could be. I said, I got nothing to do with any of that. I, I said, I run it. I run it 100% straight. 
And he's saying, he's like, nah, this isn't straight at all. But he said, anyway, never mind. We'll deal with that later. He said, right now, get your ass up to the 16th floor, find out what they want. And, uh, you know, let's, we got to, we got to have them back. We're, we're, we're in a disaster here. What do whatever it takes to, within reason, do whatever it takes to, to negotiate, you know, negotiate some kind of a, a deal and run it by me. We got to get them back on set. So I went up and knocked, and they're very, you know, very much uh, full of full You know, who is it? Who is it? And I, I explained. I opened the door. I went in. I talked with them for better part of an hour and made some notes. And then I came out and I said, "Look, here's how it goes." And, and uh, they said, "Okay, well, we, you know, whatever." And anyway, so we, one of the things was that. Uh, you know, the director wasn't supposed to touch anybody. He wasn't, no, I don't mean anything sexual, but he wasn't, you know, that whole thing where, you know, they have their hands all over you, like that sort of alpha chimp thing where a guy like puts his, you know, like what Trump does, you know, he's got his hand on your shoulder and all that. You know, like they don't want any of that stuff. And uh, he said, when the, the whole thing, he says, I'm not going to, I'm kind of traumatized. Hal Holbrook said, I'm not staying past 11 p.m. tonight. I don't care what's going on. Have my car waiting right beside the camera. And John, I don't want us to hear any, oh, we just need another thing. No, nothing like that. Just I'm, I'll walk away. You'll be driving and you just take me home. And I said, okay, well, I'll see what I can do about all this. So when it came to 11 p.m., they're like, oh, no, 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 that's impossible. No, it's just a, and I gave them some notice and all that. No, that, that's not going to work. No, he's going to have to, we'll need, we'll need him another half hour. And I said, well, no, that won't be happening, though. No. And so I hear a call a call from the darkness, and it's Hal Halbrook, whom I held in hold in very high esteem. And he says, John, he says, is my car ready, pal? And I said, yes, it is, sir. And, okay. And so anyway, he said, 11 o'clock. I said, I guess that's it. And he said, yeah, I guess it is. And he walked over, stepped into the back of the car, and I <laughs> drove off with him and stuff. And so that left me feeling like, yeah, I got a kind of a training on set. You know, that's just like would be one kind of example, but there's a thousand more. And I got training over the years by doing all that kind of stuff. So now today, my dream was I wanted to, you know, write, uh, direct and produce. And, you know, I write, direct and produce. I, I you know, originate my own projects. I do what I want. And, uh, you know, that all of that stuff came from just, listening carefully, watching everything. And, uh, you know, anytime I didn't understand something, I would try to ask about it. But I learned pretty quickly that, you know, it's like everybody around you, and yourself included, you know, but everybody around you has function, function, uh, you know, constructive attention deficit disorder. You know, not that they particularly have that, but they might as well, because nobody has, you know, like any time to really do anything. It's just like if, if we can just make our day, that's going to be all we could you know, encompass and don't talk about anything else. So I came to understand that. And so we'd do uh, location scouts, for example, and Carol Ballard would be uh, location scouting for uh, fly, fly Away Home. And uh, there'd be something that happened and I didn't quite understand and I wanted to, to increase my understanding. And so, you know, we'd get in the car and we'd have a 40-minute drive to get to the, the, the next uh, barn, possible barn location or something. And while we were driving, he'd be kind of tired. He'd look around a little bit and ask a couple of questions. And then you could see him. He wanted to sleep. He'd take a little power nap. I didn't want to disturb that. Then after that power nap, I got to read him, you know, like, and so, so he'd kind of like wake up. He'd look around him as if he didn't know what country he was in. And then he'd just kind of, he'd look like 
inquisitive, like he wanted to uh, do more, do more, engage in some way. And so that was my moment. I watched for that, and I could tell you to the split second when that was, and I'd be ready. And whether I was driving, usually by that time it was someone else driving, and I'd be watching, and I'd go, "Hey, Carol, yeah, yeah, Houston." You know? I said, "I just, do you mind answering a question that has nothing to do with today's today's stuff? It's just something personal." Ah, no, no, go ahead. That's fine. You know, and so then we'd have this little talk, and he'd fill me in, and you know, all that. And those are that's my education. My education was gleaned from, and so it's all real life examples. That there's no chalkboard, you know, exercises like every last thing with like when you said X to, you know, actor Y, and you know, and then he did Z or Z, like. What, what was that? What I don't understand. Oh yeah, okay. No, that, I got. It. I can explain that to you. You know, whatever. And so it was a, it was a, an education, a, a rare, a rare. And I don't know how else you get it other than how I got it. Tell me how you got the gig working on Never Cry Wolf and what it was like working with Ballard. I moved out of the Arctic in 1979, and I told you I had that that show I was just mentioning with, with, with when I was a driver and stuff. And then, uh, you know, a PA driver, which, and I wanted to get into the director's guild. And so I kind of put the thing on this very same fellow who had told me, who had suspected me of, you know, whatever, some kind of wrongdoing, uh, because the cast had insisted on me and stuff, the same guy, Tony Thatcher. So I uh, went to Tony, and I said, Tony, I want to join the uh, the director's guild of, of Canada. And he said, nah. He said, listen, it's all full up. You know, we've got so many... We have so many uh, uh, members right now, and there's not enough work for them. He said, we, we sort of, it's a bit of a, there's a bit of a moratorium now. We're not signing people up. I said, oh, look, you know, one more is not going to make any difference. Come on, you know, I've worked my guts out for you. He's like, yeah, I know, I know. So he says, yeah. But he says, you know, when you say one more, he says, I know, you know, you and your driver pool, you know, it's going to be like the news will spread in about two seconds. And, uh, you know, the next thing you know, I'm going to have a little lineup of people all with these, like, uh, the goofy eyes, you know, they've all got to get in, kind of, if I sign you in, you know. I said, nobody's going to hear about this. This is, this is between you and me. So uh, he, he said, okay, well, don't, uh, you know, don't disappoint me. He signed my little form and so on. And I'm telling the story now. I haven't really told it since because I, I kind of wasn't going to, you know what I mean? I, I really didn't kind of mention this. Because I just I just really wanted to get in, and you know each person is responsible for themselves. They could all go up to somebody and do whatever they wanted. I I did my thing, so I got in. So I was a brand new member of the director's guild. I hadn't really done much with it, and I hung out my little single there in Toronto. I had a little apartment, and a, you know there wasn't really a, a business much, but I put you know I put my name on a little company and you know stuff, and I was hoping for some good things to happen. So then the next thing you knew, very shortly thereafter, I mean, astonishingly shortly thereafter, I get this phone call. And this phone call is from a truck up in, now this is 1979 before, you know, cell phones weren't, you know, weren't like that big a deal and all that kind of stuff. And so it's this, in cars, you used to be able to get like a sort of a mobile, kind of like a radio phone type of, of a thing. You know, and a huge big unit. You could never carry it on you. Right, almost like a like a satellite phone or something. Yeah, like a satellite. Yeah, like a satellite phone. So I get a call, and it's all weird. There's little, you know, sounds. Uh, there's little weird satellite sounds and all that. And I get this call, 
and uh, you know these guys would say, uh, you know, we're up in uh, we're up in the Yukon, uh, we're up in no, we're up in Alaska, we're up in someplace in Alaska. Do you know where that is? And I said, oh yeah, yeah, no, I got a pretty good idea. And so they said, uh, yeah, well, we're trying to find some uh, some uh, Eskimos or Inuit, you know, to be in this movie, you know. And uh, we we wanted to know if he could work for us for a while. And they said we're we're uh, Walt Disney Productions. And so it started to sound like baloney to me because first of all I thought, wait a second, I haven't been in business for more than a minute, and you know how did they kind of get my number and all this? And now they're calling from a truck up on the some highway near I think it was in the Yukon, just near Alaska, I think it was. And so I just thought, okay, someone's really pulling my leg here big time, you know, and stuff. So I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. Who did you say you were again? You know, and no, no. Uh, Bobby Steinbrecher and uh, and Walker Stewart, I guess it was, and uh, and so they said, yeah, yeah, we know we'd like you to do some uh, casting for us. Yeah, could you could you make your way up uh, north? You know, up the places you know. Could you head up there, and we'll give you a uh, uh, we'll have a, a videographer meet you up there, and you can go around for a, a couple of weeks, you know, and find some people, get them on tape and uh, stuff, and uh, you know, we'll pay you for that. We'll so I, I said, uh, I just thought this is one of those things, you know, that, I mean, you know, I, I really have to think about what's going on. So, so I, uh, I, I said, oh yeah, the other thing is we're off in a, we're off in a sort of distance, but we can't really get you any money, you know, right now. We're kind of, it's kind of terrible because, uh, you know, we're, we're really at the, the, the back end of nowhere. So, you know, if you have a, like a credit card or something, maybe you could, you know, make your way up north on a credit card. And then what we'll do is we'll have this guy meet you up in Frobisher Bay. I think it was still being called. We'll have a guy meet you there and, and he'll bring you the money and stuff. You know, we can work that all out, but, but we just can't really work it out right from here. So you'd have to sort of take us on faith. Oh my goodness. I had, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop and I thought, how am I? Yeah, this is a prank, and how am I being screwed? I, okay, now I know how I'm being screwed. I'll be up in the Halloween. No one's going to show up, and you know, here I am. But boom, you know, the second time I made my way to the Halloween, the same town, and stood there, and I'm told there's no money for me. <laughs> so more fool me, right? So in any case, so I, I said, look, can we talk again tomorrow? I said, I'll have to look at my. I had no schedule. I had no agenda book. I had, you know, I mean, I was just, I just started, you know, who are we kidding? But I said, you know, I, I'll have to check my schedule and my agenda, you know, this and that, whatever I could think of. And I said, can we speak again tomorrow? Maybe like this time tomorrow. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, we'll call you. We'll call you tomorrow. I said, okay, great. And I got off the phone. One of the reasons I got off the phone was because money, like I didn't know anything, you know, uh, uh, much. And I thought, I, this is, this could either be nothing, it could be a huge minus, or it could be a, a plus, you know. And so I phoned my dad, and I said to my dad, uh, you know, what do I do? I, they're asked, oh, they asked me sort of like what would be my, my my daily rate, you know. And I said, look, that's when I stopped. I kind of panicked, and I said, yeah, yeah, look, we can discuss all this tomorrow. I got to blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so I, I, I talked to my dad, and I said, so, you know, what, what should I say to them? Because, you know, if this is a real gig, like, you know, this could be, this could be really, really help me get started in the funny little company. So my dad, he did it like a card trick. Like, he didn't, he said, don't tell me, he said, pick a number, you know, don't tell me the number. So I pick a card, don't, don't, don't tell me what it is, don't show it to me. He said, pick a number, uh, you know, of, of how much, what's the, what's the highest amount you know, in good conscience, you know, without blushing and fainting, 
what's the what's the highest amount that you could command for for a day's work, you know? And so I said, okay, okay, and I kind of put that put that in my head, and I said, okay, I got it, I got it. He said, okay, double that. I said, what? No, 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 no. I, he said, come on, son. He said, look, you're 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 Canadian, you know. Uh, he, he he we all started Canadian, you know. He's been living in the states. So he said, you're Canadian. He said, you know, Canadians always underestimate themselves, you know, and uh, and you know, you're no exception. So come on, double it. I said, uh, 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 okay, okay, dad, but, you know, okay. And I said, I don't know if they'll go for it. He said, yeah, well, let them decide whether to go. You can always negotiate down. Let them decide whether to go for it or not. Don't you undercut yourself. Let them do it. Oh, okay, dad. All right. So, so I, I, uh, so the following day, I was, uh, we, we talked about all kinds of stuff. They came up with some more stuff that made me sound, made me feel a little more confident. And it sounded pretty loopy the first call. And I think the reception was better the second time they drove up to a higher peak, peak or something. And so in any case, it was all sounding a little better. It still had this credit card thing, which was, you know, pretty, pretty crazy, but it all, the rest of it sounded pretty good. So I said, uh, I said, okay. And they came to the end. They said, look, this is all sounding good. So, so the only thing is, uh, we never got to discuss your, uh, your daily rate. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Sure. As, as if, you know, I, I just had been an oversight, but now I had it worked out. So I told, so I told him, so I gave him the, this doubled number of the biggest number I could imagine times two. I gave him the number and they're like, oh, oh, okay. I thought, I thought, I thought I was just going to hear the phone slam down. They said, oh, okay then. Uh, and then uh, we got to the end of the call with some more logistics and stuff. And at the end of it all, just a minute, just before we got to talk about your money again. I thought, oh, here we go. All right. Okay. All right. So I'll give Aha, uh-huh, here we go. So he says, yeah, we got to talk about your money again. I said, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, no, you didn't tell me whether that was Canadian or U.S. Now, at that time, the differential was about, it was about a, a buck fifty. Like every, every, every American dollar was worth about a, a buck fifty Canadian. It was a very big, uh, you know, 1980, it was a very big difference. 1979. So I thought, in for a penny, in for a pound, what will my dad do? So I said, oh, well, uh, Bobby, I, I, I always, uh, I always quote out in, uh, in American dollars. I always quote out in U.S. dollars, Bobby, and I've never quoted anything before in my life. So he says, Oh yeah, well, that's what I thought. Okay. Anyway, never mind about any of that. And so on we go. So anyway, that was the start of me. I, I went up for two weeks. Then I get a call and I, I, I send a, oh, oh, I get up to the airport there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get up to the airport there. And I look around and the plane comes and, you know, the plane goes, there's a, a, a bunch of bags come in, people come pick up all their bags, the bags all go, nobody around, there's nobody in the airport. And I'm just standing there and I thought, wow, more fool me, man, you know, there's nobody here. I'm just, you know, there was one guy who looked kind of like a American senator type. And I, so I said to him, you wouldn't be a, no, no, nothing like that. So then nobody else. And so I thought, okay, well, I've really, truly been screwed now. You know, I've, 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 that's a lot of money off my uh, credit card to, to be standing here and a lot of disappointment and quite a little bit. I, I had nowhere to go. I had, you know, I had no idea of what to do next. And I was just standing there. Eventually, this kind of, you know, interesting looking fellow with a huge, big, thick eider down jacket came poking out from behind the cargo area. And I guess he'd been rustling with his video equipment or something. I don't know, but he came out and he says, hi, are you John? And I said, yeah, Brad. Yeah, yeah, it's Brad from San Rafael, California. 
he says, well, you know, it's nice to meet you, but he says, well, before we get any further, I got a whole lot of money for you, dude. And so he pulls out this, uh, he pulls out this envelope and hands me this great big sad envelope and I'm all good. They, they've given me everything that I spent up to there. Plus it was in- With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I think there's another 20000 in there just to kind of get us rolling. Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, money wasn't the problem. The problem was trying to find these Inuit for Never Cry Wolf. And I didn't know it at the time. I mean, I, I, I came to know... Carol Ballard, I mean, you know, for sure. But at the time, he was just a name, and I had no idea how exacting this search was, you know. And so, anyway, so I've been searched around. We searched around for two weeks. We searched around. And at the end of the time, we, we said, okay, that's it. We've run out of time. So so then um, the, uh, Brad Bradley is, is heading back to um, San Rafael and uh you know, uh, Carol uh, Ballard, you know, very, very close to that, like Santa Helena, I think, very close by. And so we head back and uh, he takes the tapes with him. So naturally, to you know, that's the most economical way that takes the tapes with him to share them with, uh, with Ballard and stuff. So great. You know, I think, okay, great. And, uh, and I, you know, I send along an invoice, I think, or something, and I head on home, and I just think, well, there you go. That was, it, it took, it, oh, yeah, it started off as one week, and it got expanded to two weeks. So I thought, wow, it's already gravy. Like, I got these two weeks uh, under my belt and a great credit, and how wonderful was that? So, you know, and that's the end of that. So I get this phone call, and they said, uh, John, we apologize. We haven't been completely uh, forthcoming with you. You know, we, you don't have the fullest information on what we've been up to. And I said, oh, well, really? Yeah, yeah. So I said, you know, uh, unbeknownst to you, we sent out three teams, three, you know, two other people like yourself. One went to Greenland, one went up into the eastern Canadian Arctic, oh, not just the eastern Arctic, but basically Arctic Canada. And another little team went into Alaska. And you, know, you guys are all searching away. But we didn't tell each team about the other teams. We just figured, just let them all do their thing. And they said, we looked at all the tapes. And uh, with your, I was trying to figure out how that was a bad thing. They're apologizing to me. I, I don't think it, it didn't seem material to me. I mean, I, I don't see, I do, you know, maybe they could have told me more. I didn't really care. And so they, I mean, it didn't, wasn't a negative. And so uh, then they said, uh, with your permission, what we'd like to do is get serious now. We would like to send you back north. We're retiring the other two teams and we would like to send you, you pick a guy, you pick someone, uh, you, Brad, Bradley was kind of, uh, 
burned out a bit, you know, from his uh, for from that that two weeks was a very 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 harsh and exacting two weeks, and he wanted a bit of a rest, which was totally understandable. And uh, so I picked a new guy, uh, Doug uh, Showquist, who had been a linebacker for the, uh, the the British Columbia, the BC Lions football team. And I figured he was a guy with some endurance and traveled all over the world all the time. He became a, he blew his knee, so he became a, a, a one of the camera team, the CBC camera team. You know, they loved him so much. They said, look, you don't have to leave the game just because you can't play in the game. Come on, get behind the camera. We'll teach you that. Just the, the, the nicest possible fellow. And uh, so anyway, he and I went, and this time it was like we got 10 weeks, 10 and a half weeks or something. Can you imagine now? So we go back and I said, well, where am I, where am I supposed to go? And they said, get, again, this sort of funny look, a sort of curious look of, what do you mean? We don't know. We don't know anything. You don't, you know where to go? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, no, I, I, first I want to go to Igloolik. I've always wanted to go to Igloolik. Oh, yeah, well, make your first stop at Igloolik. Okay, you, you set it up. And then, well, where else? Well, where, where, you know, where do you think, uh, where do you think the, the talented uh, people could be? You know, like, it's your show, man. You go, you go, you, you do it. And they're totally empowering. I couldn't believe it. You know, the last show I'd been on, which was the guy yelling at me and suspecting I was a cocaine dealer and all this. And, you know, it was just, you know, you're being ground to a pulp. And then all of a sudden they're saying, hey, you're the man. How much money do you need? You know, here, I'll give you another 20,000 in traveler's checks. And we'll give you this one. You know, and I had the authority to, I could uh, charter planes. And, which I did, you know, uh, sometimes and when it was practical and all that. So I, we did this epic journey all across the Canadian Arctic. Uh, just one little story. Doug Showquist, who was a, 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 a fearless traveler, he traveled all over the world, you know, backpacking in the Himalayas back before that was a your thing. And, you know, I just everywhere and uh, understood about uh, the customs in other countries. He was fascinating uh, fellow to talk with. And I just loved, I loved our, our, our time together. And so anyway, we, we chartered a plane and uh, the guy we chartered from, and I'm not going to mention a bunch of names here, but he turned out to be kind of inebriated and we shouldn't have been flying and all this. And uh, so, so we're flying along and we're in a little Navajo, like a, is it a Piper Navajo, whatever they are. So, you know, lots of visibility. We're not, we're not back and cooped up in some compartment. We're just, you look all around and there it is 360 and stuff. And so this pilot is flying along and I, my great good fortune, the only reason that I'm actually speaking with you today, Mike, is because my obsession when I was a little boy was maps, maps, uh, all kinds of maps and particularly Arctic maps, Arctic exploration, Arctic anything, you know, I poured over them and imagined, you know, now I've traveled over most, if not all of that area, but at the time it was, just, you know, and I got to know all the, and read about them through my dad's stuff and everything. And so I had a real strong shape sort of in my head of what that landscape kind of looked like. And we're flying along and I turn to the pilot and I say, that wouldn't be the tip of the Boothia Peninsula, would it? And he says, well, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, that's the, t- that's coming up. That's the tip of the Boothia Peninsula. I said, really? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, that's unfortunate because if that's the tip of the Boothia Peninsula, we've missed Pelly Bay. And he goes, oh, oh, that's not good news because he said, I got some other not good news, which is we don't really have very much gas left. And he says, I, and I don't know where, if that isn't, okay, then I don't know where Pelly Bay is. 
And I said, oh, okay. And that, so now Doug Showquist, he turns to me and he says, this is all going to be okay, isn't it? <laughs> oh, this, the intrepid Doug Showquist had a, a moment. He had a moment of, of fear, which you'd never see before or again. And I said, Doug, it's all going to be fine. And, uh, you know, so anyway, we turned, turned the plane around and we started flying back along our flight path. And I said to Doug, you know, you could help this thing out. You know, you just watch. I mean, watch for anything, any sign of, you know, civilization, any sign of human, human activity or anything like that. So we flew along and this guy's shaking his head. He's tapping the gas gauge. I mean, it wasn't, it all was not good. And I'm just thinking, okay, we go down in the Arctic in this little tiny plane. Wow. You know, like that's people have died before a whole bunch doing that kind of stuff. So anyway, we're, we're flying along, flying along. And all of a sudden I saw it. There was, I don't even know what it was. There was a triangle. And it was, it was like a, a hot pink, like a fluorescent orangey pink triangle. And I didn't know what it was, but I did know that it was human made. Like you won't see that in the Arctic in any other way. Everything else was so kind of bleak and under muted, understated tones. And here's this thing. So I go, there, there, that's it. That's it. There, there, there. And pointing. And, so, and the pilot, he just turned in that direction and dropped her down on fumes. And what do you think that orange, uh, orangey-pink triangle was, Mike? It was the tail section of a Canadian Pacific. They went out of business after that, but they, not because of that. But I mean, they, they, back when there was Canadian Pacific Airlines, a CP jet, and it was the, the triangular tail section of the jet. And the jet was all spooled up to, to go. And as we landed, the jet took off. And, uh, and other than that orange triangle, which belonged to the jet and took off, the rest of it was white on white on drab on you know it was like everything else it was like every other part of the Boothia peninsula right so we had that little window if we had i venture to say if we had gone forward by another minute that means it would have taken another that'd be two minutes you know because we would have had that much more time to try to head backward so let's say we still had the fuel there would not have been an orange triangle for us. So anyway, we had all these wonderful, and we got, okay, I nearly forgot this is probably the main point of the story. One of our two actors for Never Cry Wolf, the older fellow, Zachary Ikimangnap, lived in that community. So we dropped down there and we're standing there on the, he just left us on the runway, fueled up and fueled up and blah, blah, blah. And we we uh, started walking up the up the road with all these heavy heavy uh, video cases. We thought, well, we're going to do some casting here. And everywhere we went, we, we said to people, well, we're looking for someone to be in a movie. And they all said, oh yeah, yeah, Zachary. We said, well, it could be, could be, sure, it might be, but or it could be you, or it could be your dad. Or, no, 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 go see Zachary. So, oh yeah, and Martha goes, his wife Martha, go see Zachary and Martha. We said, yeah, sure, okay, but you know, you have a really interesting no. Go see Zach. So very, it became obvious pretty quickly that we're not getting anywhere. Like nobody in the rest of the town wants to talk to us. They got nothing for us until we've gone and seen Zachary. And he had been in a whole series of documentary films of, of the director, Asen Buliksi. You'd probably be familiar with them. I mean, if you saw them, you'd think, oh, yeah, that guy, you know, his ethnographic stuff, you know, very sort of famous, famous in a way for over a good many years, these university films. And so he knew his way around a camera and all that. And they just thought, well, you've come to our town looking for a movie actor. It's Zachary. Go see him. So that was our first interview there. 
And wouldn't you know, I mean, when uh, Carol Ballard saw him, in the end, I, I went to, uh, uh, and Doug and I went there, and then Doug headed home, and they kept me there to uh, show the films, all this footage, can you imagine, uh, between the first two weeks, and it was like 13 weeks of, of footage, it was a lot. And uh, yeah, and to share this in this little little motel room, a, a little hotel room, the Sleepy Lodge or something in in uh, in the White Horse in the Yukon, and uh, we sat and hunkered down in this room, and I spun tape for him. And when I say spun tape, this was a Panasonic three quarter inch pneumatic uh, deck. You know, there it's about as heavy as I don't know what. You know, so it's like carrying around an old Singer sewing machine or something, and so. I spun this uh, stuff, these huge tapes back and forth in that deck and uh, stuff. Ballard would say, okay, just stop right there. And then we'd skip through a lot of stuff, stop there. And I came to realize he had incredible focus and he was such a quick study. Like I would stop and try to explain something to him. He'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, look, keep moving. Come on, uh, uh, fast forward. Because he just, he would look, he was reading stuff on some other level. He didn't, these people were speaking in it, not in English, they were speaking in another language in ineptitude. And so I would try translating for him. He got it already. He didn't need to know what they were saying. Because well, once I'd said it, he yeah. Exactly. Okay, never mind. Okay, move on. And so we're zipping back and zipping forth. It's the only way we could have gotten through 13 weeks worth of material, as it turned out. But then he saw, he found the two guys. Like, I'd like to say I found them. I would love to say, you know, that I, you know, some kind of genius. I went around the Arctic and I found these two guys. But, you know, I was really more, when I think about it today, I, you know, I was like half you know, the guy who knows the Arctic and speaks the language and all that. And I was half a sort of a robot droid who was set out, you know, without really knowing what he was looking for, just to like interview everybody and, you know, see what happened. And one of the guys who was chosen, uh, Samson Gora, he would, would have been my pick for like the last, he was like the last guy imaginable. I thought he had completely blown his interview, like totally. And I, you know, at the time, he, he, well, we closed everything up. That was the interview before. I've told the story in the wrong order. The interview before the Pelly Bay and before we were nearly lost in the Arctic and we went and interviewed Zachary. And Zachary turned out to be the older, older man. But the interview before that, and there they are on the tape. I've still got the old tape. There they are side by side on the tape, one before the other. The last interview I did in Baker Lake before moving on to, to Pelly Bay or Kugav, as it's called today. I, the last interview was with a guy, Samson Jora. And we'd finished. We were done in Baker Lake. We had this little, uh, sort of a community center that the, the town had kindly lent us. And uh, we were packing everything up. And so, well, I should say Doug was packing everything up. He did all that stuff mostly. And he had the gear all packed up and he said, okay, you know, where to next, boss? And I said, I don't know. We're really at a sort of a crossroads here. I got to, I got to kind of make a move. I got to, I got to really, really think hard about, about sort of where to go next. So let's go back to the hotel. And I'll just, I was my own travel agent. I had a briefcase and I had all the schedules. There was no way you could sort of get someone in this house to do it. You had to just do it. You know, it was too, too dynamic, too fluid. So, so anyway, so I opened it. I was going to open up my little, little uh, briefcase and sit and go through all the the physical schedules and make notes and do all that. Just before I did all that, this guy stuck his head in the door and he was staring at us. He had his eyes bugging out of his head. In fact, he, he visually he impressed me. He had the look of a young Buster Keaton. 
he had this, this riveting looking, you know, he great big eyes and stuff, and kind of looking at me like that, all bugged out. So are you leaving and leaving? And I said, yes. I mean, a guy thought maybe he needed the room for, you know, a community bingo or something. I, I had no idea. So so uh, I said, yes, we are. Yeah, yeah. He says, oh, that's good. And I thought, wow, in in all our time up here, we have never encountered any rudeness, only welcoming, you know, and only friendliness. And here's this guy like, so are you leaving? Well, that's good. I thought, this is the first sort of sour note that I've heard, you know, and and uh, it really it really was uh, a little jarring, you know. And uh, so uh, I, I just stopped and I thought, it's either that or he's wondering if it's finished because maybe he missed it. Maybe he missed the chance to be interviewed. So I thought, that's let's try that. That's the only other thing I could think of. So I said, well, you you weren't here for to to be uh, to be for casting to be interviewed, were you? Oh no, he said, I I wouldn't be I wouldn't be a good uh, good prospect. He said, I'd probably break your camera. So I said, uh, so that's sort of interesting. So I said, no, come on, come on. Like, and I turned and looked at Doug and I thought, man, he's just spent 45 minutes packing everything all up to travel. And just on my look, you know, like without a word, he's, this is the kind of guy he was like without, without, without a word, he just turns back to his cases and starts opening them, setting up all the lights, doing the whole, the whole number all over again. And uh, that was Doug. And so in any case, so I said, Doug, please come and sit down. So we didn't have scripts. Like there wasn't, first of all, there was, I don't know how much of a script I was given. I think I might've been given some bit of a script, but it was a problem because, you know, the, the, the cross-cultural thing and it not being people's first language and all that, it was very stilted. I tried a little bit of that, having people sort of memorize a few words or, or even read stuff. That's the deadliest. And it was wrong. It was just all, like, like all you got. I mean, it sounded like a, you know, junior high school play rehearsal or something, just just the worst. And so then I put away the scripts and I said, okay, listen, you know, like, do you have something, you know, I, I, there were various different things, but I'd say, you know, is there something that happened to you in your life that, you know, some singular event, you know, that you'll never forget that you can, you know, bring it to life for us, like tell us a story. And I thought, you know, at least you'd get this person kind of recounting a story and, you know, maybe using their hands and, you know, whatever it is, you know, you, you'd get some sense of the character of the person. And so that, that was what I tried to do. So I said to him, you know, you got... We got anything like that, you know, and as we went across the Arctic, it became started to repeat. It turned out that in especially with the sort of senior hunters who we were looking at for the, the older man for, for the, the, the Utah character, uh, you know, the, their singular event almost to a man was that they'd fallen through the ice and the freeze into the freezing dark steaming black water and how they'd gotten themselves out of it and how they'd lived through it. Yeah, they were plenty animated when they when they told that story. And, uh, you know, then I asked uh, Samson because he was dying, you know, his interview, it was terrible. It was, it was like, uh, like halting and he was just sort of staring and, you know, faltering. And I just thought I, it was partly out of a sense of embarrassment because I thought, you know, with, with Doug, Doug is like the best of the best. And here I was, I'd just kind of given him the look and he'd just undone all the gear. And now we, we had this nothing interview and he was going to do up all the gear again. That's about an hour and a half of, of work there. You know, not that he isn't getting paid and stuff, but you know, if you, if you have crews since then, I've, I've come to have, you know, my own crews. And I realized, you know, it's not about that they're getting paid. You've got to respect, you know, you don't just waste people's time and just have them do stupid stuff over and over again. You know, after a while, 
you know, they're not that keen to, to, to do what, what needs being done. So anyway, out of respect for that, I just, you know, I felt kind of bad and I thought, let's try to make something out of this. You know, we're here, we're here and we've got the equipment all set up. So I thought I'm going to give it a push, you know? And so I said, uh, Samson, you know, like, uh, we need something more out of you. We, we, you know, give it a, give it a bit more of a go because we're not, we haven't really gotten anything here. And, you know, maybe you could tell us a story from your own life. You know, I mean, I don't know. Did you fall through the ice or something? You know, you, I, I don't know. You could tell us a story. A polar bear, you know, chased you out. I don't know what. Tell us, uh, tell us a story. So he looks at me and he looks at me and Mikey looks at me. And after the longest possible time, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. Let's just guess. 20 seconds. I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing. It felt like 11 and a half days. So it was probably like at least 20, at least 20 seconds. So he's looking at me and he says, and verbatim, he says, no, no, John. Actually, I lead a very boring life. And then he stared at me. Buster Keaton, as a young man, stared at me, stared at me, stared at me. And just his timing was such just beyond the one fraction of a second beyond as long as you would have thought possible. He breaks into this huge smile. He's having me on, right? He breaks into this great smile. And when he breaks into this smile, he reveals that, you know, half of his teeth are missing. You know, he's got this big sort of half-toothed kind of grin that he gives me. And I ended it up pretty much after that. And I thought, well, it's a nice, nice grin and, you know, whatever. And the guy's got a nice look in his face. But, oh, my God, the worst interview ever. And, uh, you know, and I apologized to Doug. And he said, no big deal, you know, whatever. And then we flew on, as I mentioned. You got the next part of the story. And we found uh, Zachary, the old man. When we get to Whitehorse with the tapes, we're going through this, we're going through that. And Ballard really stops at uh, at this guy, uh, Sampson, the young guy, who turned out he was a Class A mechanic from the Hamlet garage. He'd never been on camera before at all. He didn't want to be, didn't think about it. I don't know why he didn't even come down. And uh, so anyway, Ballard stops. He goes, wait a minute. Whoa, stop. Okay, stop. So, okay, back up. Okay, let's see that one again. So we're watching it. Okay, let's see it again. Just the last part. George, just the last part there. Let's see the last part again. And that was the part from when I, you know, I asked him if he had anything interest, any interesting story to share with us. And no, he, no, he's led a very boring life. And, and then the smile. He, yeah, just that. Okay. Okay. Let, let's watch. Okay. Okay. Hit play, play, play that. So we played that. And then however many seconds later, that's pretty soon over. He says, play that again. I, I would have to guess. Probably about 17 times, Mike, we replayed that short little bit of videotape, you know. He says, okay, wow, okay, just do that again. Play that again. And he kept doing it. And after a while, he said, I just got one question for you. Is he for real? You know, like, is he having us on? Or is he, like, is this him? Is this his character? Or is this like a... And I said, you know what? Honestly, I don't know. I, I do not know. He said, I said, I highly recommend if he, he said, we should have him out here, like fly him out, fly him out so we can fly him to Alaska. We'll be in Alaska, but then fly him to Alaska. And, and, uh, I said, you know, I said, I am, I really, really want to do a good job for this film. And I have grave doubts about this guy. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. You know, he's quirky, quirky. And he did this smile. He's got a, okay, quirky smile. I get it. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if he can deliver for you. So I said, what I'll do, if you don't mind, is I'll, I'll, I'll fly two people out. 
you know, and you start with him and see if he can give you what you want. And then I'll have another person who feels like, you know, sort of, a, you know, dependable, like maybe not as, as quirky, but, you know, someone who can kind of probably do it or whatever. And he, they agreed to that. He said, yeah, okay, that's, that's how we finally do it. So we flew him out and then this other fellow. And, you know, it became pretty obvious as, as, uh, as uh, Ballard started spending some time with uh, with uh, Samson Jorah, that you know he was going to be he was going to be it, and then later on they brought Ken Kesey. You probably know you know this stuff, right? I guess you, you've kind of looked into Ken Kesey was one of the writers on the picture. You know the the, uh, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Sometimes a great notion, all these amazing films. So up came Ken Kesey. I got to know him. That was another one of the great perks of this you know amazing job, and. Uh, we spent a lot of time together, but he spent more time with uh, Samson Jorah, as you can imagine. And they'd sit in the bar, maybe in Skagway, Alaska, or someplace. They'd sit in the bar there, the Red Onion Saloon, and uh, and uh, they would just talk about stuff, you know. And uh, one day, and then I would the following day, I would be delivering, you know, new uh, script. You know, the script now. Now it's certain parts of the script. They used to be goldenrod color, and now they're they're pink or something. So I deliver like the pink versions, you know, whatever, to to Samson. And I'd say, hey, Samson, you know, sorry, buddy, uh, this is for tomorrow. And, you know, uh, there's a bunch of lines like you've got kind of got to relearn because the, the script's been changed and stuff like that. And he says, oh, OK. And he takes a look. And he says, oh, can I see them? And I flipped it open and I showed it to him. He's looking at the lines and he started getting his quirky smile again. He says, these lines, you know, they're not going to be so hard for me to learn. And I said, well, that's good then. And he says, because I thought them up. And so it turned out, you know, and not to take a thing away from Ken Kesey, he was some kind of genius. He was just sort of like he is antennae, you know, unbelievable, out there and listening to everything and processing everything. And he would just pick, he might talk with Samson like for all evening, but then he picked out these two lines, you know, and one of them was where in the film where Samson says, that's what happened. He shows his teeth. What happened to your teeth? And at the end of his little story there, he turns to Charles uh, Martin Smith, you know, the the Tyler character, and he says, uh, that's what happens when a meat eater becomes a sugar eater. And, you know, it's like the greatest, greatest line. Well, he said that in the Red Onion Saloon to Ken Kesey, and Ken's there with his little notebook. He's like, whoa, another gold nugget, you know. So anyway, so so these are the things, I mean, this is the education for me, because, you know, in terms of the casting, like I found out about the casting through Carol Ballard's eyes, like when he started looking at the stuff and he was finding gold here and gold there. It wasn't the gold I thought I'd found, but anyway, anyway, I came, I came back with the gold. So I guess who cares, right? You told me that you spent two birthdays working on that film. I'm so curious. What did you end up doing after you worked on the casting part of it? So here we are at the sleepy uh, lodge in uh, Whitehorse, uh, you know, the Yukon at the, the very same time. And it's finished up, and I've added up all my, uh, uh, I've become friends with their uh, financial uh, controller, I guess their head accountant, Diane Austin, because I've been running it fast and loose, you know, 13 weeks of jumping into, uh, you know, 
chartering planes and doing everything in cash and all weird kind of stuff. And at the end of the whole thing, I sat down in the hotel room and I balanced the whole thing all up. And I came up with these, you know, envelope after envelope of all these receipts and funny stuff. You know, I had to buy muskox meat, you know, to give to somebody so that they, their family would be able to eat while he gave an interview. I don't know what, just any kind of weird stuff you couldn't imagine. And anyway, so she comes in and, and there's the, uh, the, the uh, associate producer, Walker Stewart, is there. And she comes walking in and she says, I'm going to like you. Diane, she says, I'm going to like you. I said, well, thank you, Diane. I, I think I, I'm going to like you as well, sort of thing. And she says, no, no. She says, here you are, you know, 13 weeks all over the Arctic, you know, ne- never sleeping as, as near as I can tell. And uh, this stuff, it, it's on to the penny. It's on, it's on, it's not, it's not one penny off. I said, well, I, I, you know, I try to be, I try to be, be precise. She says, well, I'll say. And anyway, so she kind of nods and she nods to the associate producer and he kind of nods to her. And then she, she clears off to go, go do her stuff. And I went to this lunch. There was supposed to be this kind of a brunch just after that. So here we are walking across this ghastly uh, red carpet they used to say in the old Gothic novels, the color that blood wouldn't stain, you know, kind of stuff. And here we are walk across and it's it's this Sunday brunch and it's, you know, all those uh steam tables, you know, whatever whatever you know, you know, the thing. And all these all these tables set up and the place is kind of pretty packed and the you know the Cry Wolf bunch have a like a couple of tables kind of in the center of the room. Uh so I say, you know, thanks a lot. And I've been working on I worked on my expenses and after that I worked on my uh my invoices and I was scared, you know, my invoice actually because of that whole thing about my rate and everything like that, holy smokes. It added up to like a for me then, you know, like a fair fair deal of money and and I thought, gee, they're gonna choke when they see this, but they they seemed okay. It was all okay. I think I must have underestimated myself actually, and my father was probably right. But in any case, so he thought, no, that seems seems okay. And so then while they were processing that and stuff, I was having some lunch with them. They just went on. It would come to the end of the lunch. It was very nice. It was a little bittersweet for me because it was kind of my last day with them. And I had, you know, come from, it had been a little bit of a rough start with them, you know, sounding kind of bogus, you know, phoning me on this satellite phone and asking me to use my own credit card and stuff. And it all, it had a kind of a funny, funny little start to it. But the more I got to know these people, every last one of them committed, you know, caring, committed, uh, you know, they're more, they're ahead of their time. I mean, they were really interested in the environment and in, in uh, preserving wildlife and every sort of thing that I really care about. And I, you know, they became dear to me, like, even though most of the time I was off scouting, but just, you know, the time that we started to spend together. And I thought, you know, I really could do with more of this. This is a, this is a noble company. It's a noble, noble, wonderful group of people. And I was busy thinking that, and at the same time, kind of pretty much saying my goodbyes. And they were saying, you know, hey, you did it, man. We got our cast. That was our biggest worry was, you know, we got this film we want to make, but the whole thing hinges on these these two Inuit, you know, if they're wrong, then, you know, eh, where do you go? What do you, where do you go with that? So they, so I was, you know, the, the fellow of the hour and so, and they said, well, it's, you know, it's been great. You know, it's just been great. I said, great. So we all shook hands and all that. And I started my trek across the horrid red carpet and uh, the door seemed to you know a mile or so away. And, and so I was just kind of walking away and I got myself very near the door past the steam tables there. And I heard my name being yelled, you know, John, John. 
And my only thought, Mike, was, oh, here we go again. Like, I've left something at the table. You know, my briefcase. No, I have my briefcase. Well, you know, send something. You know, I, I've goofed up. You know, I've kind of, and they come back, come back. You know, your notebook, man. You forgot your notebook. Or, yeah, I don't know what. So I went walking back a little sheepishly. I just thought, oh, yeah, like, you know, what, what, because it was very clear. This is over. And I, I would have loved to have just made it through the door and off to the airplane and, you know, just, you know, a lovely chapter, a lovely ending of a lovely chapter. And I got back to the table and they said, sit down, sit down. Like, we've still got your seat right here. Just here, have a seat, you know. And the gist of it was, they said, look, as soon as you left, you kind of left this hole. You left this kind of vacuum. You left us thinking, wait a second, you know, these Inuit, you know, like, do they speak English really? And I said, well, mm, somewhat, you know, I said, yeah, the young fellow speaks, you know, certainly some English, although he's stronger in his own, own language. The older fellow, not really at all. He might know three or four words. Exactly. So what are you doing leaving? Like, how, how's this... How's this all going to work? Like, we haven't thought this through. So, like, you've got to stay. You've got to stay. And I said, uh, ooh, no, I, I, don't, I don't think I can stay. I said, you know, I, I, I knew that this was all ending and stuff, so I've kind of made some, made some arrangements. And I've got this new company that I've kind of walked away from for 13 weeks, and I kind of, no, I, I, I kind of got to go. And they said, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 no, no, no. Uh, that's all wrong, you know? And I said, anyway, and, and fortunately I'd had, you know, I, I had joined the director's guild There's that, that little story I told you, it turned out to be key in, in, in all of this. And they had taught me a little bit about credits, you know, making sure that you got a proper credit, not just the money, but, you know, an industry standard credit for what you do, which would work, you know, towards your, your future because everything goes by reference in the film referral in the film industry and you got to be able to prove you say i was in that film see look there's my name in the credits and all that sort of stuff so i knew that much you know so then i said to them well when you say stay you know like assuming i could stay which i don't think i can but assuming i could stay like as what you know like the casting's all done and stuff like what you know well don't worry so much about that. You know, it's not really about that. It's like if you could just, if you could just like stay on, we'll just, you know, you can look after the Inuit. Like, you know, maybe I don't know, like, you know, take them fishing and stuff, and just kind of make sure they're happy. And you know, so I said, oh, so what would my credit be like? A Inuit happier upper, or like what? You know, like, and they're like, well, yeah, whatever. You know, we. we whatever you, it doesn't matter you know like we just we just realized that this whole thing you know you, you could leave and then like here we are with these guys you know how's this guy, you know even like if either of them doesn't understand like what's going on in the script you know like we're going to need somebody with them to kind of you know and it has to be someone who knows film because you know we could have a translator who's going to transliterate like well it says blah 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 but someone who kind of knows the shot and stuff and says, well, you just need to, you know, here's, you know, what, here's what you need to know. You don't really need to know the whole scene. You really need to know that, you know, you, this is what you're going to be doing. That's what they want to know and stuff. So anyway, so, so I said, uh, at that point, I said, well, I don't, I don't, you know, I, that's great, but it's not, I mean, I've got ambitions. Like I want to do more stuff in the film industry and I want it to be, have, you know, solid industry standard credits attached to it and stuff. So I think maybe like I've done my bit here, you know, and I'm going to kind of move on. And so they're like, don't go anywhere. Don't do, you know, 
sit there, just stay there. We've got to have some conversations. And so they went over two tables over. They're having this big conversation. They're having a conversation with somebody else because John Wardlow, who was the stunt double, who was the photo double and stunt double for uh, uh, Charles Martin Smith, was there. But he was a Directors Guild member out of the Vancouver you know, area. And there was some pushback because the company wanted uh, Ballard's uh, second assistant director, who's up out of America, Colin Michael Kitchens. He was called Mike. We called him Mike Kitchens, but he was Colin Michael Kitchens. And, and he's from around San Rafael as well and stuff. And uh, they wanted uh, him to come up because he'd been on uh, the Black Stallion, the previous picture, and knew the operating director's operating style and stuff like that. So they thought that'd be an asset. But there was some pushback in Canada saying, wait, hold it, you know. A second assistant director, we've got lots of people who can be good second assistant directors. You know, we've got to be, you know, you can bring in your producers and this and that, but, you know, hey, you know, and you brought in your first assistant director, but now, you know, like he really should take a, a Canadian second assistant director and all that, who's a Directors Guild member and stuff. So they're in the middle of, unbeknownst to me, I got no idea about any of that. They're in the midst of this great big flap about that because it's come down to, well, is, is Mike Kitchen stepping on an airplane or isn't he kind of? It's all, it's, it's right down to that. So that's all happening. And while they're in the middle of, of that kind of stuff, I'm sitting there at the table and just, just kind of, uh, you know, sharing a few stories as I want to do. And, uh, somehow or other, Maybe it's maybe I've picked up on some vibe or something. I don't know, but somehow or other, it comes into my head to mention that you know I I joined the Directors Guild of Canada. I joined the DGC, and at this table, you know, it's as if like I couldn't have gotten a bigger reaction out of all these people if I had whipped out a if I tasered them. You know, it was like it was like it was like what, and I'm like. Well, I mean, you know, I like when I joined the, the DGC and they go, what? I go, hey, stop doing that. Like, I mean, you know, it's not a, it's not that big a deal. Wait, wait, bullshit. And I said, whoa, come on. It's, you know, listen, I can reach into my wallet. I mean, if you got, I mean, if you're serious, I can reach into my wallet. I can show you I'm member number 1720. I mean, you know, it, like I have no reason to kid about anything like that. Show us, show us the card. By this time, I'm. <laughs> this is wow. I here I am I'm thinking this is a friendly bunch. This is like this is like even weird. So I I showed them the card. They didn't pick me up and and run me across the room, but they picked up my my DGC membership card, ran it two two tables over, and started blandishing it about. And they said, "This guy, John Houston, you know who did our casting? He's a DGC member." No shit. No, bullshit. Bullshit. I kept hearing, oh, bullshit. No, no. They say he's an Arctic guy. He's a Bassett Island guy. No, no, never mind. He's a, he's a director's guild member. Look at, here's his card. Oh, bullshit. So anyway, after a little bit, they come over. Everybody comes over to the one table. Is this for real? Here's the night. Uh, well, yeah. Yes. You know, why? I mean, why? Well, uh, they said, Aliba, this is uh, two, two conversations have become one. They said, first of all, how would you like to be the uh, second second AD, like an additional second AD on this show as a bargaining chip? Like if you'll agree to do that, it's a DGC position. You get your you get a huge upgrade because, you know, you've been a production assistant, a driver, as I told you the story, you know, eons ago. 
And now you'd be a second AD. Like, whoa, that usually that takes years to do that. Bang, you 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 jump. And uh, I, I'm like, yeah, but I don't know anything about how to do it. And yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. That's don't worry about any of that. You know, don't worry about this stuff. You you'll be the you'll be the second uh, second AD. We'll use you as leverage to bring in uh, Mike uh, Kitchens. You know, because he'll be mentoring you, right? Oh, and I'm again, I'm just a little slow, but uh, you know, I'm starting to get it. I see, so I'm kind of like a, a pawn on the chessboard. Okay, okay. I said I I could I could do that. I could you know, and I said, well, what what would I what would I how much money would I make? You know, well, whatever you're making now, you know, don't worry about yeah, don't don't bother us with those kind of details. So I said, well, that would actually might actually be okay. I'd have to you know schedule permitting and stuff, but that might be okay. So anyway, so then they got back to to uh, John Wardlow, and he said, yes, the uh, Directors Guild, would that would be acceptable to them if one of their members could be on as the second second. And then they said back to me, they said, don't worry about the duties. You can just go fishing, go fishing with the, the Inuit and happy them up. You can be their happiness enjoyment officer or whatever it is. But now you got your you got your credit, right? So like you're happy, right? So stay. So I said, listen, you know, like this is all wonderful, but I told you at the beginning that I've got this issue, which is that I've been neglecting my, you know, my my brand new business and all that kind of stuff. I've actually got to got to go back there. So I, so all of this is fascinating and certainly turbulent. It has been more flips and flops in the last half hour than I could believe. But I I got to head back to to Toronto. Okay, okay, okay. Look, I tell you what, I tell you what, we'll fly you back. We'll fly you back to Toronto. You go do your stuff. You know, you can you wrap it up in like, you know, five days. Go back, do your stuff. And then we're going to fly you. <clears throat> you know, we, basically they flew me around the continent. They ended up flying me back to the Arctic from, from uh, all the way east, all the way north, and then back all the way west to like join them again. And by that time they said, now listen, when you come back, there's no more stories about, you know, that you're, you've got to go home or you got to do, you, you go wrap your stuff up and then you're ours. And, and then you just stay here with us, you know, as long as we need you. And so I said, okay. And as long as we need you, there was an, an hiatus for, uh, for winter because it was too dark to shoot. And so there was some going back and forth, but basically I was there as long as I needed them. And that turned out to be, you know, that spanned uh, two birthdays and more and nobody ever talked about any change of rate or anything even though i had gone from being a sort of a daily nobody ever thought about it so i carried on for all that period all those months and everything at that wacky rate that nearly made my heart stop to to mention it and you know so at the end it changed my life because i i bought a a a building and put i bought art to put in it i started an art gallery and bought a company vehicle I bought all of this stuff came out of never cry wolf it was like you know to how to get your how to get your life started you know kind of thing i i owe a lot i mean i owe a lot to that picture mentally but i owe a lot to that picture in every other way too you can see why i stayed in the game it's like you know you don't need like you know you know how people will uh you know subscribe to i don't know what like netflix or something and they they try to watch like really exciting pictures or or maybe they go to a casino and they you know gamble a bit of money or they you know and they get get a get a jolt out of it well from my story you can see that you know this is like the best game in town like for a young guy who's you know like like you know wants like adventure and and all that sort of stuff it was just just getting through a day was like a a high risk a high high stakes poker game just just sort of making it from one end of the day to the other sort of thing so i guess i got kind of hooked on that 
And then the other part of it, because it isn't just an adrenaline thing, the other part of it was that there was a, combined with that sort of heady stuff, there was also this reverence. And that's something I want to mention about, about Never Cry Wolf, that these people cared so much, you know, about the, the fate of the wolf and all that sort of thing. And we were given this book to read, which was called Of Wolves and Men. Do you know it? It's by um, uh, Barry, Lope, Barry Lopez. And uh, Barry Lopez, a great, a great uh, wilderness writer. And Barry just passed away just like two weeks ago or something like that. And he was a dear, dear friend of mine. I didn't know him at the time. I got to know him through his work. And Of Wolves and Men was kind of revolutionary because it was really like helping you to sort of understand, you know, sort of the psychology and the place in, in the, the place of the wolf in, in our world, you know, and all that. And then later on, I got to meet him and I've traveled with, traveled the Arctic with him and all that and, and called him friend. And I was grieved, you know, to, to, to hear of, of his passing and all that. But I must say that that was one of the things that, you know, you had this sort of adrenaline on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you're sitting with Ken Kesey, you know, and he's asking you to, to translate for him because he's asking a question of the older gentleman or something. And then a little bit later, you sit down to try to absorb the uh, better absorb the words of, of Barry Lopez so that you know, when I'm working with the wolves, I'll have a, a better sense of their psychology and that sort of thing. So I had this little thing that I used to do on Never Cry Wolf. And that is when I went to bed at night, which would be late, I often would work 20 hours and then I have four off, 20 on, four off. And uh, so by, by the time I went to bed, I was just, there's nothing left. And all I had left before, you know, I'd hit the pillow and before everything went dark, the last thing I would do is I would, I don't know if praise the right word, but wish, you know, or something. I would express the wish to be more intelligent. I just thought, I, I wish, I pray that I will wake up a little smarter than I am today because, you know, like I just needed it in order to be able to grasp the situation uh, more fully. And then uh, Ballard, Carol Ballard would, would take a piece of paper and a, a, one of those retractable pencils that he had, and he would scratch, scratch a little rectangle, you know, uh, in the, roughly the aspect ratio that we were shooting in, and he'd scratch, make another little rectangle, and he'd put a couple of cryptic little, he'd put a little uh, sweep, it looked like a, maybe a, a Nike swoosh or something, with a little, a little sort of arrow at the end of it, and then I'll put a little bit of a circle, and intersecting the other one. And he'd say, well, you see, you see that Houston, and I go, <laughs> I see it, but I haven't the faintest idea what you're doing there, buddy. You know, like you better, you better talk me through it, because it turned out that I wish I had that. I bet he, of course, he kept it in his notebook. I'd love to have that today. That little swoosh intersecting the circle, as it turned out, was the guts of the caribou uh, scene, the scene where. 23 between 2300 depending on the day between 2300 and 3000 reindeer would be coming over the hill and they're going they're going up toward up from the lower left towards the upper right and then that we would sort of uh, intervene we would we would sort of intervene 
in, uh, we had uh, two helicopters, two Bell Jet Ranger helicopters, and uh, eight Alaskan uh, cowboys on Morgan horses, and 50 Alaskan uh, foot herders. And we would intervene, which meant that we would pop them up over the ridge. I was supposed to do all this. I would stand on a mountaintop. The the, the walkie-talkie was a 10-watt walkie-talkie, and it was too heavy for me to like carry and run around and do my thing. So I had a, a bearer. I had a fellow standing with me whose job was to carry my radio, if you can imagine. And so I'm saying, and then the, oh, he also had a marine weather radio because he would give me periodic, uh, you know, words as to what weather front was coming in so we could adjust our plan. And so I'd stand up there. I, I've jumped way ahead and I'm sorry about that, but let me just, just to keep this story rolling, tell you that I went from being second, second AD to being second AD. And ultimately after a bunch of training during this two birthdays that I had on the show, I became the first AD. I was the first assistant director. So Ballard would turn to me and say, this is the shot I want. And I'd have to go get it for him. Basically, I'd have to have to manage and muster all of the elements that we had at our disposal, like, for example, the 3,000 reindeer and the, the helicopters and whatever. And so I was in communication with, with them all, not the reindeer, but, you know, they rep, they're represented the herders and so on, and would pull that all together. And the thing that I was trying to create for the five cameras, A camera through E camera, rolling simultaneously, all positioned differently, what I was trying to make happen was this swoosh that intersected the circle because the idea was they'd be heading up up the hill. We would intervene in such a way that they would uh they wouldn't panic, but they'd get cautious. And when they get cautious, it would trigger this behavior they have, which is that they mill. They go from a, a line to being kind of a circle. And then we would try to be able to pr- predict where that circle was, have planted Charles Martin Smith, our hero, in the middle of where that was, hiding underneath an army blanket with a walkie-talkie. And I would say, now, Charlie, and he would jump up, revealing himself, and then the caribou would all, the reindeer, you know, would all start to freak out, circling around him, and he would be this naked man surrounded by thousands and thousands of caribou, and that was what Ballard, genius, had in his mind to do. But when he made that those little lines, the little uh, swoosh and then the little circle, it could have been anything. I mean, it could have been it could have been anything at all, but then as he interpreted it, I started to see, and then I started, you know, thinking, you know, if I, I just wish I was a little smarter about how to do this, but I guess all I got is what I got, so I'm going to do my best and try to create this phenomenal whole big thing that, you know, huge, huge kind of a thing. Of course, this is the day before, days before CGI. So, you know, there's no such thing as you're not going to say, okay, well, we just need, you know, 12 or 14 caribou for the foreground and the rest of them we're all going to lay in later or something. <laughs> no, everything had to happen absolutely for real. I mean, you just, you just film it. That's it. I take it Charles Martin Smith must have liked working with you since you two worked together again all those years later on the Snowwalker. I would surmise that he may have liked working with me. He he made a quote that I that I I really in a public very public setting that I really uh, really took to heart. And he told these two audi- two big audiences, two theaters full of people, one after the other. And he said, "I mean, I mean," he said, "If you're if you're doing an Arctic show and you have the opportunity to work with John Houston, why wouldn't you?" 
And I thought that was a kind of a nice, nice thing that he said. But what I, what I did with, with Charles and I, I hold him in very high regard. And that is that he was doing a lot of his own stunts. And that really, really scared me. It scared me, you know, as he was such a wonderful person. And it scared me because from a company perspective, because if anything happened to him, you know, you heard about uh, Tom Cruise was was doing his own stuff and he kind of broke his, I don't know, his foot or his leg or something. And the whole show, everybody had to go home for months while he healed because he's in every shot and stuff. And so I just thought, wow, you know, this is bad. This could, this would be bad every which way if, if he got hurt. So I did his uh, stunts. I test drove all the, Stunts, whatever they were. If a uh, Pilatus Porter aircraft was supposed to attack uh, Charles from below, like coming off of a lake, and he's up on a high promontory, and this thing would come heading straight at him, and uh, and it, he, it would just clear, it would just go up over his head, sort of more or less parting his hair as he was standing there with his shotgun, kind of thing. That's towards the end near the ending of the film. So I just said, okay, yeah, the, yeah, that sounds hairy. So I said, okay, here we go. Let's let's give it a try. So I went and stood stood on his mark, and we did that. And I <laughs> very nearly lost it. You know, here were these pontoons just kind of, you know, pretty much scratching my my beard for me. And then off it went. And so I kind of recovered my composure. And I turned to Charlie and to Charles, and uh, I turned to to him, and I said, there, see, look, I must be uh, what six or eight inches taller than you are, Charles. So, I mean, you know, like for you, it's going to be, for you, it's going to be a Donald kind of thing. <laughs> I tried to, you know, try to make light of it, but you know, that, I think that would have been a bit of a bond. Like, I mean, you know, Charles was out there and it's not like there was a huge, huge support group for all these things. You know, we were doing a lot of this stuff kind of, you know, on our own in the wilderness and stuff. And I think he, he would have felt like, I was there for him, you know, and which I truly was. And then when he called me up uh, 22 years later or something, and he said, look, he says, I've, I've written this uh, adaptation of Charlie Mullet's, you know, the snow walker. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to be uh, directing it. I think it's going to go. And he says, if it goes, I, I'd like you to come and uh, do it with me. I said, great. Well, let me, you know, send me the dates and all that kind of stuff and, and whatever. And uh, so he, he did, and I wrote him back a thing, and my schedule was crazy because I was doing a film of my own at the time and a bunch of other stuff. And so I wrote him this long, I composed this long email to him to saying, well, you know, depending on which date it is and, you know, as long as it works for this, where it all sounded a little bit legalese probably, but, you know, trying to just the truth of it, to, to just say to him that, you know, like I would, within the limits of my ability, I would like to try to help him get his picture done. And I wrote this big, long thing. You know, it's, it'd be like a, a page or two, you know, well, it's in an email. And, you know, I have this habit of checking just before I send something because, you know, those stupid little mistakes that, that, that creep in. So I just kind of scanned it. And as I was scanning it, I thought, boy, you know, this isn't really much of a of an old friend. Uh, this is more like a like a kind of a legal legal letter sort of protecting myself. The, you know, so the fortunate thing about emails is, you know, it might it might have taken me an hour to write it, but it took me about two seconds to hit uh, hit delete to soft select all and hit delete. Took me about another five or six seconds to say, Charlie, I'm there for you, your friend John, and I hit send. And I hit send very very fast before I could change my mind. As soon I hit send, and as soon as I hit send, I had this almost like a scream went through me. I thought, what are you doing? You're the world's most irresponsible person. You've made uh, all these undertakings, you know, to broadcasters and to insurers and to everybody. You're going to deliver this film you're doing and, you know, uh, all that. 
as director and all that stuff. And now you just want, you email this guy and say, oh yeah, I'm there for you. You know, kind of with, you know, open-ended, no schedule in mind, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I just thought, God, I've got to be, I have to be mental, mentally ill. And you wouldn't believe it. Like over the following, I gave a year uh, to that production and I went and did, did everything they required. And it would seem the schedule would seem wrong. It would all be, I'd be like, oh no, this is, and then somebody would phone and say, oh, well, there's been a delay. Like we can't start in this week. We're going to have to go a month later. I go, oh, 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 oh well, that, that'll work. Okay. Okay then. All right. And then we'd go ahead and we'd somehow get that part of it done. And we just, I was just on tender hooks. I just held my breath for a year. And at the end of it all, finished finished it all up. I, there was never a time that they needed me that I couldn't uh, couldn't come somehow or other weirdly, even though I was doing this whole other totally conflicting thing at the same time. So at the end of it all, there's this festival. My film is nominated for an international Emmy Award, and I mean, there's a there's some nice nice stuff happening. And so the the people, the broadcaster and stuff, they have this big party, big long table, and everybody's happy. And I'm telling stories, and you know, telling the story about the Snow Walker, and I and I said, you know, like that I had given a year to that production and stuff. And one of the fellows, everybody's laughing and smiling, and the wine's flowing. And uh, there's just one guy sitting there, and he's perhaps my 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 closest friend of the whole bunch, uh, uh, Charles uh, Charlie Doucet, and he was the sort of a maritime like the Nova Scotian uh, stringer for this uh, broadcaster, I guess. And he's just sitting there quietly. He's got a kind of a pensive look on his face, and he's not saying very much, you know. And he's letting everybody else do the talking, and they all kind of shoot their bolt, you know. And in the end, it's kind of. Ah, you know, we're all just sitting there and nobody's saying anything. And this quiet little voice, you know, Charlie says, uh, uh, Charlie Doucette says, John, you know, he said, there's just one thing I'm wondering about. He says, oh yeah. He says, what year was that? The year that, the year that you gave to the snow walker, what year was that now? And I thought, oh shit. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> you know? So, because uh, he's talking about, you know, I had a, I was contracted to them for that whole, you know, uh, for a sort of two year period of time. And, you know, when, mm-hmm. when was it that I went off and gave a year to, so I said, Charlie, and fortunately I a friend. So I said, Charlie, I said, did you ever miss me? Well, he says, it's not that, you know, but I said, no, was there ever a time when you looked for me and I wasn't there? And he says, well, no, John, no, 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 I couldn't say, I couldn't say that there was, I said, well, well then, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> and he and he, we moved on. We moved on to talking about other stuff. So there was some kind of a grace. I guess that story goes to say there was some sort of a grace that somehow presided over that. That, that there was something about that that I had. That there was a purity. This my old friend got a hold of me and said, "Can you help me?" And I said, "I'm there for you." And somehow or other, that got protected. They didn't. It's you know the the scheduling didn't turn me into a dirty liar at every turn. So I'm I'm grateful for that. Next up, we're going to hear from screenwriter Sam Hamm. I know last time we talked a lot about Batman, and 
when I look up your name, that's the thing that always comes to the top. You know, Sam Hamm, he worked on Batman. I am curious, though, this was one of your first gigs, if I'm correct, working on Never Cry Wolf. And how did you come to that? And, and if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you how you kind of got into the screenwriting business. Those are actually uh, slight variations on the same question, because Never Cry Wolf was the first actual production that I ever worked on. I've you know, written a couple of spec screenplays and stuff like that before, but the way I got into it is is actually kind of hilarious. It is a fluke that I'm in the, the movie business at all. I had a couple of buddies in the late 70s, and we were all sitting around semi-employed with and not much to do, uh, sort of like as, you know, as people in the pandemic of today. We decided that, you know, since we had a lot of free time, maybe we should put it to good use and we would hole up in a room for, you know, 10 days and see if we could write a screenplay. And we actually did. And it was a, a, a pretty bad screenplay. It was about a, it was about a new wave band and, you know, various shenanigans and so forth and so on. The weird thing that happened was one of us had a good friend who was the daughter of Jay Presson Allen. And I don't know if you know Jay's name or not, but she was a pretty influential screenwriter in her day. She wrote Hitchcock's Marnie, and uh, she wrote uh, Cabaret, and she wrote Prince of the City and all of this kind of stuff. And it turned out that she had a development deal with Warner Brothers. She was partnered with Sidney Lumet, and you know they were going to do some pictures together, and they were also going to develop some other projects on the side for, for Warner's. Two of us were horrified that the third guy had taken our crummy first draft and shown it to Jay's daughter because we didn't think it was ready to be shown yet. Then we found we were even more horrified because we found out that the daughter had passed the draft on to Jay. And we were, you know, we were sort of like holding her out as our big hope. You know, she was our she was our best connection to the movie business. And we were furious that this guy had, you know, just kind of gone in behind the backs of the other two of us. He was very self-assured, you know, he thought, well, you know, we have this craft, why not show it to people? The big shock came when Jay actually bought it for next to no money. She took out, took out an option on it. And, you know, it was, it was basically enough to uh, pay our rent for three or four months each. And so, you know, we were, we were very excited by this development. And the thing I did not find out until a couple of years later. I don't think it was the quality of the screenplay or the appeal of the idea or anything like that. But Jay's daughter, who was, you know, our sort of connection to Jay, was at this point seriously thinking about moving to Kenya, where she wanted to work with the Kenyan National Theater Company. And Jay was looking for an excuse to keep her daughter in the United States. And so she made her the she made her the associate producer on this script, which her, her daughter had brought to her. <laughs> I swear, I think I think to this day, the only reason I'm in the movie business is because Jay did not want her daughter uh, to go and join the Kenyan Theater Company. <laughs> but anyway, to uh, get back to the second part of this story. Jay had done a couple of drafts of Never Cry Wolf, which her husband, Louis Allen, was the produce, one of the producers on. Louis Mall had been attached to it, and they were all set to go with Louis Mall, and they suddenly had financing troubles, and it got too late in the year to shoot. Part of it is it's because it's a movie set in the Arctic. There's only a very small window of time every year when you can shoot. You're basically 
you basically have from like March to August. And, you know, after that, there's no hope of having a film production. You know, there's not even enough light during the daytime to shoot a movie up there. During the hiatus, they lost Louis Mall. They brought on Carol Ballard. And once Carol Ballard was attached, Disney came in as a financier. So the movie Never Cry Wolf became actually the first independent acquisition that was ever released through Disney. It was the first movie they ever released that they hadn't made in-house. Because Jay did not want to go up into the Arctic and hang out with Carol Ballard and a bunch of wolves for several months at a time. She was looking for you know somebody young, cheap, and valuable to uh, throw into this job and came to me and said, would you like to talk to these guys about it? I said, sure. And I went in and took a couple of meetings with uh, Carol Ballard and the other people in the, in the production. And he gave, <laughs> we had one meeting where he gave me, he gave me this wolf stare. He, he gave me what, is, what I found out later was the famous Carol Ballard wolf stare. He sort of like turns and stares at you and he, he gives you this look sort of like, ooh, is this guy going to kill me and eat me right here? So I sort of like looked right back at him, you know, not aggressively or anything, but sort of like, uh, you know, <laughs> and how are you today, sir? But uh, apparently he liked the way that I looked back at him. So I got the job and I was I was up there for two stints. I think I was after Jay and before Ken Kesey who was on the project for about uh, he was on it for about six weeks. I was up there in the spring and then they said, oh, we're, we're bringing on Ken Kesey. And I thought, all right, well, I, you know, I can't can't compete with Ken Kesey. And I went back to my apartment in Brooklyn. And I was just sort of goofing around. I said, well, you know, keep working, keep writing scenes and stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, why, why, why am I going to write scenes? You know, Ken Kesey is up there doing screenplay. So I get this frantic call one weekend and they say, well, we found Ken Kesey face down in the bathtub and he was tripping and he almost drowned. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in Skagway, Alaska, you had managed to come across some bad LSD. <laughs> they called me up and they said, bring all the work you've done. I'd been back in Brooklyn for like a, you know, a month and change. I hadn't done a lick of work. I hadn't done any work. I said, well, you know, I have to like, you know, I have to, uh, uh, I have to, I have to do some stuff before I can come up, but I can come up like, you know, next Monday. And so I spent the next, you know, uh, 48, 72 hours straight just trying to, you know, crank out some stuff that looked like I had actually been working on a script and over this, over this time period. And, and uh, that's how I got to be on Never Cry Wolf. The picture was in production. For a year, I guess, in 1980, they ran out of good weather and had to go back the following spring to do reshoots. And so I think before they were done, they actually had a total of something like 10 writers, including screenplay writers and narration writers. We had one of the biggest credits that the Writers Guild has ever awarded because we had three screenwriters on the screenplay credit and then three writers on the narration credit. And, you know, they had, it was, it was, it was wild. They had all kinds of different people that I think they had Michael Herr come in for a while. The guy that wrote dispatches, the Vietnam book, he tried to do some uh, voiceover for it, which he had also done on apocalypse. Now it was wild. It was not a writer's showcase. I'll put it that way. If you look at the shooting continuity where they, you know, do a shot by shot thing with, um, you know, all the dialogue, all the action, et cetera, et cetera. It was only about 43 pages long. And most of it is you're out in nature and it's, it's quiet and something happens and maybe you hear a wolf howl or something like that. But, you know, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of thing where you go, go and see it. It's come along and say, Hey man, that was a sparkling witty screenplay. 
I was like, you know, 24 and I thought, okay, hey, great. I've got my name on an actual motion picture. This is incredible. My career is underway. And then I discovered that I, you know, couldn't get a job of any kind for like the next three years. So it goes. I mean, the movie didn't, movie didn't come out until 1980. I want to say four. It might have been 1983. Somewhere in there. It took, it took about three years to come out because, you know, the first cut, the Carol was, was a documentarian. That's where he started out. He was used to basically constructing a movie from 10 tons of footage. You know, he would, he would go out and he would shoot as much as he could on, you know, whatever the subject of his film was and would come back and put it together. And it would kind of evolve as he got more footage and more stuff to add. And as he, you know, found new ways of putting it together. And so, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of good training for me because the movie was kind of changing in his head. You know, every few days as he as he got more stuff, you know, he would he would start to have new ideas and he would start to see new ways that the story could be told. And it was the first movie I'd ever worked on. And so, you know, I didn't know that there were guys who just kind of like, you know, went out and shot the scene. The scene didn't turn out the way they liked it. They went back and shot the scene again, just tried to make it fit to a pattern. He was he was always trying to sort of find the patterns that would make the movie hold together. It was good training for me, good experience. It's uh, one of those situations where you never quite know what's going to happen on the location. You never quite know whether you're going to get the footage you need. And so you may have to sort of change the whole approach at the last minute. We had one stretch. There's a, a scene in the movie where Charlie Martin Smith is doing a bit where he's marking territory. And he's he's going around. He drinks He drinks tea and he pisses on a rock or something like that. He's waiting to see if what the wolves will do when he starts when he starts marking their territory. And so we just needed we needed a shot of a wolf taking a piss on a rock, which seems like it should not be should not be that hard to get, except we shot for a fucking week and a half all day, every day, trying to get one shot of our three main wolves pissing on a rock, and we could not get it. Could not get it. And Carol was going, you know, more and more frantic every day because, you know, <laughs> we were, you know, we were paying the whole crew to be out here. And it seemed, you know, it was, it was like the wolves were holding it, you know, holding it in just to mess with us. I mean, they, they put Gatorade in their water. They did everything they could think of. If you watch the movie, you will see there's a moment when a wolf goes up and pisses on a rocket. What is actually happening? is that his leg is being jerked upward by a wire. He doesn't lift his leg in the way that a wolf would normally lift his leg. He just happens to be passing a rock, and all of a sudden his leg jerks upward. And you cut away very, very quickly, very quickly, very, very quickly, you cut away to Charlie Martin's face, sort of nodding sagely as you hear the sound of wolf piss hitting the rock, dubbed over the shot. It was, you know, it was, there you go, man against nature, Carol against, against the wolves. You went up, you came back, you went up. How long was that period from the first time you went up there to the last time you got back? I think it was about five months. Five months with, you know, with an intervening month because it was, uh, I was up there from like March through May and then came back like at the end of June and stuck around until uh, mid August probably would be my guess. You know, I would, I would have to, I would have to check that out to tell you for sure, but. Yeah, I was up there for a good long stretch. We started out in northern British Columbia. We were actually out in the, the wilderness when I first came on to uh, the picture. Everybody was living in uh, uh, trailers 
we then came closer into civilization. We were out in Nome for a while, which is really interesting because, you know, Nome, if you look at Alaska, you know, it looks sort of like a profile of a face with a nose sticking out in the middle. Nome is on the nose and the roads in Nome only go about 30 miles outside of town and then they stop. You know, everything that comes into Nome comes in by air. There is no real ground travel or anything like that. And it's actually closer to what was then the Soviet Union than it is to any sort of major population center in Alaska or Canada. We were out there for a while. That was a pretty bleak place because it was populated almost entirely by miners who wanted to go out and make a lot of money in a short amount of time and didn't care how miserable it made them. They just wanted to stockpile some money that they could take back home or send back home to their families. Any night of the week, you would go into a bar at 5 o'clock and uh, order a beer. And by 5.30, most of the people in the bar were so drunk they were face down already. Kind of a bleak environment, I would say. You know, But the cool thing is we were part of the time we were we were hanging out briefly in Skagway and Juneau, mostly in Skagway which was the port of access for uh, British Columbia. And it was weird in 1980 because there was, the U.S. had an embargo, a trade embargo with Russia. And, you know, the, the big deal was we couldn't uh, take part in the Olympics. The port of Skagway, because it served British Columbia, was the only port on American soil where Russian ships could dock. So as a result, the crew would be out shooting and I would, I would usually be, you know, back in my hotel room writing whatever they needed, waiting for the next phone call. Hey, we need some this, we need some that, so forth and so on. And so I would usually have some free time in the afternoon and I'd go over to one of the bars and shoot pool. And I got a chance to shoot pool with not only Russian sailors, but red Chinese sailors, which was highly entertaining. You know, I thought, hey, hey I'm a small town kid and here I am in Skagway, Alaska, shooting pool with Russians, red Chinese. Didn't foresee that happening. Put it that way. I had a chance to read uh, a draft from, I think, like June 79. Jay's name was on it, and Curtis Hansen's name was on it. And there are familiar beats, you know, like uh, the mice uh, waking him right. up. Mm-hmm. And just like there, there's certain things that I'm seeing in there. But it was still Farley Mawat's name as the main character. He hadn't been Tyler yet. And there were other, of course, differences as we went through there. When you got on there, what was the script like? And then what were some of the things that you added into it? The draft that you read is probably pretty close to the one that was in existence when I came on, because I think um, the original one is, uh, the original one is Hanson. Jay had uh, done a couple of, a couple of sets of revisions. Richard Kletter wound up coming on the year after he came on for the second year of shooting at some point after I was on it. And so the credit on the movie is uh, Hanson, me and Richard Kletter. The stuff that we added, a lot of it is just basically stuff that we found when we were making the movie that was was interesting. The whole sort of subplot with the Inuit hunter who is trying to get his teeth replaced was basically result of casting that actor. And he, after a couple of weeks, did not want to be on the production at all. He was not enjoying himself. And the way that they kept him on the production was to promise him that his teeth would be ready by the time he finished his part, by the time he finished his shooting, he would get the uh, 
he would get the false teeth. That subplot is one that was actually working itself out on the set as we were going along. But, you know, it's a, a, a lot of it uh, was just a, a matter of we have this situation or we found this trying to adapt to what's there, what we have. There was one moment that I remember vividly where there was a scene held over from Jay's draft. And it was a scene where Charles Martin Smith is sitting around a campfire listening to all of the Inuit telling sort of, you know, their various tales, creation tales, and so forth and so on. Jay had put something in there about Lake Kuiak. And so I thought, all right, that that seems like, you know, that seems like a, you know, a good piece of grit. Or, you know, so I assumed, I figured there was a Lake Kuiak. And so I uh, I threw Lake Kuiak into the scene when I was doing a rewritten version of it. And I walked over to the set that night. They were they were shooting indoors in a warehouse. The Inuit actors start laughing and pointing at me and like, you know, elbowing me, all kinds of stuff like that. And I'm I'm going to like I'm going to the assistant director and I say, Hey, what's what's going on? What's so funny? And they said, Oh, well, they figured that was you. Kuyak is the Inuktitut word for fuck. So you have them you have them telling some story about Lake Fuck. And I went like, I didn't even I didn't even do it. I'm innocent. I swear. I didn't know. It, apparently, uh, apparently, it seemed like something that I would do. So nobody believed me. Go figure. Have you always been a troublemaker? <laughs> I didn't know I was. You're in Alaska, which I've I've never been to Alaska, but from what I've seen, it's gorgeous. But what was the weather like? Was it was it a okay shoot? Was it miserable? Because just the story about the wolf not raising its leg for five days sounds like it could have just been a nightmare. It usually wasn't too terrible. I mean, we had we had stretches where it was quite cold. I mean, when I when I first landed, it was you know it was parka weather. You know, everybody had their you know fur lined hoods up, all that kind of all that kind of stuff. We were there for stretches when it was fairly balmy. You know, you could go out in a light windbreaker or something like that. Other times it was just cold, but yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly beautiful. I mean, I got to see. Got to see the aurora borealis at night, at night for long stretches, which uh, is one thing you don't forget. The landscape is just beautiful. You know, we were shooting in Skagway, which is sort of an enclosed harbor on three sides with mountains around it. You understand why the cruise ships and stuff like that all want to come up there and stop. I mean, that was the main industry of Skagway was tourism. And, you know, so the, the streets are basically, you know, bar you know, knickknack shop, uh, souvenir shop, bar, burger joint, bar, knickknack shop, souvenir shop, scrimshaw shop, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, and, you know, then you'd pass, then you'd pass someplace where they do like a nightly show where they dress up like the gay nineties and so forth. So the whole town existed. They were importing people every summer to come and staff the hotels because, you know, that was the, there was a little stretch when they could make a lot of money and it was you know basically from may through august every year you know after that stretch of clement weather and sunlight ended you couldn't get people to go there for love or money so you were up there in 1980 the film doesn't come out until 83 what are you doing in the meantime and and do they even have the courtesy of like hey we're having the premiere come on out sam let's do this oh yeah sure you know we we kept up with it but the first cut of the movie was four hours long and it didn't have any wolf footage. <laughs> you know, Carol, Carol had not gotten around to the part where you insert the wolves into Never Cry Wolf. 
as, as you would expect, it was kind of, you know, changing and evolving over this period of time. And it took, you know, it took 1980 and 1981 to shoot the sun. And, and then they were trying to figure out how to make the narrative work because so much of it is internal. You know, it's basically one guy. It's one guy who is alone in the wilderness. And, you know, we kept trying to come up with ways to get the sort of necessary exposition across. You know, he would talk to himself. He would talk to the wolves. He would, you know, all of this, all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, because Carol was violently opposed to using voiceover, you know, then there was a point where they just kind of threw up their hands and said, well, we got to use some voiceover. And they did. And, it, you know, it, it worked fine. I mean, it's not intrusive. It gets you over some of the rough spots in the narrative where you don't quite know what the heck is going on. Sam, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Oh, it's easy and fun. Happy to gas on whenever, uh, whenever I get the chance. Up next, we're going to hear from screenwriter Richard Clutter. This was one of your earliest credited gigs, and I'm very curious how you got into the business and, and how this one came about for you. I was kind of a public policy grad student at Stanford, and I had always wanted to be involved, always loved movies, and I sold the script when I was an undergraduate, actually. Some French director, I think he may have stiffed me on most of the payment, and I don't know if it ever got made or not, but I remember having fancy dinners at the St. Regis and other places in New York, and, you know, and I was I was pretty green. I think I was like maybe 19 or something. I had no idea, and I also didn't understand that screenwriting was a career. I met these guys in San Francisco, including Gene Corr, who had a kind of film collective called Cine Manifest. I had made an educational film with one of them as the cameraman, and I fell in with them, and we wrote a, I think Gene and I maybe, and maybe somebody else wrote a script that, you know, we got a call from Martin Scorsese's agent, and I had no interest in moving to Southern California, but eventually I did, and wrote something that got me hired to do the Black Stallion sequel. That sequel was written with the first one in mind, so very spare, you know, not abstract. I mean, it had a coherent narrative, but very sparse. And the executives on the project who were, you know, I think Lucy Fisher was one of the executives, and I don't want to castigate Lucy. She's a very good executive and a good person. But she wanted a more commercial version, a more accessible version, feeling that Carol had covered that in the first movie, and this was going to be directed by the Academy Award-nominated editor of the first movie, Bob Dalva. And I refused, basically, to do it. So they went to Steve Zalian, and Steve Zalian refused, and he said, you should shoot this. Just shoot it. Don't You don't need to touch it. And that was not the answer they wanted to hear, so they found a very nice guy to tart it up, basically, to put in, you know, other characters and jokes, and I was in great pain when I watched it and considered taking my name off it actually, but didn't. And Carol read my script and hired me to work on Never Cry Wolf. You know, it was fairly early on. I, you know, I'd had a couple of jobs for hire. Tony Bill, the producer of The Sting and other things had a kind of mill 
at his very fancy Venice address, and he, you know, would option scripts in lieu of paying writers to write them. And, you know, Bruce Paltrow lent me his office and in that building, and there were various other people um, who came out of that shop. So I wrote a script there. And, you know, I wrote a couple of scripts on spec. I, I was a good talker and, you know, was really learning how to write a screenplay. So if I got in the room, I had a pretty good chance of getting the job, even if my work wasn't up to maybe the level of some of the competition. I learned how to be a good writer, but I didn't start out that way. Anyway, on Never Cry Wolf, I was a relief pitcher. Carol, I think, would have gone through an inexhaustible supply of writers, but Disney finally said no. I mean, Gene worked on the narration, as did Carol's wife and, and Charlie Martin Smith as well. But I was the last script writer to work on it, as far as I know. And certainly no others got credit, no others contended for credit. You know, he has a sense of images, whether he seeks them out in advance or responds to what he finds, that is just as beautiful and as poetic without being sentimental. And that's his real gift, to be moving but not sentimental, as anyone I can think of. You know, that's kind of the first thing I think Sam would probably say something similar, that you trust Carol to find a poetic and visual way of representing something without being saccharine in any way. And But Carol's also a kind of example of the intentional fallacy, in that if you ask Carol what movie he is making, he will not have an answer that corresponds to the movie he is making. For example, he described The Black Stallion as a realistic movie. It's a wonderful movie. It's a brilliant movie. It ain't realistic. So one of my jobs was to I'm the opposite of him, was to ground the the story, the character and stuff as much as I could in, you know, some narrative structure. He he wasn't indifferent to it. He just didn't think that way. And a funny story, we were, um, Carol and Brian Denny and Charlie Martin Smith and Hiro Narita and I were at a resort called Two Bunch Palms in the desert. And we were working on, you know, rehearsing and working on scenes and stuff like that. And they had these hot pools and... Carol is, and I are standing in a hot pool, and who comes swimming up to us underwater uh, is Curtis Hansen. Uh, I knew Curtis. We sort of hung out a little bit together in Venice, and Carol had never met him, and Curtis worked on it years before Carol was involved. So that was how Carol met Curtis Hansen. Curtis popped up to say hi to me in this pool, and I was standing next to Carol. Where was the project at at the time? Because I know when I talked with Sam, he was saying that he went up to Alaska for, I think, four months in, I want to say it was 81 or 82. I think it was 81. So when was this that you got involved? This was 82. Carol had shot some of it and stopped, maybe because of weather, but also because he didn't know where the movie was, frankly. And this is not in any way a reflection of Sam's script. It's just this reflection of Carol's kind of wandering interest in narrative. So, you know, I joke with him all the time that if I could get the structure right, and that, I'm sort of, that's kind of, I'm really good at that. And so I think he and Lucy Fisher both appreciated that. And, and they were hoping that I could provide some of that for the movie. So, for example, the Mike narrative, you know, Mike getting his teeth and selling out the wolves to get his teeth, that was something that we could, he'd found Mike along the way. And Carol is brilliant at seeing something and saying, I'm going to use this and take advantage of it, even if I have no idea how to do that. So I was presented with the problem of finding a way to use Mike. And so that narrative of Mike selling out the wolves 
to buy his teeth was something that evolved from that. And, you know, again, I, I was an instrument trying to be useful to Carol in helping him think through what he had and what he should concentrate on when he went back to shooting. He's going to do what's in front of him. But if you lean on him a little bit and say, no, you really ought to do this. And I, I felt free to do that. And he thanked me for helping provide structure to the story because I, I was kind of insistent about that because that's why I was there, really. You know, he didn't need me for poetic visuals or atmospherics or even wonder and all the things that are so wonderful about the movie. Uh, he needed help shaping what he had and giving direction to where he needed to go. And that was my job. That's how it was explained to me, kind of, and that's how I saw it. And that's how Lucy thanked me for it after and Carol thanked me for it after. When you come on there, do they screen what they already have and kind of say, these are some of the building blocks that we have? Yes. Now, it wasn't edited, really. I mean, so I can't remember. There may have been some sequences that were put together, but I don't think so. I think it was just looking. So, I, for example, I saw Mike and Hutek so that I would have a sense of them. The scenes that are purely visual, I had really nothing to do with those. Carol didn't need my two cents. I, I offered it freely, but he didn't need it for any of that. that I didn't see that as my job. He was gr He was groping for a way to go. And my job, in part, was to sift through them, contribute my own, and keep Carol from wandering too far off whatever path we could find for the story. Because he would see things that were, you know, fantastic. And you'd say to him, Carol, that's fantastic, but what does it have to do with where you want to go and need to go, given what you have? So, and he would grumble. Um, <laughs> his wife was a lovely, lovely person. Um you know, I would say, okay, Carol, we're, you know, done now. And Christine would, Carol would grumble, kind of, and Christine would say, Carol, Richard's leaving now. Say, good night, Richard, and thank you. <laughs> and he would mutter, good night, thanks. <laughs> but it wasn't personal in any way. He didn't dislike me at all. Um, it was just how he is. So I was, you know, I was not threatened by any of that. I was amused by it and was and arrogant enough not to be cowed by it. So I have one funny story, which I don't know if anyone has told you, but is in a way my favorite story of the of the shoot, and that is the, the, the caribou scene. Now, they were driving the caribou toward a riverbed or some body of water, and they were preparing to shoot them there. Very elaborate process getting them there, and they were told by the wrangler who told the AD, well, this, this is a great place because the caribou won't swim. So what happens, they herd this caribou toward the water, and the caribou just all go in the water. <laughs> they can swim, it turns out. And so you know, they lost a week of shooting because of that. Carol's looking at the AD, the AD's looking at the wrangler, and the wrangler kind of shrugs and said, I didn't think they could swim some version of that. Obviously, you did go on location, though, and I'm curious about that, your experience with that, and how long that was. I didn't really go all the way up to where they were shooting. I went somewhere up there, but I didn't go actually as far as the set, which was a lot further. I didn't go on the set because he was, he was taking time. Also, I don't think he wanted that at some point, not because he didn't want me around, but because he, he had to finish the movie. And, um, in fact, we actually tried to do another movie together immediately. As soon as we were done, we went to Disney and said we wanted to do something with something, something wicked this way comes. And we pitched them our version of it. 
Uh, and they said, no, they didn't think it was a Carol Ballard movie, basically. So, you know, we, we got on fine, but I wasn't around for him actually shooting. I was kind of, I was kind of near base camp and shooting was, you know, yonder somewhere. I barely remember any of that, but because we were at a lot of places, we were up in Nevada, we were at Skywalker Ranch, we were in the desert, we were, you know. What were you doing at Skywalker Ranch? Was that post? That's just where we had some meetings while he was on hiatus trying to, partly because of weather and partly to figure out what movie he was making. At what stage is the project when you finally leave? Because you were talking about there's narration that gets written. I imagine that's well after you go? Well after, yeah. I don't know that there was any plan for narration at the time. I think when they looked at the movie, they realized they needed some. Carol knew Gene, and so Gene got the job. I mean, I wasn't part of that at all. I was long gone by then. I, I think it was a considerable time after. My guess is, and I don't know this for a fact, Gene could speak to this or maybe already has, that the movie was put together largely, and then they realized they needed access to Charlie's inner life, you know, had to figure out a way to, if they couldn't dramatize it, to talk about it. So what was it like for you to see the whole movie come together and to actually see it on the big screen? Carol and I went to the Academy screening, which was a huge success. It was an interesting experience for me because, you know, I was relatively young and new. And, um, you know, first you want to get a job, then you want to get a movie made, and then you want to get a movie made well. And that happened pretty early in my career. And so I thought, oh, is this it? Because Carol and I are standing in the lobby together and people are coming. All kinds of people were there and congratulating us and, you know, um, especially Carol, but, you know, me as well. And then I went home and I thought, well, is this what I've been dreaming about for, <laughs> you know, these last few years? Is that it? Is my life different now? You know? It doesn't feel different. You know, I had I could get better jobs and things like that, but which turned out to be true, but it didn't change my life, really. I'm mean, not in ways that I could feel emotionally or psychologically. It changed it materially, but it, I, so I remember being stunned by it. I don't think I wrote a word for three months. I think I was just trying to say, okay, well, that's, you know, this, is this the apotheosis of my dreams? You know, <laughs> this is as good as it's ever going to get. And in some ways it was. So I thought, well, what do I, what do, I do now? I don't know if other people had related experiences on other projects, but um, that was certainly mine. It was, it was a very vivid experience. It's time to hear from narration writer, screenwriter, Eugene Kaur. So I want to ask you about Never Cry Wolf, but do you mind if I ask you kind of how you got into the business? I'm very curious about Over, Under, Sideways, Down. I started working in factories when I was just 17. Kind of worked in factories in the Bay Area here. This was a very industrial area in the 60s and 70s. I met a guy who was a documentary filmmaker, Peter Gessner. And he wanted to write a screenplay about a factory worker. And I said, well, hell, I, you know, I, I, at least I know the life. And uh, we wrote a screenplay together as part of a group called Cine Manifest. Amazingly enough, we had no idea really about it, 
we had no toehold in the film industry. So I remember I was working as a janitor at the time. And so I copied the film on one of those old mimeograph machines, the screenplay rather. We kind of like gave out like 200 copies in L.A. And uh, a woman named Barbara Schultz and Visions really liked the screenplay and we got a deal. We were part of a collective, kind of a Marxist film collective, although not everyone was Marxist, a really different collection of people. And we were called Cine Manifest. And it was our first film. And then the next film made by John Hansen and Rob Nelson called Northern Lights. It won an award at Cannes. I think it was director's fortnight. It might be re-released. It's been restored by the Academy. Over Under Sideways Down was my first film. What did you do after that? Shortly after that, Carol gave, gave me a call after I'd, I don't know, I'd done a documentary narration for a documentary. It was a case where the, the narration really helped the documentary quite a bit. Carol hired me. Others had been hired before me. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who was the associate producer. I think his name was Walker Stewart. Yeah, Walker died earlier, I think 2007. He said, he said, well, one thing I can tell you, we're not going to fire you. I think Carol might have fired a few guys. And, and I think Carol wanted to fire me, but Walker wouldn't let him. You must have encountered a few of those stories. I mean, Carol's a wonderful guy and I think a brilliant filmmaker. And I really enjoyed working with them. But there were there were dicey moments that kind of goes with the territory when someone really cares about the work, as Carol did. Do you happen to remember when you were hired onto it? The film had already been screened. Again, and this is memory over, over you know, how many years ago was this? Jesus, 83 or something? The film had had a bad screening. And had gotten bad numbers, which shocked me because I, I, I saw the film. I thought it was a good film then. I don't know if there'd been an earlier narration, but there'd been earlier writers who had taken stabs at narration. And it was the feeling was that it hadn't worked. And, uh, you know, I took a number of passes at the narration and, and, and worked closely with Carol. Carol's style of work, you must say, it's just brilliant visually. And the work on the, on the film, he has an intuitive way of working. You know, he doesn't explain things to any extent. I don't think he believes in explaining, but his films end up elegantly put together. I'll tell you the biggest experience for me, you know, because it was at that, at that time a young filmmaker. Carol, at some point, cut, I think it was just maybe two and a half minutes out of the film, a negligible amount. And the impact on the entire film was stunning. Can't even remember the two. I can't remember the two or two and a half minutes, but they were just the right two and a half minutes. And the film that had kind of plotted along, and this was in the first twenty minutes. The film had a slightly, you know, episodic plot. It just kind of took off. It kind of scared me actually because you sort of learn the difference between a film working beautifully and not working that well can be incredibly small. A small change can make an enormous difference. You just have to figure out what the small change is. In this case, he did that. His wife, Christina, who was also part of the our narration team, says that Carol makes films the way he builds furniture. He's a really beautiful furniture builder. And, you know, he does put together, of course, beautifully. He plays hunches. He's an intuitive filmmaker, a very visceral filmmaker. Do you remember where the film was at as far as that first version that you saw and kind of what you brought to the party? I have no idea what I brought to the party, to tell you the truth. 
I would be hard pressed to know, you know, what lines in the narration. I was going to look at the film and see if I could figure out. There were times where one sentence would be uh, written by me, one would be written by Charlie or Charlie, you know. Then Carol would throw something in, or Christina would, you know. And sometimes, actually, it was quite fun. I mean, we, we would hit occasionally a wall. Remember, this is one time up at Carol's house in uh, in Napa Valley. We were having a hell of a time, and uh, Carol just walked out. I thought, oh fuck, what's what's going on? And when he came down, he looked like Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls. You know, he had a wide lapel suit on and a hat, rakish hat, looked like a gambler. You know, we all, we all laughed and got back to work. But I, I don't want to say, you know, I mean, the vision's all the vision is all Carol's. And he's pulling from you what he needs. And sometimes he reminded me there was a joke in, in the Vietnam War. There's a guy walking around and he's bending over all the time. He's in the Air Force uh, or he's in the Army, I guess. And he walks around. Every time he's walking around, he's reaching down and, and picking up a piece of paper off the ground. And he, and he looked at it and said, nope, that's not it. And nope, that's not it. Keep picking these pieces of paper. Nope, that's it. Finally, they decide the guy's crazy. And... uh the uh, uh, commander calls him into his office and says, uh, I'm sorry, we've decided that you're mentally incompetent and unfit for service. You know, and he hands him something, a piece of paper across the table. And the guy looks at it and says, yep, that's it. You know, and, and Carol was, <laughs> I don't mean it. <laughs> Carol was a little that way. I mean, he really knew it when he hit it, you know, so you're just trying to, give different angles, different approaches. You know, he knew that narration had to be additive. He is a visual poet, and he wanted uh, the narration to be spare and part of the poetry. And and he's, you know, rigorous and and, and, and demanding. Walker Stewart was great. He, he, he told me, he, he said something like, listen carefully to Carol, listen to the film, do your best to understand what Carol wants. Uh, he's a great filmmaker, but don't feel bad if you don't understand, because none of us have either. <laughs> you know, and Walker really respected, and I think he and, and Carol were friends, but it was a great opening introduction. You know, I said, this ain't going to be easy, man. I enjoyed the process. It left it really, you know, feeling like I got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of working with Carol. You know, I mean, everyone, everyone, you know, you know, and it, I mean, it's really a, a very different film, certainly in its setup from Farley Mowat's Never Cry Wolf, which is a beautiful book. But uh, when I first saw the movie, you know, saw the cut, it shocked me because in the book, you know, Farley was in the in the bloody campaign, the Sicilian invasion, and it was horrific. And he, he got out of it, you know, shell-shocked and messed up. And uh, in hating humanity, all he wanted to do was get away from it. You know, he kind of over the was sort of misanthropic. You know, he wanted to go to the Arctic just because there were no fucking people there. And so I, I said, well, you know, you're taking such a different approach here, Carol. What, what, you know, why did you change? He says, well, he says, I didn't think it would work. Um, he said, so, uh, I, you know, I said, my pitch was a wimp goes to the wilderness. And it really, it really worked. You know, when I saw it on the big screen, it was a crew screening, you know, and uh, I was I just blown away by how beautiful it was. 
you know. And I remember lo- looking at it and say, well, Carol, I would have cut a few sentences you added in that, the, you know, the prologue at the beginning. <laughs> But we're all cr- critical, you know, and, and if, you, if you're any good and you care, you are critical. And I still think, I haven't seen it, I was kind of wondering, I said, well, I think there are two, I think I told Carol, I thought there were two sentences too many in the prologue, you know, in the final analysis, who cares, but but I did. And two, Christina was also writing narration, you know, I mean, that's why when you said, what what did you do? I mean, if anybody knows what anybody did, I'd be shocked. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I helped, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, it would be really hard to dissect who did what. And and maybe uh, maybe Charles Martin, maybe he would know and or have more of a sense or maybe Carol would know. But I really doubt it. There were times that I thought it really worked beautifully and it was fun. And other times, of course, it was tougher. Yeah, and there's so many great production stories of, you know, the wolves. And uh, Carol told me one uh, just of, of, you know, if there were children on the set and the the wolves would get so excited, you know, because they wanted to eat the children. You know, that's not all mythology. So they knew that they couldn't bring children onto the set because they wouldn't be able to work with the wolves that day. A new take on Little Red Riding Hood, you know, leave Little Red Riding Hood at home. Kale told me this story. I think it was Kale. It could have been more. Kale said, boy, how did you really feel about it? And I think Angela's the wolf, right? And uh, and Far- Farley Mowat says, I was in love with her. I wanted to fuck Angie. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, but that's, you know, and the guy, you know, but <laughs> he said he felt completely in love with her. <laughs> I wanted to fuck Angie. So he even had a nickname for her. It wasn't Angela. It was only Angela in the book. And his head, it was Angie. And there, there are a thousand stories like that. Did working on the film do anything for you and for your career? I don't know what it did for my career, but I learned a lot on that film. The biggest thing um, I learned was Carol is an artist. And that's actually kind of rare in the film industry. And he took the artist's prerogative to explore. Um, he explored material. I think he's a courageous filmmaker. It impressed me that, you know, I knew that there was some pressure coming from the studio. And there's others who would know more about that than I. Hey, it's a pretty unusual film. A guy is alone in the wilderness. There's no, you know, usually scenes are relational. Hell, there's no relational scenes. You know, well, there are a few, but not much. I mean, it's a it's a courageous film to make. It's an unusual film to make. It's an original film to make. I saw him get you know, kind of grumpy and not depressed, but uh, unhappy. But I never saw any give up in Carol. That was inspiring to me. Some a, a guy who doesn't really fit into the film industry and the way films are made in the film industry. I hope you can talk to Carol, but, but that's my view of Carol. And yet able to make films within that system, which I think is remarkable. I carried a lot of that with me. Into, you made a film called There's a Bloom that I, I wrote and directed with uh, John Voigt and uh, Gilbeth Williams, Ellen Barkin, Annabeth Gish. It's hard to say exactly how, but I know that I couldn't have made that film without the experience of working with Carol in just in post-production on Never Cry Wolf. I learned a lot. It feels like you're all over the place as far as narratives, documentaries, 
And then you get to too legit the MC Hammer story. I'm like, what is happening here? <laughs> yeah. Well, I come from the East Bay, and Hammer, of course, is from from Oakland. Yeah, and I, I was born in Richmond, which is just north north of uh, kind of half grew up there, and and also other places. I admired uh, Hammer and, and still do. So it was kind of an obvious choice to me. But yeah, I mean, look, you're supposed to do one thing in the industry, and I, you know, I did a bunch of different things. I love the documentary form. Uh, you know, got a nomination with uh, Robert Hillman for Waldo Salt documentary. And so I've just kind of followed my interests sometimes to my detriment, directed some episodic TV, uh, most of which I, uh, wasn't particularly interesting to me. However, working for Michael Mann on Crime Story, uh, man, I wish that series had continued because I just loved it. He had re- he had real cops like Dennis Farina. Dennis Farina was a cop. And there were other guys. Uh, Chuck Adam- is it Adamson, co-executive producer. He was a cop. So he had cops and criminals. And he get and and we We get so excited when somebody would knock over this production safe. We have no money, you know. We had real criminals, and I I wouldn't want to say who they are, but there there were in in the production, and that that was one that I just adored that series. And enjoyed working on it. Farina, oh my God, he was just electric to watch. I loved that guy and anything that he was in. I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. You know, holy shit! And he quit being a cop in his nineteenth year. In your twentieth year, you get, and before he'd really made it, your twentieth year, you get a goddamn pension. So all cops work for is a goddamn pension. Uh, you know, <laughs> and he quit after nineteen years. You know, and everybody was a little crazy on that production, which I just loved. And one time I got this call after this all night, this 16 hour shoot, get this call at three o'clock in the morning. I'm exhausted. And they say, come down to the production office right away. And I think I'm going to get fired. I can't remember the name of the guy, the producer, you know, said, I, I just got a call from Michael Mann and he wanted me to tell you, you're doing a fabulous job. I've slept an hour, you know, and I got to, you know, and I got to go to work that morning. And that's just the way the whole thing was, you know. Our doctor, our production doctor, was uh, uh, Elvis Presley's doctor, <laughs> and you still could get anything you wanted from him, you know. That was fun, and and uh, I did, you know, various uh, director's cuts. You know, they give you four days in an episodic show to do a director's cut. I thought, always thought my director's cut in four days was better than the final when they took, took it over because there weren't that many at that time. It's not like TV now where there's so many wonderful writers and filmmakers. You know, they're just, they kind of like were radio shows with pictures, you know. But Michael, man, we were making little features, you know. Anyway, so I turned in my four day director's cut and then I got back a Michael Mann's cut. Which I think he told me he did while he was like watching TV. It was just amazing. It was so much better. <laughs> and he went, oh, okay. Well, some people are just extraordinarily talented, you know. And he, he he was. What are you working on these days? Are you able to work with COVID? You know, I, I uh, I've written a play that I'm, I'm really proud of, uh, on commission with a theater, local theater here called San Francisco Playhouse, which I think is a wonderful wonderful theater in the city. And I turned it in in February, in March, COVID hit. And I, I think the Playhouse is going to survive. It's a wonderful theater. I didn't get paid. They don't have any money. 
you know, I mean, they don't have any audiences. They're fighting to survive. So the timing for me couldn't have been worse. I luckily was able to uh, read, I would say, about half of the get a table read of about half the the play with uh, a thing called Actors Gymnasium, which was started by Bobby Moresco. And uh, there's actors, actors gyms in uh, New York and L.A., and I'm up in in, uh, in Berkeley in the Bay Area. Wouldn't have been able oddly to participate because it was all on site. But with COVID, it went to Zoom. So um, I was able every Saturday between two and five, I would get 10 pages of my play, Mud City, read by extraordinary actors who were available because nobody was working. And then people started to go, go to work. And I realized I was spending most of the week just trying to get a cast together. It, it didn't work anymore. So I'm in the process of, I, I think I'm going to, uh, I am about to try and see if I can uh, turn it into um, a four or five part miniseries. Mr. Kaur, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Well, Mike, I, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this. And uh, it'll mean a few more film, a few more people will watch the film. Up next, we're going to hear from film editor Michael Chandler. Can you tell me how you got into show business, specifically how you got into editing? I went to film school. I started making uh, little short little things with a Super 8 camera at college. They had one that, and nobody else wanted it, so I would take it out on whenever we had time off and make little things. And then I made a, I made something out of you were actually shooting on tape and, and, and cutting on videotape, if you can believe it. That's how... How ancient it was, but um, I made a, a little doc on uh, a high school, New Haven High School. After college, we moved out west and uh, to the Bay Area, and I just hustled work. Uh, I knew I wanted to be in film, and after I had put something together in film school and showed it to uh, somebody who actually was writing screenplays, and he said, "Well, you should, you know." He said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I want to edit." I mean, I. I enjoyed putting images together. I liked it. And so he said, well, you are an editor. You should. And I said, well, I should. I probably look for work as an assistant or as an editor. He says, no, don't do that. Just start at the top because otherwise you'll. And I'd been cutting documentaries for quite a while. You know, I had graduated to doing like hour-long ones. I did one for ABC. And then when I was on one for NBC, Carol called out of the blue. And I didn't even know who he was. And he just said, I'm looking for documentary editors. I'm sick of hiring these feature film editors. (laughs) I didn't really know what he was talking about. But uh, he said, yeah, no more of that. You do documentary? And I said, yes, I do. And so it was literally, I mean, two weeks later, I think I walked in the door. I found out why, actually. I mean, in the first couple of scenes that that he gave me, the first one was, he would label his scene certain thing, and I think this one this one had fog in the title. I think it was called Foggy Bottom, and, and I think it was sort of a play on words because it was where uh, you remember the scene. It's where he fir- where Charlie uh, Charlie uh, Tyler first spies the wolf, but he's heeding the call of nature, so he has to pull up his pants, and then he starts on this trek. And what it was was just 
shots of, I'll just keep calling him Charlie because I can't remember, you know, Tyler seeing him off in the distance or running around a corner and across a boulder. And there was no rhyme or reason or plan or anything. It was just, it was documentary. It was literally shooting tons of footage and you somehow figuring out how to make this buying the thing and then chasing it and losing it and regaining this wolf, you know, making it interesting. And I was thrilled. I just thought, oh, my God, this really is just like a documentary, but it's not. And then I saw the second reason he wanted a documentary film editor, because I don't know if you remember, films used to be shot on film. And when you'd get into the editing room, you would have a box, about a 12-foot square box, and you'd have two of them for every each one was about 10 minutes long and one was picture and one was sound and you'd put them on um, these big flatbed editing machines, cams usually, sometimes steam back. You remember the scene, not the first candlelight scene, but there was a second campfire scene where Utek's wife joins them and that's where they actually talk about cutting the sickness out of the herd. And that scene was labeled Amarok, which was, you know, the name for the wolf. It's the name for the wolf spirit. And I went over to the rack to pull down the, the boxes to, to start editing the scene. And you might have a racks usually were about uh, six shelves high and about four feet wide. And you'd grab maybe a top shelf on occasion, a shelf and a half, maybe two shelves. This, this thing was the entire, the entire unit. Like it went one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. So you're talking maybe, I don't know, five, eight, ten hours of footage for a five-minute scene around a, camp, a campfire. And I thought, okay, <laughs> we're not in Kansas anymore. But again, it was because Carol always felt you had to find it in the material. You had to find that moment. You had to find that look, the, you know, the fire in the, the firelight glowing in the glasses uh, or that strange look from Utek's wife just sort of sitting there in the shadows. And but it really helped to come from that background, and I see why he wanted somebody from that background to do it. When I spoke to the writers, they were just talking about how much was being shot. I think it was Sam brought up the scene of the um, wolf raising its leg, which apparently was done with thread rather than... <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like they spent all day doing that. I can't imagine how many takes there were of this stuff. There were gigantic numbers of takes on everything. I remember I'd never seen, you know, usually, well, it used to be, you know, three or four takes and five or six takes. Now it's quite more since it's shifted over to digital. You have a freedom to just shoot more. It doesn't really cost you anything. So you can go up, you know, 10 or 12 takes. Well, I remember one scene I was on take 26. That one mainly because it was a single shot and Carol tried to capture that was when the, the old geezer at the beginning before Charlie leaves was being warned off the wolves. They'll, they'll tear your heart out. They'll eat your heart out. And he could never quite get the single take shot that he uh, wanted when he finally got one. Uh, sometimes Carol would shoot. And in this case, he was shooting and he was watching the action so much. And he said, well, take a look at the last take. That's going to be it. And I looked and it was out of focus. And when Carol saw it, he just flipped out. Never again. I'll never shoot anything again. I mean, he, you know, because he was so caught up in the acting that he forgot the technical. In terms of the amount of footage, it always, I always felt bad because we used a fraction. I mean, it couldn't have been less than a million feet of footage that Hero shot everywhere. And I always thought somewhere in the Disney vaults, there are multiple films to be made out of the Arctic. 
uh, just sitting there, beautiful footage that nobody will ever look at. Who knows, maybe somebody can transfer all that stuff to 4K and it'll have a new life. Now, was that story-related stuff, or was that more just like the atmosphere? Because it seems like there was a oh, very... I, 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 No, I'm talking more, yeah, just shooting, you know, what you would call B-roll, shooting the scenics, the visuals, you know, because just like what you were saying about the, you know, the, the dog lifting its leg, you would have to do that for a specific scene multiple times. But in shooting scenery and the beauty shots, they just shot forever. And they had some gorgeous stuff, you know, you could only use so much. Was Carol with you the whole time during the editing? Yeah. Carol is a hands-on guy, too. He likes to be in there. And we had we would be in um, multiple rooms working on stuff. When I came on, Carol had already, I remember he showed me, he had done, worked up the where Charlie falls under the ice. And it was a revelation. I remember looking at it and it was, if you watch it carefully, it's a series of jump cuts, actually. There's no, there's no match cutting in that scene. And that's what contributes to the intensity of the scene, the desperation of it, you get this jarring. And I remember for me, it was, oh, wow, can you do this? Can you actually put a scene together like that? And I had to watch it again to say, yeah, it actually works. Nothing here quite matches and everything matches perfectly because that was always Carol's uh, sense was to mine the material for what it was, but also to always look at it in a fresh way. Well, I remember at one point he said to me, to use your right brain. I, I, Carol said at one point, he said, no, you can't do this kamikaze cutting. And he like chopped his hands like a samurai, you know, or like a karate chop. And it took me a long time to figure out what he meant. But what he was saying was, you know, stop cutting with your left brain, cut with your right. You know, he expanded what was possible. It's like he was feeling the action. He was feeling the emotion of the shots and he wanted you to do that. There were a lot of things like that. And just in terms of basic editing, I remember I had a shot I don't think it's in there anymore because it was it was truncated in the final thing, but where the sort of little shelter is drying, he's drying out and everything's dripping. And Charlie lifts his head and he listens. And I had cut it, I'll just arbitrarily say I had it on for, you know, two and a half seconds. And Carol said, no, 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 you got to think sound. Think sound. And then go back and look at the shot. And then it would play for like five and then eight and then 10 seconds. And I would leave it there and I would think, wow, this is just, I don't know. Okay, I'll... But I wasn't used to the way Carol was working. Carol had Alan Splett there all the time. In other words, it never used to be that way. You always brought your sound people in afterwards. You'd, you'd get your picture, you'd lock your picture, and then they'd come in and they'd do the dialogue work. They'd add in some effects. You'd put your final music in. And this was different. I would finish. I remember the shot where the scene where uh, Tyler was taking the photographs, you know, along the ground of the spring flowers, and he was moving that that old-fashioned camera and taking uh, taking shots on the ground, and then all of a sudden, Utek's boot comes in. And by then, I had begun thinking sound, but I still wasn't aware of just what could be done with it. And I turned the scene over to Alan, and when I got it back, you, you know, if you watched at the end there, he's got a whole symphony of things going on right as, it, as the thing sort of climax. He builds in without music, just using sound, this sort of crescendo to the moment where he suddenly looks up and, and Utek is there. That was a revelation to me, that sound was such an integral part of it. The other thing that was interesting was that Carol just eschewed music. He just said, I don't want, we, we put the whole thing together, uh, and they still think it's the only film I've ever done it with, with no music from start to finish. We, we just put the, 
put the film together and imagining the music because Carol's idea was, you know, if you you just smush everything with the music, you can, he said you can put you can put music over toilet paper and it'll play well. And so he wanted to find out what how the scene played in its essence, just in the way that the shots uh, and the feeling and the sound conveyed the emotion. Yeah, you're talking about that underwater scene and just the stifled screams and the sound of the water and everything that adds so much to it as well. I never really picked up on the jump cuts, though. That's I'll have to rewatch that with fresh eyes next time. I mean, I would later learn, uh, you know, as my skills developed, that batch cutting is highly overrated. You can convey, you know, and sometimes just to get yourself out of a jam, you can't do it. Even in a static dialogue scene, you play with motion. The rhythm of the editing is amazing, especially when it changes towards the end with the caribou. That scene in particular, talk about a, a wordless scene, but just the way that the rhythm of the edits motivates the action is just fantastic. And that's a scene where I think if you really look, I mean, the, the shooting, I don't know the history on the shooting of that, but as I watched it recently, you know, knowing we were going to talk, it just took my breath away that the amount of stuff that he would have needed to film to capture the shots that he got. You know, that scene is the climax of the film. You know, if you look at that scene, that's why Carol makes movies. I mean, he is a visual stylist. I mean, that, I don't know if, have you ever seen Rodeo? Rodeo was one of Carol's early films, and it was done, I think it was a sponsor film. I think Marlboro paid for it. And it was about a rodeo. And yet it was, it focused what Bob Dalva was doing in the Black Stallion in the in the pre-race very much echoes what Carol had done in Rodeo, where just the, the gripping the horn of the saddle and the tightening of the rope and the boot scraping on the leather and the flank of the beast. And Carol was trying to get you totally into feeling that moment. You know, so he's a tremendous visual stylist. Also, there's, you know, as you watch the movie, you see so much of the, there's humor in it, and and some of it is the sight gags, you know, which again, obviously, because it's, uh, you know, based on just Charlie's expression or the moment, I mean, even the ice scene where he suddenly drops, that that drop is very funny. <laughs> even though it's like, uh-oh, you're laughing before you realize what a, what a pickle he's gotten himself into. But he wasn't just a stylist. I mean, he had a philosophy, and I think that because Carol's output maybe wasn't so large, people forget that a lot of it was profound. You know, he, he was trying to say something about man. He was trying to say something about the environment and man's relationship to the environment. Well, there was a funny story. I remember where we, we rented space in Marin County. And by then, um, awful lot of the office space in Marin County had been bought up by uh, George Lucas and so we were way up in Nevada, and George was down in San Rafael. But I remember one day everybody got excited and walked next door to the editing facility. And there was a room, and it was just set up, and it looked like some Rube Goldberg set up with on a tabletop, like a model, you know. But instead of a model train, it was like these mock little lasers and mirrors and everything, and and. George was in there and he was, and Carol had wandered over and Carol was just looking, what is this? And George said, this, this is how you're going to show movies in the future. And we're talking 19, what, 80? And he's going, they're going to take, see that? It's going to just, they're just going to make that into digital bits and bytes and they're going to beam it up and it's going to go up to the satellite and then it's going to come down. It's going to go in a projection booth. 
Gallo was looking at him. He was absolutely horrified. <laughs> and, and I walked out with him, and he goes, "Man, you got to be able to touch that film. You got to be able to hold it in your hand and look at it, uh, hold it up in the light and look at it. I got to be able to feel it." it. It wasn't just a question of being old school in that way. He, you know, he grew up, uh, you know, on Tahoe. I think his father was a boat builder. He he building stuff, working with his hands. He would, you know, on, I mean, I don't know how much of the footage was shot by Carol, but he shot a lot of the footage. He had this one time he came in to the edit room and he had a, uh, opened this box and pulled out this camera and he just flipped it up on his shoulder and said, yeah, use this. And I think it was that eclair that he always loved to use this uh, CM3 or something like that. And I, I couldn't even lift it, you know, but he just held it like it was a handy cam. It was a hands-on thing. And when he said, I got to be able to touch the film and, you know, and, and, and film it, that's what you're getting in, in the Black Stallion. And that's what you're getting in Wolf is this connection between sort of alienated man and primal nature. And how do the two come together? And I think that that's not, I mean, especially in this stage and age, that's, that's not an easy thing to get at. And Carol stayed committed to that vision. Uh, I, I think he thought that there was, I mean, he did. He believed that there were elements of the modern world that had corrupted. I mean, his, his uh, bet noir was his daughter had just been born and the Saturday morning cartoons were like the end of the world for him. It was like this, this I, he couldn't imagine how horrible that stuff was. So what he was trying to do in well even in Fly Away Home too that you know the uh, this idea that you need a sense of wonder you need you know I think Charlie uh, Tyler actually says that at the end of the film you know that that you I finally got back my sense of wonder and and I think that's what he was trying to do in his films. What did working on this do for you in your career? You know, I was saying we worked in um, in real physical film, but of course you didn't have the and Carol's style of filmmaking was much more suited to this day and age, where you have instant access to all the material at your fingertips, where editing is so much. I mean, editing was actually physically taxing. You were hauling these reels and yanking them. And, put, you know, at the end of the day, you were actually physically tired from, from, from that activity. That's not a question anymore. Now it's totally mental exercise. But if you, and you couldn't save anything. And, you know, nowadays it's like version 23 of whatever scene you want. You've got it instantly. I had cut a scene and Carol wanted it a different way. And I sent it out for work print and I just got a quick and dirty cut of it and just set it on a shelf. And then months later, Carol said, you know, we got to go back to, we got to go back to the way it was. And, and so we had that, that work print of the scene, the way it used to be luckily. And, and we were able to put it back, but I took that cut and showed it to Milos, and that's how I got Amad on Amadeus. So it you know, worked out very well for me. I've always been very interested in the way that he mixes documentary with narrative, and I was curious how much of Amadeus, for you, felt like narrative versus documentary. Well, that was almost, I would say 98% was scripted and shot to the script, but the reason why... Milish and I work so well together is that there are always aspects of a, it does not matter how great the screenwriter is and how great the director is. You have problems in the edit room and you have to solve them. And coming from a documentary background, 
I believe, gives you tools that you might not otherwise have to solve those problems. You look at material a different way. You, you, sometimes you go outside of a scene to solve a problem. You know, the opening of Amadeus, the way it was written was not working. It just was too, on the page it comes out, you know, he's, he's Salieri leans out of a window and he yells, Mozart, Mozart, you know, and, and then he gets taken to the hospital and the, him leaning out the window and him calling it just, it was in your face. It was like, uh, I don't know how to put it, but it, it was too obvious. It was too elementary. There was no mystery to it. And so coming from a documentary background, I, you know, Miroslav, uh, Mirik Andrzejczyk, the cameraman, had shot, I mean, there were there was a lot of lag at the beginning of every take. He would roll camera, and then sometimes it would take a while for the slate to come into frame, or sometimes even after the slate had left frame, Miller took a while calling action. So you had all these unbelievable, like basically these Vermeers <laughs> sitting there, these beautiful with a, you know, a street lamp and snow coming down with a little cat in the corner or, a, you know, an, an empty alleyway or a vista down a street, you know. And so I just grabbed a bunch of those. And then Salieri's voice is off camera. But and all you're seeing is the empty streets. And that allowed us to get into the scene th- through the back door rather than through the front door. You know, because your life as a documentarian is, how do I make something out of nothing? A lot of the times, you know, you have a vision, you do stuff, but you can never control reality in the way you can on a, on a film set. And so you're always grabbing for what's, you know, available, uh, trying to Rube Goldberg something. And what you hope in the end is that you've done it so well that nobody knows the difference. Looking at your CV, it's just fascinating to see how you were doing these narrative features for a while. And then... I don't know if there was a, a distinct switch, but at one point it seems like you start to do your own writing and directing and then you move back into the documentary field. It's very hard to stay. I loved being in that world, but there were also things I wanted to do and I wanted to make my own films. And, you know, it's it's tough, you know, if you have an agent and it's like, well, I'm not going to do that picture right now because I got this own thing I'm working on my own deal. And they go, well, you know, let me know when you want to get back in the industry. And if it, you can't do that too many times. You have to realize you have to make a choice. And I did want to do my own stuff. So I, you know, I began to to make my own documentaries and, you know, few and far between because of funding. But uh, and then work for a long time, I was able to work in both worlds. But finally, pretty much decided that I enjoyed the documentary world because for me, it was richer in the sense that I was responsible. Well, I became a story consultant, not just a consulting editor, but now I do story and editorial consulting. And you're in charge of, you know, basically you are writing uh, as well as, uh, you know, putting a scene together. You're figuring what the scene should be that you put together. And so it's a much more all-encompassing role that I found. So it was a gradual transition away from, I mean, I loved it. It's a different world. I did love that world, but I also love this one. And sometimes you just have to make a choice. I have to tell you the work that you did on uh, Mishima, uh, A Life in Four Chapters is fantastic. That was an extraordinary film too. And, 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 and Paul was almost the exact opposite. I mean, it's funny, you have to adapt to the director you're working for. I mean, Carol was like, you know, here's the scene and, and, you know, just figure it out. And Paul would every now and then say, well, you know, I conceived this where we start up top with this dolly shot 
and then go into so-and-so on the left and then so-and-so on the right and then go even further closer. And, you know, he had in his head mapped out certain things. But he also wanted me for, he had a little documentary section in there that he wanted. It wasn't very big, so... That was a wonderful project uh, to work on because, and that was the opposite in terms of the music too. Paul called up uh, Philip Glass and said, "Give me a pre-score," and I, that I'd never seen. So for, I go from a film where there's no music to one where there's music from the get-go, which he then, you know, which then Glass revised and reprised. But we had almost the score the end score to cut with. And it was very important that that happened too, because that music was so haunting that it allowed you to make these shifts between the stories, uh, between the eras. No, I was very fortunate. Well, tell me, what have you been working on lately? Oh, I mean, all kinds of, of, uh, documentaries. What, you know, usually what happens is a documentary, a director will have a vision and they just won't, be able to see how to get themselves across the finish line. They they work on a film for a year or two or three or in some cases seven <laughs> and they hit a wall and they can't get their way out. And what I do is I basically help them reimagine, see the film in a different light, reimagine how it could be, reshape the material, offer shooting of new material. I mean, that's run the gamut. There's a I did a worked on a film about resistors to the Vietnam War, on a giant in the wine industry, uh, how we need to change mathematical thinking, uh, a photographer who tries to capture a village in Cuba. I mean, it's it's an endless uh, parade of, of uh, good subjects. Has COVID slowed you down at all? I have been so lucky. You know, I got work during it, and because you can work remotely, it literally hasn't affected me at all. And I feel very so fortunate. I mean, I opened up that Hollywood Reporter and the first page, I'm looking at all these people and go, oh, they're going to be articles on all these people. And then I read the fine print. No, every one of these people has died this year. And then there's a sidebar with 10 more on every page. And it's like, no. And I mean, that's part of what's so horrible is that people don't even realize this. You know, that we're losing people left and right. And then they have the stories of the of people on the sets talking about every single arrangement that they have to make to, to make the movie, you know, where some actor said, I made the entire movie. I never saw the crew's faces. I don't know who I worked with on the movie. Uh, luckily, no, I've been, you know, we live out here in the middle of the desert. So already we're insulated from, I mean, the only people I ever see on a daily basis, if I, you know, uh, if I, people that I have to see are the UPS and the FedEx driver. Mr. Chandler, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. I, I really appreciate you doing it. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's wonderful to bring attention to films that deserve it. And I think this one does. I think just returning for a moment to that. I mean, I think Carol was trying to say something in his films. And I think it's something that in this day and age needs to be said even uh, even more than more than ever that, that uh, you know, we have a special relationship to nature. And the only way we're going to keep that going in a non-destructive way is to figure out who we are and what nature is. And I think that's what he was trying to get at in his films. And the, and the idea that there's this transformational moment, and you see it in the stallion when he first rides the black, and you see it in the caribou scene when finally Tyler becomes one. You know, he, he, he becomes one. He suddenly, you know, experiences the wonder of, of nature. I, I think for Carol to have conveyed that in his film is quite extraordinary. 
it deserves a Blu-ray. It absolutely deserves a Blu-ray with a full remix. I mean, it just, when you first heard what Alan was doing with these things, it was, you know, nowadays sound design, I mean, Alan was a sound designer before there were sound designers, you know, and won the award when there wasn't even an award, there wasn't even a category. And it was, that was Carol's vision that, no, it's, it's not just pictures, it's not just words, it's pictures, words, and sound. And, uh, and of course, music. I mean, Mark Isham's, it was just tremendous. And last but not least, we are going to hear from DP, Mr. Hiro Narita. I know you've told this story before, but can you tell me a little bit more about how you became a cinematographer? And I read once that you were very inspired by Knife in the Water. Is that true? My background is in graphic design. And uh, I was attending San Francisco Art Institute. During that time, it's uh, uh, 60s, 1960s. I don't know if you... If you remember, it was the 60s when the uh, terrific new wave films from Europe and, and Japan were filling up art houses. And so I got to see a lot of movies, not really, I mean, just as an uh, just as an entertainment. And I wasn't thinking of getting into movies. But one of them was A Knife in the Water. It really struck me that there is something in terms of visual storytelling. So there was something there that that I hadn't experienced in graphic design, and I realized. I mean, this is, of course, I'm uh, re- recollecting in retrospect. The camera seems to be in the right place at the right time. It's like um, I am in the right place to see this particular. Angle, and anyway, so it, it really struck me that that particular movie kind of uh, gave me a really strong impressions. And uh, even though it's it's a, it's a two-dimensional medium, like a graphic design, I mean graphic art, it um, really stirred stirred up my emotional dimensions, so to speak. So. That was that, and then I got drafted immediately after after the school. I got drafted by the army, and spent two years. And uh, during that time, I continued watching movies. So by the time I I got discharged, I sort of drifted toward movie making. But it wasn't really a turning point. But I have to admit, I I got interested more in films than graphic design, even though I continued to make a living as a graphic designer. So that's my experience with uh, Knife in the Water. At the time, I have to admit, I I thought the, the director did everything. I didn't know there was a separate person who was, who was doing, doing, who was in charge of cinematography. What were some of those early days for you as a camera operator, and how did you eventually move into director photography? So when I came out of Army, 
I was still working as a as a graphic designer. Uh, I was also taking stills. One thing led to another, and I got a job to do you know to do documentaries. I mean, I didn't I didn't know how to operate cameras, but I anyway I I took the job and did some documentary uh, shooting. During that time, do you remember uh, Zabriskie Point? Yeah, I got a job to document the uh, civil uh, student movement activities in a student riot, civil riot, as a reference material for Zabriskie Point. I spent seven, eight months uh, filming whatever these riots took place. I, I would fly to the city and, and you know, get the documentary footage. The biggest thing was the Democratic National Convention in '68. I, w- I was there to to document this event. So that was one project I got involved. Last Waltz by Martin Scorsese. I was hired as a one of the cameramen. That was a big event. And I did a few other educational uh, documentaries, but I did still have my graphic design studio <laughs> uh, because I couldn't make a living as a cameraman. But anyway, it took about 10 years, slowly uh, move into uh, filmmaking. In 1970, mid-70, I was hired as a my first big project, uh, director of photography, on the television film called Farewell to Manzanar. I don't know if you heard of that project. It was about um, a Japanese relocation camp during the war, uh, based on a real story, and uh, directed by John Cordy, who who directed, uh, just before that, uh, directed a um, autobiography of Jane Pittman, and uh, he was a local uh, Bay, Bay Area director. That project, Farewell to Mandana, was my my turning point. Even though next year or so, <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't get any job uh, as, as a cameraman. But anyway, it was a very important experience as as a beginning of my my new career. How long before Never Cry Wolf did you meet Carol Ballard? A lot of things was happening at the American Zoetrope, you know, the Coppola's company. George Lucas was hanging around and Carol Ballard was. But I met him when he was finishing finishing up Black Stallion. It was in the last stage of a shoot where he had to do some pickup in the U.S. My wife, as a script supervisor, was involved in that segment of Black Stallion. And I'm not sure if if I was doing anything for Lucas at that time. But anyway, I met Carol at Lucas' studio. We didn't talk about movie making, but we talked about cabinet making. <laughs> Turns out both of us are uh, really into cabinet making. And uh, Carol was... Uh, and it still is a really like a journeyman craftsman. He makes incredible cabinets. So I got to know him 
through cabinet making. Black Stallion was 79. So like a few years later, he asked me to get involved in Never Cry Wolf. Of course, I was delighted, but um, I told him I, I wasn't the real nature photographer. <laughs> I was raised in the city and didn't know anything about you know, remote countries, wildlife, and so forth. But anyway, uh, that, that's how I got to uh, meet Carol. Well, what was your experience like on Never Cry Wolf, especially you being the city boy out there in the wilds of the Yukon and Alaska and, and other points unknown? It was uh, actually mind-blowing experience. It took a long time. It took two years, uh, five, five months first year and additional five months following year. We were d- dealing with incredible weather problems and animals and uh, the landscape. It was uh, just things I've never seen before. But I don't know. I sort of went along <laughs> uh, with a project. It was a, a an incredible learning period for me. Carol is a consummate filmmaker, a terrific cameraman, cinematographer himself. So I was more like a like an apprentice, and uh, I enjoyed every bit of it. There are many, many things I learned from the project. Most importantly, and the most interesting part of it was that he said many times, weather, landscape, everything was was like a character, another character in the story. In the story, and uh, not just actors, but atmosphere was an important character in the film. And I really appreciate that aspect of um, sort of holistic idea of filmmaking. He was not really into, you know, the traditional master shot, close-up, medium shot, or whatever. Of course, he understood those things, but then he used to describe scenes to me as this scene means this to him. And how we go about capturing the images that that both you know explicitly and implicitly capture the moment i mean it's it's kind of an abstract discussion but but I appreciate that kind of discussion than traditional i want to get good close up of this or that does that make sense to you? Would he get those points across to you verbally, or would he draw things out or act things out? I mean, how was he actually transferring that knowledge? He was acting it out. The only storyboard he made was sort of a crude sketches on a napkin or something. He gestured a lot and described to me with his his hands, arms. (laughs) But for me... That was more clear than drawing any kind of pictures on a piece of paper. And he often said he he wanted to surprise himself. Like uh, uh, after shooting a scene, he would ask, "What else? What else can we do? Is is this? I'm running out of ideas. If you have something, let me know." And always looking for uh, new ideas or challenges. And that was pretty exciting to me. I can't imagine shooting for 10 months, five one year and five the next. You must have gone through so much film. 
Yeah, I think so. I remember hearing that we had like nearly 400,000 feet of wolves running from left to right, right to left. (laughs) (laughs) It was endless, so to speak. But uh, we had um, like three separate groups of wolves. And the first group of wolves, pack, I guess they, you know, they have to be in packs. Unlike dogs, they have to have a alpha male in a group. And the first group did uh, quite a bit of work, but they are from Hollywood. And Carol did not like those Hollywood wolves. And for cer- certain scenes, we have to get another pack from uh, Washington, Washington State. There was a farm, animal farm, where they raised pack of wolves. Some of them are mixed, hybrid wolves. And then we have to get another pack from uh, British Columbia that didn't do anything but just run around. But these ones looked the best, looked like a real wolf in nature. We used all three different packs and in the end and they're all cut together that you you didn't know which wolves belonged to which pack it was very time consuming because the wolves don't do anything special unlike dogs it's really hard to make them do anything so we had the Hollywood wolves were often placed in hot wire we have to have uh, electric wire around them, concealed, you know, hidden. And so they will stay within that space, and the trainers would make them do this and that. They barely followed, but uh, uh, we had we had to cap just film whatever they 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 can do, and and uh, in editing they they got to make story out of it. So it was not easy. The the wolves running around was was the easiest. I mean, they they loved to run around. So we got a lot of that. In final editing, they somehow managed to um, make some sense and uh, tell stories. But there are other situations. I mean, I can talk about incredible experiences where. Remember the scene where Tyler, the main character, is flown by Brian Denny, the pilot, in mid-air, the engine stalled, and Brian Dennehy is trying to trying to bang on a frozen pipe and get the gas flowing or something. Anyway, that interior of the plane was shot in a garage, airplane garage, in Skagway, Alaska. We hang the plane from the ceiling against the large silk with the huge uh, fan. We we blew uh, smoke. I think we just handheld cameras, and the airplane was kind of swung by grips, and and it really looked convincing. I mean, it, I have to admit, <laughs> when when the sequences put together. Uh, how well the, the interior matched with with the 
with the mountains and and snow covered mountains and um, flying exterior flying shots. That was one, one of the most more successful sequences that that uh, I I liked it myself. Then there is the sequence where Tyler falls into a frozen lake, and of course the frozen lake um, he just ducks down out of frame, and next thing you know he's sinking to the bottom of the lake. That shot was uh, shot in uh, Lake Tahoe a few years later. I wasn't there. Uh, the second unit, famous uh, underwater cameraman, Al Giddens did uh, Abyss in the Avatar, I think. Abyss, definitely. Anyway, he shot that as segment. Then Tyler's uh, struggles up to the surface, banks against the frozen ice. That was shot in Juneau, Alaska, in a swimming pool <laughs> with um, epoxy ice with a silk over. And Al Gidding was an underwater cameraman as well. And when Tyler comes out of the lake, that was shot in um, in Atlin. There was a small lake in Atlin. That was real. That was real in a sense. The grip and and stunt people, special effects people, built a platform under a sheet of ice. I mean, on the frozen lake, small lake, they built a platform. They dug out several holes. So actors and stunt people can go in from one hole, then come to walk underwater to a designated spot, which was night before something like a four by eight hole was cut and let it frozen overnight. Then in the morning, the surface will be covered with snow and mark it, uh, invisible mark, or I think we use pen or nail or something. So you can't see from, you can't see it with naked eyes, but we knew exactly who it was, and the camera will be waiting for them to, for Tyler to blast the ice with with the rifle and and come up. And sometimes the camera would miss the spot, so it it won't be in the center of the frame. So then we have to come back next day. I I think we did like a, at least three or four four times, one take a day, and then of course. After the mishap, we have to do spend the rest of the day shooting something else. This was all before the digital visual effect. So it was all done real time. Not real time, but it was all real things. Charlie Martin Smith, I mean, he was brave enough to actually do it. And when he came out of the water, he looked at least 10 years older. The water was so cold. Anyway, that was a pretty incredible, I mean, sequence. And uh, then the most time-consuming sequence was the stampede sequence, which took altogether five weeks for that sequence alone. Uh, it spread out in, in, in two years. First year, it was quite a failure. We, we didn't realize 
the the behavior of the herd of caribou. We built the fence, burlap fence, about six feet tall around them, so that we hoped that they could stay in the sort of a corral, so to speak. Each time we released uh, the wolves, the caribou panicked, and they jumped over the fence like nothing. <laughs> After one take, like, oh, they're gone. Even though we had the caribou wranglers, uh, it took hours to you know bring him back. Each time they broke back, we had fewer numbers. Then the weather was bad sometimes, completely fogged in, and et cetera, et cetera. So after the first year of that stampede sequence, Carol said, I don't have a movie. So next year we went back. This time we positioned the caribou in in the valley. So even they run away, they, they couldn't go too far. We had wranglers and then... I think we had a helicopter, helicopter too, helicopter wrangler. We could only do one take, maybe two. I don't recall two, but anyway, one take a day. We gather the caribou, release the wolves, and Charlie is in among the caribou. Uh, amazingly, caribou avoided him. He wasn't run over. We would prepare 5 p.m set up cameras, set up animals. And then because of the magic hour in in near Arctic Circle, we could we would we would be shooting around maybe two AM and one release and that's it. We have to reassemble next day. That's how, why that's why it took five weeks altogether. Yeah, I was going to ask about that whole idea of the longer days and if that just, that must have screwed up with your um, natural rhythm so much when you got up there. Our shoot shooting schedule was like 5 p.m. to 5 a.m. And we sleep during the day, which was very difficult because sun, sun wouldn't go down till like 11 or a little after 11 and sun is up by 1 a.m. It's the kind of shoot that I don't think anyone can do it anymore. It's mostly digitized, <laughs> you know, digital animals. That would be the solution nowadays. You know what was so interesting to me, especially with the old men, I realized that there was no such thing as acting in front of the camera. Uh, whatever he did was him doing it. He knew about the presence of of cameras. I know he's done some documentaries in in uh, uh, Canadian Arctic for BBC, BBC or BBS. But uh, he was so natural that, that there was no such thing as acting in front of a camera. <laughs> That's why he looked so real, and that that I I, I was impressed. The older gentleman's wife, uh, that whole scene around the fire when she's telling oh, the story. Oh, that was oh. real. <laughs> yeah. That was also shot in the garage inside the garage because, because you can't, I mean, you can't shoot at during that period. You couldn't shoot outdoor. It was way too cold. We'll, we'll, we'll freeze. So we, 
we we kept the background black. Mostly we will fire, except the fire made too much sound, uh, cracking sound for sound guy. So we had to combine butane fire and the real fire and uh, some small lights to recreate fire effect. That was all. I think we were shooting wide open, I think. Today, it, 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 it would be a lot easier because, you know, 4K cameras and the cameras are a lot more light, light sensitive. But in film days, it, it was a challenge. Two years ago, I supervised a film to 4K transfer. There were some um, uh, improvements to be made because the uh, DVD release and original VHS release were not good. So anyway, 4K transfer was done, and yet Disney is not distributing it, which I thought was pretty terrible. Blu-ray is not available, even though the 4K master exists. It's remarkable to me that you can work on a movie where so much of the stuff that you're doing is 100% practical or close to practical, and then... You are also working on things like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and uh, Star Trek VI and just all these really effects-heavy films. It's just what a career you've had. Well, you think I've worked on a lot of effect-heavy movies, but when I was working on them, I didn't even think about effects. Things that I realized later when I, when I saw the movies, you know, finished movies, I was I was impressed with... With the visual effect, I mean special effects, visual effect, uh, things that um, ILM people did, it was pretty amazing. I mean, we knew, uh, for instance, in the movie Focus Focus, those uh, those actors were, you know, hung from wires, right? And uh, it looked so very uncomfortable, and and uh, when we're shooting. A lot of times we saw these big cables. As a, as a result of uh, some mishaps in the Rocketeer, Disney told us that we have to use heavier cable. These actors are hung from much heavier cables, and you see you see them, you know, like, my God, how are you going <laughs> to uh, avoid this? But but there's something about shooting 24 frames a second and the cable against a certain background it's it's not a uh, optical illusions it's something else maybe it is an optical illusion camera doesn't see it even if it sees it it doesn't record maybe those uh, cables showed up every so many frames between between the frame line so to speak a lot of times we got away with not having a removing cables through optical. We got away with a lot of stuff, uh, which was pretty amazing. And uh, in the Rocketeer, a lot of flying shot, actual flying shot in the in the big um, south, um, the nightclub. Uh, that had to be optically 
removed because the background was plain. There was no trees, like as in at Focus Pocus. So yeah, that we had to deal with. Amazingly, when we were shooting, it it, it was quite obvious, but uh, yeah, they're all taken out. So anyway, the visual effect thing was part of storytelling. And I mean, each film, I, it was a le- learning point for me. Having done some additional shooting for, uh, for ILM, I learned quite a bit from ILM. And uh, people think I'm, I'm an expert in visual effect films, but I'm not. <laughs> Even though I, don't, I, I didn't pretend like I, I knew, I, I just, just went along, you know. As a cameraman, you don't think the cameraman can be pigeonholed or typecast like actors, but they do. After Never Cry, Never Cry Wolf, I, the only offer I get uh, were movies with, with animals, like a boy with tiger, a girl with bear, whatever. It always had an animal. And I made a decision that, that I, I didn't want to do it. Then uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid came along almost by accident. Uh, the producer was uh, was uh, one time a manager at the ILM, the George Lucas organization. He be, was a producer on, on Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, and he asked me to work on it. And I I took it just because I, I knew him and, and the story was was interesting. I don't know if you knew that the f- the first director, uh, the original director, was let go. Uh, he became ill, and um, we were prepping in the uh, in Mexico, in, in Mexico City, and he became ill. And then he was replaced by John Johnston, who was uh, one time a st- um, sequence director. At ILM, he worked on a bunch of Star Wars, and uh, so this was his first feature, and that's how I, I got involved, and that led to the Rocketeer. Joe Johnston was directing the Rocketeer, so that was that. That transition was fairly natural, but the next one, the Star Trek, was the producer of Star Trek. Was someone I knew. He brought in Nicholas Meyer, the director of Star Trek. He saw the set of the uh, Rocketeer, the South Sea Club set, and and he liked the way I was dealing with with the with the set and uh, with the crew, I suppose. Then he so he offered me the the Star Trek project. And uh, and I I took it because Nick was a very interesting uh, director. I mean, person actually. That's the reason for the series of uh, visual effect oriented movies. And I think I kind of dropped out of Hollywood after that. My personality didn't fit into a scheme of things in in Hollywood. So anyway, I decided to stay in Northern. Northern California, work on smaller project, more personal project. And uh, even though they were financially successful, but I, I enjoy them because they're very small, independent project. Unfortunately, not many people 
uh, went to see them. But there, there are movies that I personally like. Uh, there's a film called Technolust. I enjoyed it. Uh, the director was uh, was an artist herself, uh, was a conceptual artist, uh, interesting person. Then there was a film called Shadrach. Nobody went to see that film, but I really enjoyed the film, working on the film. I also did a film called The Valley of the Heart's Delight. It was um, extremely low budget, but it was uh, the story was really fascinating. It was it was based on a real event that took place in San Jose, San Jose, California, recorded as the last lynching in U.S. history, 1930 something. That can't be true, though. I'm sure there was more lynching afterwards. Maybe it was the last lynching in California, where it's a very political film. I enjoy working on it, and the result I thought was was very good. I was satisfied with with my my work, but uh, nobody went to see it. <laughs> that's you know that's the nature of the game, I guess. Did I read right that you eventually got into teaching as well? In two thousand nine, I worked on a film in San Francisco called La Mission which was also, I really loved, loved the film. That was my last film, 2009. My wife was became ill, and I had to sort of make a decision uh, whether to keep my profession going. It was sort of unrelated to creative process, but if I retired in 2009, my health care, health insurance will continue until my death. <laughs> so if I don't retire, I'll lose my insurance because I was, wasn't was having enough what is the bank hours for this is a union, union thing. So I decided to retire. That was my last project. Unfortunately, my wife passed away. So maybe eight years after that, she, she passed away. And I I don't regret that I retired at that age. And then I started to teach instead. I started to teach at San Francisco Art Institute, which is my alma mater. I I really enjoyed teaching. Uh, I continued continued for eight years, and it's sort of like uh, made a full circle after fifty years graduating from from there and. Ended up teaching there. I thought it was a pretty interesting cycle. We are back, and we are talking about Never Cry Wolf. And one thing that Hiro Narita said right before we rang off the phone was that he supervised a 4K scan of this film, and it is still not on Blu-ray. In fact, the 
DVD is out of print, and I think the only place you can get it now is on Amazon Prime. It's not even on Disney Plus, if I am right about that. It's not, and that was something I wanted to mention because it's really weird that it's not. Well, they just put a content warning on the Muppets. (laughs) Well, everybody knows how big of a racist Gonzo was. There's Charles Martin Smith junk in this movie, so... Do you get to really see his junk? I didn't see his wiener, and I was looking. I, didn't, I was about to say, I wasn't pressing pause like I do with other movies, so... It wasn't the pause br- button you would be pressing if you were looking for his wiener, though. Come on. If I had been looking, I might not have seen it. They did such a good job with the lighting that they covered it up, I think. Anytime he was, like, facing the camera, it was all light lit from behind, so you couldn't really see his front. And there's a scene where he dives into water, but I, I'm sure Carol Ballard told him to you know keep his knees up before hitting the water. Well, there's one moment where he's laying on the ground and the caribou come by and he springs up and it's right from the front. But it is so fast that I was just like, okay, did I see Dick or not? I don't think I did. It was yeah, incredibly fast. I, and I have to say it's very tastefully shot. You know, it's not like, hey, look at this guy's ass. You know, it's just... <laughs> Can I have that as my ringtone on my phone, Mike White, just going, hey, look at this guy's ass. We were talking about the, the remake of this, 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 the 2021 remake of Never Cry Wolf. And, you know, because you could, uh, with a film like this, it could be serious survival movie or comedic survival movie. And that would be the comedic part of, you know, I'm naked and there are animals around me. Ah! You know, and then you cut to a smirking caribou looking at your junk. It is funny. There's almost a sequel to this, which is The Snow Walker from 2003. And it is another Farley Mowat story. And it is directed this time by Charles Martin Smith. I think he does some ADR. It sounded like his voice at one point. But he even managed to get back the guy that plays Mike, Samson Jorah, shows up for a few minutes. And I recognize his voice before I recognize his face. Like, his voice sounds the same as it did back in 1983. So, what is it? 20 years later, when they did this, he managed to get him back. And um, he plays, unfortunately, he plays a drunk Inuit who's trying to um, get people to help him out in this town. And Barry Pepper is very mean to him. But it's uh, it's much more that kind of, this guy is a dick, and we put him out into the wild with this beautiful Inuit woman, and she teaches him to not be so much of a dick wasn't nearly as good, but it was interesting that they kind of had this little reunion around another Farley Mowat story, and it's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not Never Cry Wolf. Smith also directed it naked. The full Monty, the whole time. It sounds a lot more like Dances with Wolves. It sounds a lot more rote than this ends up being, which I think for me is the biggest success of Never Cry Wolf, because... Going into it, I mean, even if I had taken the novel out of it that I ended up reading, I honestly thought this was going to be like a or dances with wolves. Like I, that's that's more of what I was expecting. And the Snowwalker sounds like that. It's a little bit like that. There's not necessarily that much communing with nature. The Barry Pepper character actually hunts a caribou, but he only has a spear. It's very much a survivalist type story. It's like plane goes down in the wilderness. He was trying to help out this Inuit lady by 
taken her to a hospital. Is she going to die? We don't know. It feels like she probably should have died like midway through the film because she is sick for a long damn time. But I think she makes it to the end. She kind of disappears like Utek. So she just, one morning he wakes up and she's not there. So we don't know really what happened to her, but it was all right. But uh, not nearly the impact that Never Cry Wolf had. Maybe had I seen this when I was 11 years old, I might have thought so. But I don't think I don't think I would have. There's something so special about Never Cry Wolf's pared down nature that I think really resonates with me because I would give kind of anything to swap places with his character in the movie right now and just be in the middle of nowhere, completely is- actually isolated. From everyone. I mean, look, in the last year, I have not been able to travel any more than so many people have. And being able to watch films and escape to a place that I hope I can go to sometime in the future, there is something to be said for that. And this film gives me that escape, much needed escape, in more ways than I was expecting it to when I sat down to watch it. Here's the poll question. Which film would be best paired with Never Cry Wolf as a double feature? Jeremiah Johnson, Grizzly Man, Silent Running, Into the Wild, or Black Robe? I haven't seen most of those. I've seen one of them. Wow, okay. I mostly know Jeremiah Johnson because of the gif. (laughs) The Redford smiling. Yeah. Yeah. Not Zach Galifianakis. No, not definitely not him. All I know is uh, Grizzly Man, and that's because that's the only film I've seen on that list. But I don't think that'd be a very good <laughs> double feature with anything, frankly. <laughs> if you start with Never Cry Wolf and you end with Grizzly Man, that's the original end. That's the that's the second to the last end scene in Never Cry Wolf. Yeah, pretty much. I put Silent Running in because the Bruce Dern character changes because of the project. And some would say it's a little echo terrorism. And the fact that, you know, Charles Martin Smith is, is become a, he's a changed man. And, you know, eventually literally shoots at Brian Dennehy in his plane into the wild, because that kid doesn't know how to survive and black robe, because it's better than dances with wolves. Which one was black robe. That was the Bruce Beresford film that came out around the same. I think it was like after, Dances with Wolves, where a uh, a man of the cloth, it's not like not like the mission, but a man with the cloth winds up hanging out with natives, and it's it was less natives good, white people bad kind of storytelling that uh, compared to Mister Costner's work. I remember the box cover. I would say this might fit well with how tasty was my little Frenchman. I think the only film that you compare this with is that Call of the Wild CGI wolf film with Harrison Ford from 2020. There you go. It is a Disney film. Carol Ballard's other stuff is right up there, though, for me. The Black Stallion, I, that was one nice thing about doing research of this film. I had never seen The Black Stallion before, so that was just wonderful. I had never seen Fly Away Home before. I was going to ask you, because we had talked about that before, like, like what, a month or two ago, because that was the only Carol Ballard film I had ever seen before this one. Each one of these is like the boy and his horse, the man and his wolves, the girl and her geese, the boy and his uh, cheetah, I think it is, and Duma from 2005. None of them feel exploitative to me. 
the relationship of the boy and the horse feels the end of the day. It's just like, wow, what a great story. And even with Fly Away Home, I was just like, wow, what a great story. And that that was based on a real story. I was like, what? Really? This doesn't seem possible. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed these and they are all so beautifully shot. And that's the thing too. You know, we were talking to Chris about, God, I wish I could change places with Tyler right now. Other than the danger of that ice at the beginning and the loneliness, the isolation that he, it seems like he kind of gets over towards the end of that movie. Yeah, he's one with nature. And I'm just like, yeah, fucking A. And the landscape, everything around him is so gorgeous. It is just amazing. There's one shot I noticed today where I can't remember if it's George or Angeline up on this little bit of a hill, and then you can see them reflected in the water. And again, I'm just like, okay, these days you would just do it as a CGI shot of the reflection in the water. But I'm like, no, they weren't doing that at this point. And it just is this gorgeous, gorgeous shot. And every single one of these shots is a gorgeous shot. It is, all looks so beautiful. And I, to your point, I just wish I was there. You know, you, you mentioned Hero Narita and... You can't say enough good things, right? Like I looked into him more of his work, and um, he was sent the director. Uh, he was the head of cinematography on The Rocketeer. I wouldn't be able to tell you that looking at these two films, given kind of the drastically different subject material. But that steady eye is there. It is there because The Rocketeer for all of its foibles, which it has plenty. One of the things you can't level against the movie is that it's bad to look at. And that it it's not a interesting looking film. And this film, again, it's a very different subject matter and subject material and setting, but it's an interesting to look at film. Even if you're not paying attention to the plot, it's still sweeping vistas, interesting landscapes. Like it is a very beautiful film, just at its base level. Mike, you mentioned you had the second draft of the screenplay. Was was Curtis Hansen one of the early screenwriters on this? He was, yes. It's interesting, as I was doing research, in 1983, two, to the two films he gets credit for was doing the sc- part of the screenplay for this and directing the film Losing It. The Tom Cruise, Shelley Long, you know, running to Tijuana for chicanery stuff. What a year. After he wrote those early drafts, I mean, he had nothing to do with it. I'm not sure why they dropped him, if they were just like, we're going to go in a quote-unquote, different direction, because he really set it up well. Like I said, the beats are there. The beats that we're familiar with from the book and then from this version of the screenplay that end up in the final film, a lot of them are very much the same. You know, you get those moments where you're just like, okay, now he meets Mike or Utak. Now he gets, you know, a little bit of civilization now he has to branch out on his own. The meeting with the wolves, all of that stuff is very much there. So it's just amazing that even with what, there's something crazy like three uh, narration writers, three or four screenplay writers. I mean, it's pretty much the most writers I've ever seen. And when I first got to INDB, they didn't even have Jay Press and Allen on there. So I added her because. She was part of that screenplay. It was her and Curtis Hansen. So I don't know why he gets credit, but she doesn't, which is interesting. Yeah, if you believe Wikipedia, the narration for the film was written by Charles Martin Smith, Eugene Corr, and Christina Lucier. And 
they don't even appear anywhere else that I can see other than that line right there. Talking with Eugene, he said that uh, by the end, he wasn't sure even who wrote what, because it all just kind of came out of this natural flow of stuff. And some of the dialogue, too, that is spoken in voiceover is just really coming from Mawa, too. And here's the thing, and I, I know I think the three of us can all agree, rarely do films with this many writers actually put something worth watching on screen. <laughs> Most of the time, it's like, the writer's room was nine people. And by nine people, I mean nine different people had their hands on this script, not necessarily at the same time or in confluence with one another. This film works a lot better than a lot of those films that have the same amount of writers do. Yeah, there there are certain films when you see the story by and then scream by, we all go, oh, shit. The more names on a screenplay or story by, the less likely the film is actually going to be good. Like you said, Mike, though, back to this idea of like Carol Ballard's kind of body of work. Carol Ballard really has kind of made a name for himself with films with animals, but not the kind of films with animals that I dislike. Yeah, and they take a while. I mean, he's you know he's not banging out a film a year. These take time, and I'm sure getting the funding as well because it's not is not sassy animal movie. Yeah, this is a restrained, very reserved animal film. I think of animal films probably like you do, Matthew. The um, like you were talking about the the sassy animals, the far 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 away home or whatever those are. Like where it's oh, like Homeward the, Bound. Homeward Bound. The one where the yeah. dogs talk, but they have internal monologues. My daughter swears by by Homeward Bound. It's a good film. <laughs> it's a good. It is a good movie. Like interesting enough. Looking at Charles Martin Smith, do you mention him as a director? This is a guy who did. The two Dolphin Tail movies, as well as Air Bud and A Dog's Way Home. So he's kind of picked up the baton. Not uh, sassy, but not nearly as sassy as the ones we're, as we're making fun of. I just make it a point to stay away from animal films, just like I make it a point to stay away from films that are primarily based off of children. I mean, isn't that what you always hear in Hollywood? Like, I don't work with kids, and I don't work with children. That's the W.C. Fields thing. I don't mind animal films if Werner Herzog is narrating. <laughs> and if the main character at the end gets eaten by the su- the secondary subject material of the film. <laughs> or as the penguin is going out walking into death. Instead of uh, Sir David Attenborough, they should just have Werner Herzog do everything. Yeah. I still want Herzog to do NPR pledge spots, but he never he never takes my calls. I was so stressed out watching that fucking March of the Penguins. I just, I couldn't handle it, man. I could not handle March of the Penguins. I I will say, and I don't know, you know, this is probably my only chance to ever plug this show. But I'm going to take it because this is maybe the only time I ever do a film like this for a podcast. Though that may change. If you're into these kinds of animal documentaries or animal films or footage or TV or however you want to phrase it. One of the best ones that's bizarre with a capital B is a series that National Geographic did in 2019 called Dead by Dawn. It is a series with Nat Geo and Skybound, which is Robert Kirkman, the guy who created Walking Dead, his company and Nat Geo working together to make a documentary about animals when the when the sun goes down and it's presented like a horror movie about animals it's awesome would you watch it with roar 
<laughs> oh wow! I've never so I've never seen Roar. It's on my like list of things to watch, which is gradually so large at this point, I'll never be able to even make any progress. I own it on Blu-ray, and I got to see it at a midnight screening in a full house, and the crowd reaction was half hysteria, half horror. It was a great midnight movie experience. I was so stressed out, I had to turn that movie off as well. <laughs> it's on my like list of because I've heard nothing but like how insane it is. It's right? fucked up. It's bonkers. I mean, there's in the trailer they somebody says the quote, you know, if uh, if Swiss if uh, the Lion King was a snuff film or if Swiss Family Robinson was a snuff film, and I'm like, stop using snuff films in your in your critiques. <laughs> If you guys have never seen Dead by Dawn, again, I am a huge fan of, like, animal stuff, but I'm a fan of it if it does something different, and it's not just David Attenborough reading about, you know, the penguins or something else, which is perfectly fine. It has its place, but Dead by Dawn is this really weird amalgamation of, like, horror tropes with, like, oh, yeah, here's this animal, and then all of a sudden it's, like, mouth opens and it eats the thing right in front of it, and you're like, that's fucked up. I'll stick with animals and beautiful people myself. All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Lena Vertmuller's Seven Beauties. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Matthew. So, Matthew, how are things in your world? We're okay. I, uh, I'm i still working at WFYI, although I, I go in twice a week now. I have a radio show on Saturday nights called The Blues House Party, and I have a podcast called Film Sociology, which you can hear at WFYI.org. Recently, I talked with Michael Doucet, the founding member of the great Cajun band Beausoleil, and we had a nice, epic 75-minute uh, chat about films that were shot in Louisiana. It was fun to hear him go off on a couple films and then talk about some other films that he liked. And I was able to hit him with some titles that he had not seen. So if you want to hear about uh, JD's Revenge, Southern Comfort, The Big Easy, and Panic in the Street, that's the couple weeks ago on Film Sociology. But, I mean, the, the rest of the time I'm working at my daughter's old school. I teach music appreciation. I'm thankful that we have a big house that, you know, we can at least get away from each other if we need to be. And I'm halfway through the uh, Criterion Fellini box set. So all is well. And Chris, what is keeping you busy? Just still podcasting on the Culture Cast. That's it. Uh, that's where you can find me. Normally doing movies every month. Also do Scary Stories We Tell, which is a podcast about true crime, horror, and the supernatural. So those are some things that uh, I work on uh, without Mike. And then, Mike, you and I work on a couple things together. Uh, Barney Miller and Dreams for Sale. So, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me on Twitter, Christmas Claus. That's where I post everything I work on. 
And on the Culture Cast right now, we're doing Mike White March, which is named for screenwriter Mike White from uh, School of Rock, obviously. No, it's named for uh, our good friend who invites me onto his podcast to stink up the joint, obviously, Mike White. And this month, what are we talking about, Mike? What did you choose for Mike White March this year? I chose something that will hopefully make your wife happy. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Than the previous two Mike White marches, there's no Japanese New Wave, there's no depressing sci-fi. We're talking about pre-code films, so before the Hayes Code really kicked in, we're talking about some racy, more adult-type films that were put out in Hollywood in the 1930s. So, looking forward to talking about those. Me too, because, again, like so many of the things that you bring to the Culture Cast, Mike, and I'm so appreciative that you come on the Culture Cast to begin with, is bringing films that I would never have watched otherwise. Mike White, March of the Culture Cast, culturecast.com. That's where you can find me. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.